and to discuss the state, local, tribal, and territorial ability to respond to large-scale biological events. Uh, all of our speakers today are non-federal. Um, while we certainly recognize the role of the federal government, and, uh, and we've been discussing that as part of our, um, our panel's deliberations, uh, today we want to talk about the local government, uh, the state response, uh, localities, the tribes, and the territories' uh, response to large-scale um, biological events. Uh, as former Secretary of Health and Human Services, I'm very familiar with the kind of top-down federal role uh, in this area and uh, with federal planning and preparedness and response efforts. And we've been discussing that on this panel at some length with a series of recommendations. But um, this does not um, reflect how we actually respond uh, in this country uh, because all of the initial and ongoing responses are local. Uh, federalism gives the states uh, uh, extra independence and control um, and funds and resources um, that come from the uh, uh, you're in, and as we saw recently, our territories have very special needs um, and requirements. Um, our national default for emergencies and disasters has been the federal government, but uh, today I think we will all agree that it takes more than the federal government to respond to a large-scale event. In fact, we probably don't find out about it until a local uh, entity tells us about it. Uh, my friend and fellow panel member Jim Greenwood uh, former Congressman Jim Greenwood talks about the values of scenarios and today I want us to imagine a scenario in which a biological event begins and spreads over a large region, maybe the entire country and eventually the entire world. The event is so expansive that what few resources uh, our national government had to lend would no longer exist and we'd find ourselves on our own, let's face it, we are on our own um, to start. There is a point in which our society will change and we will be out of resources with no ad additional insight. What worked for us before, for instance, surge operations at hospital emergency departments won't work anymore. And beyond that certain point, it will become public health. And we'll have to take a population perspective and make decisions that are the best for, um, for the most uh, uh, for most of the people, and I'm convinced that knowing this, we can determine what the public health system looks like and how it will behave. We won't have to wait for an event to occur to figure this out, and really, if we wait for a large-scale biological event to occur, we may never have the chance to figure it out. The system, such as it will be with no prior thought or design, will um, operate uh, suboptimally at best and at the cost of thousands and maybe millions of lives. Um, so I want us all to think about that today. 2018 is the 100th anniversary of the Spanish flu epidemic, which killed millions and millions of people uh, in our world. The kind of preparation we're talking about, particularly the commitment of um, governments and entities um, that aren't uh, the national government becomes very important. Uh, before I introduce Representative Jim Greenwood and ask him to say a few words, let me I acknowledge the presence of my predecessor, the president of the University of Miami, 
himself a, a very distinguished expert on global health, Dr. Julio Frank. Julio, we'll be hearing from him at lunch. Thanks for coming. Jim? Well, first let me thank you, Secretary Shalala, for convening today's meeting and for your leadership on biodefense issues. Our response to a potential bio-attack or outbreak is an issue that should be getting a lot more attention because the stakes couldn't be any higher. The health and security of our families and communities are at stake. Foresight, planning, and smart investment now can help save lives and mitigate terrible consequences in the event that a bio-threat to our homeland is carried out. I also want to thank, uh, you to the, thank you to the University of Miami for hosting us today. And thanks to all of our panelists for lending your expertise to this important discussion. Since the anthrax attacks in 2001, the federal government has made a number of investments to our nation's infrastructure. And Congress has established dedicated programs not only to bolster our federal response capabilities, but also to ensure that state, local, tribal, and territorial officials are prepared. All disasters, including public health and bioterrorism events, are local. Historically, when a disaster strikes, local communities are our first responders. Then the state comes in, then the federal government, and the private sector plays a key role throughout all phases of, res of a response. The point is, our initial response to a biological emergency has a critical impact on our ability to prevent, react, and contain an event or outbreak. As I mentioned, it has been 17 years since the anthrax attacks, and uh, the Secretary Shalala and I were in Washington when that happened, and it, it, it was an incredibly um, difficult event to get through just because of the, the fears of, of what could happen next. The purpose of today's meeting is to explore whether federal investments in the years since have made us more prepared to respond to large-scale biological outbreaks at the state and local level. What are our current vulnerabilities, and how can we shore them up? One activity that's invaluable is the development of public health emergency scenarios and tabletop exercises. To recognize gaps in local preparedness, promote interagency coordination, and identify training needs. We can apply lessons learned from these realistic exercises to assess and determine how our energy and resources are best applied. The questions that will guide our discussion today We'll explore whether or not we've made the appropriate resources and the programs in place, and our key personnel and our key personnel adequately trained. How do state, local, tribal, and territorial entities view the federal government's role and their own? In addition to increasing federal funding, how can we ensure that Washington is addressing the needs of state and local responders? So again, thank you all to all of the speakers for giving us your time, and in many cases, traveling long distances to be here today to lend your insights to the Blue Ribbon Study Panel's work. Let me uh, point out a couple things. First, uh, to my right, Dr. Asher George, um, who um, is the director of uh, the Blue Ribbon uh, Study Panel on Biodefense. And the other members include former Senator Joe Lieberman, um, uh, Secretary Tom Ridge, um, Senator uh, Tom Daschle, and um, Ken Weinstein, in addition to uh, Representative Greenwood and myself. Asha, any uh, words at the beginning? Okay, shall we start with the first um, uh, panelist? Let me introduce uh, Richard Serino, distinguished visiting fellow at the Harvard School of Public Health, former deputy administrator 
of uh, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, and former chief of the Boston Emergency Medical Services. Which job was easier? <laughs> I won't say academia, but. <laughs> They're all fun. Enjoyed all of them. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's, it's truly a, a pleasure to be here. Um, and if, you, if I spent the majority of my career in Boston. Um, we can hear that. <laughs> Just, just about 36 or so, and uh, during that period of time. Let me make sure your microphones. Which one? Does it matter? Are they okay together? Okay, great. Okay. How's that? Is that okay? And during that period of time in Boston, I had the opportunity to respond to many incidents of many different types. And I also served for the last couple of years before I went to Washington as the Assistant Director of Health for the City of Boston. And looking at many disasters and looking at bioterrorism specifically, uh, one of your former colleagues, my congressman, you, you may have heard of him, I think a guy by the name of Tip O'Neill, yeah. uh, used to say all politics are local. He used to also say, by the way, nothing in Washington is on the level. That's true. <laughs> and all disasters are local, too. When the cameras, before the cameras get there, before even the state gets there, or the federal government gets there, it's the locals that have to deal with it. And then after the cameras go away, and then after the, even the federal government may be there for years, sometimes decades, but they'll go away as well. And I think we have to remember that it's local. And we have to remember that the locals cannot do it alone either. It has to be an entire team effort. And as in, I just happened to read uh, an op-ed written by uh, someone here that was in today, what is it, Secretary Shalala, mm -hmm. uh, made a, a, a few great comments in that um, about how we have to look at that the federal government is not going to be there quickly. Uh, federal government is not designed to be there quickly, whether it's FEMA. The Federal Emergency Management Agency um, handles emergencies doesn't mean that they get there quick. Um, we've tried to change that over the years to get more aggressive, be there earlier and, and successful, but never meant, never designed to be the first responders. That is a local capacity. And as we start to look at the local capacity, what they're able to do, and start to, to think about one of the initial questions was, should it be state and local take the lead, or should the federal take the lead? I actually think that's the wrong question, totally. Because it's not who's going to take the lead, it's how do we work together? How do we integrate working together? Uh, we at FEMA, we started something called the whole community in 2009 and 2010, how to bring people together that hadn't been at the table in the past. And that's something I think we have to look at, with the, especially with bioterrorism. How do, how do we look at this differently? How do we look at this paradigm that we bring the entire community together? Um, I chaired, uh, when I was at FEMA, with uh, Dr. Laurie, who was the ASPR at the time, the Assistant Secretary of Preparedness Response, uh, the medical consequence management in the federal response, and how do we do that? As we co-chaired that, we looked at a lot of different aspects. It's, you know, we have the SNS, the Strategic National Stockpile, which 
is good, but it's not going to meet the needs. We have, but have we really reached out enough to the private sector? Have we reached out to the people that do this every day? Your CVS, your Rite Aid, your Walgreens, your Walmart, your Target. And how do they really play into the picture? Because they're going to, they move things every day and they're going to do this better than we ever thought of doing it in, in government, than government ever thought, of, whether it's federal, state, local, tribal territories, because we don't do that every day. How do we integrate them into the mix on a regular basis? How do we look at what they can do? Because not only do they have the materials, their employees are part of the community as well. And how do we integrate the community to be a true partner in what we do? We have a moment in time that unfortunate incidents over this past weekend in Hawaii that, you know, okay, say bioterrorism, nuclear, well, I think there is a, a, an opportunity to look at how they are similar. That this is a teachable moment that we have at this moment in time. My daughter lives in Hawaii, and when that alert went off, she called me within a minute and said, Dad, this, you know, what's going on? And I said, I don't know what's going on. And she relayed what had happened. And I says, Let me, I'll call you back in two minutes and got some more information in that few minutes because of education that they had gotten in the community just over the last few months about a possible attack. She had taken the kids, the dog, her husband, got filled the bathtub with water, got uh, non-perishable supplies, and they went to the center of the house. They did that in three to four minutes because they had some basic, basic, basic training. Now think if we look at how we can make the community part of the solution versus part of the problem. How can we look at the community to be more involved? That's going to take a, a pretty wide-scale effort to educate. Hawaii, for the past X number of months, has been training the public, very basic information. It made a difference that people knew what to do. Is there a long way to go? Absolutely, after looking in at some of the images and talking to people and reading a lot what happened in Hawaii. A lot of people didn't know what to do. But how do we take that and say, how do we link that together to what they can do, the public can do as an asset? And I think we have to look at how we can start to explore that. But that's going to take the, the next step of this is how do we take and look at how we can get the leadership to understand? Because I think a key part in this is leadership is how do we get a resilient society, resilient community, rather than looking at the end, let's back up and look at it backwards. What is going to take, it, what is going to, take to get a resilient society? How are we going to achieve a resiliency in the communities, in the affected communities? And once we start looking at it going backwards, what's either going to contribute or detract from getting the whole community resilient? And as we start to look at what that's going to take, how are we going to get there, the speed, the accuracy, and the effectiveness of the response is going to either evaluate or detract, but how do they have that confidence? And instilling that confidence in the public comes down to leadership, comes down to preparedness, comes down to educating the public long ahead of time of what they're able to do is if we're true to the public and we let them know that this will save lives, X, Y, and Z will save lives, 
people will participate. We've had, during some of the national level exercises that we had uh, around earthquakes, around other, many things, but specifically in the earthquakes, when we shared with governors and then we shared with the public that another state needed the resources more than they did, they says, here, have them. But if we don't share that information, they don't know. And without information, people will do, whether it's politicians, whether it's the public, will do on their own. So if we start to share information with them, share what we know, and it's based in the framework that we want to save lives, that's going to start to instill confidence in the public. And if the public doesn't have confidence, whether we have SNS or whatever, it, it really isn't going to matter. I think a key part is how do we have, make sure the public has confidence in what we as leaders at the federal, state, local, tribal, territorial level makes a difference. A lot of education, a lot of time and effort went into developing the whole community. We saw a response in Harvey that went relatively well. We saw a response in Florida that went relatively well. Why was that? That was because of years and actually generations of people understanding that this is the whole community, everybody has a role. And as we start to look at how public can, can play a role in that, and the public understands that they can save lives, it's that even though a bad thing happened, that they can still be resilient. And leaders can't do this alone. They have to bring lots of different groups of people together. As I mentioned, bringing together the um, private businesses, <clears throat> and I just named a few, 95% of the economy in this country is run by the private sector. How do we incorporate them into our preparedness? How do we incorporate them as to what they need to do? Because politicians at the local level are going to listen to their community leaders, and their community leaders are business leaders, their neighborhoods, but that's who they're going to listen to. So we have to look at this entire effort, and we have to develop and understand that people have that unity of mission, and that unity of mission in one of these events will be save lives. How can we save lives? And then look at the generosity of spirit, and we saw this, we see this routinely, whether it was the Cajun Navy in Javi, whether it was neighbors helping neighbors in Puerto Rico, how that generosity of spirit will help neighbors in neighbors helping neighbors in the community helping the neighbors, government helping neighbors. Because if an individual is resilient, then their family's resilient. If their family's resilient, the neighborhood can be resilient. If the neighborhood's resilient, the city can be resilient. And if the city's resilient, the state can be resilient, and then therefore you can have a resilient country. But it starts with the individuals. And as we start to look, whether it's federal, state, local, tribal, whether it's different areas, if people stay in their lanes and do their jobs, not do other people's jobs, but assist in how they can get to make better, make them better, and how to help others succeed, then we're going to see that now we start to look at, we have unity and mission. We have people want to have that generosity of spirit. We have people save lives. People stay in their lanes. But also in a response that no ego, no blame. That people don't, in the middle of a response, that, you know, oh, I'm doing all this and you're doing bad. But putting that aside and also looking at developing the foundation of trusting relationships. And as we start to look at those five 
things that we were able to bring together for a response in preparedness, that with those five, that that can make a difference in the response. And the most effective engagement with the public is the community being prepared, and the community being prepared ahead of time and having that, the public being resilient. And as we looked at these five, they're actually, those five things came out of when we studied the response to the Boston Marathon. On a different scale, but the folks at Harvard uh, National Preparedness Leadership Initiative looked and interviewed everybody that was responsible from the leaderships, from the governor to the mayor to the police commissioner to the police superintendent, 34 different folks, including myself when I was at FEMA. Uh -huh. They sat to look at what did everybody do and why was that response successful when there was not one person that was quote unquote in charge. It's because they had these five elements, this swarm leadership of how having that unity of mission. True, it's a much smaller incident, but this is an opportunity to, to look at how do we bring all these different groups of people together? How do we bring this ahead of time? Because if we can take a terrible moment and we can take all these terrible moments and we have, and Representative, I'm glad you mentioned exercises, because the response to Boston was no accident. The response that 262 people survived that were injured that day was no accident. It's because of years of training, years of preparation, years of drills. A response to a bioterrorism cannot be an accident. We have to look at this. We have to prepare ahead of time. We have to bring together the whole community. We have to bring together the politicians ahead of time. We have to educate them when appropriate. And Obviously, long before event is the time to do that. But we have to take the teachable moments such as now. Because I can tell you, the mayor of Boston, the governor of Massachusetts, when the incident in Hawaii happened, we're, very, we're double checking all the, what they would do. They talked to the public, tried to calm the public down. It was a time that everybody was paying attention. That's slowly decreasing as the days go on. So we have to look at opportunities to educate people that preparedness and resiliency at the community level, at the political level, and take that and say, remind people when these incidents happen. I can stop and answer some questions now. Thanks for all of that. Um, suppose the, the, uh, the Boston Marathon bombers had uh, been more sophisticated and had uh, figured out how to aeros I never can say this word, aerosolize, aerosolize uh, a pathogen, and they took to the rooftop uh, and downwind, or, and, and people started showing up in hospitals sick, and it was a complete mystery why, but they start coming in in droves. What would happen in Boston? I think in Boston it would, it would pretty much, I don't want to say cripple the system, it would severely hamper the system because on top of the injuries from the bombing, which really stressed the system, but the patients were evenly distributed all around different hospitals, that made a difference. All those things made a difference. And with a, if it was something that was aerosolized, that was a chemical, that we actually, for that incident, we, had, we knew it was, we had the uh, civil, National Guard civil support teams on site, so we knew that, that mm -hmm. that was not the case right away. But if it was something else, and if it was a biological, we probably wouldn't have known right away. It wouldn't have happened right away. People wouldn't have been sick right away. 
So I think what would have happened is marathon is an international event. People would have, as they do every day after the marathon in, in 2013, a little later, but people left the city to go not only around the country, literally around the world. So it would have been an event that wouldn't affect, it would have affected Boston. Excuse me, here's what I'm gonna to get to. I'm gonna to get to. Let's say, um, of course nobody knows that that happened. So let, let's say people start showing up in emergency rooms and the doctors are saying, I don't know what this is. And, and finally maybe they determine they think it is. And now they're seeing um, that this is happening in multiple hospitals. I just want to know what would that trigger in terms of the emergency response of the city? With the, with the city um, in Boston, they have something, there's the COBTH, Conference of Boston Teaching Hospital. There's also a medical intelligence center in Boston that was standing up for the marathon that brings together uh, mm -hmm. public health, uh, brings together emergency management, brings together uh, all the hospitals in Boston, brings together EMS in Boston. Uh, as well as the law enforcement, the BRIC, the Boston Regional Intelligence, and one of the fusion centers. Uh, they actually all sit in a room together, uh, and they actually stayed in that room for about a week or so after the marathon. So if this had developed, that would have been the hub of where people would have been together mm -hmm. to start mm -hmm. to share the information to say, something's going on at Boston Medical Center, and I was seeing it at Mass General, Brigham and Women's. Okay, and that would start to be communicated around. At that point, it would then get pumped up to both the state was, is also in the room too. The state would activate their local, uh, probably the emergency operations center of the states, but also public health. And this is where public health and emergency management and public safety really have to work hand in hand because law enforcement is definitely gonna have to be involved. So how do we bring all these together? Also, obviously at the same time, that would be information to be flowing up to HHS under the ASPR CDC, it would all happen pretty much concurrently. So do you have any, so that's a pretty sophisticated system, um, to have a hospital do that's you, a... Do you have the laboratory capacity to start the diagnosis or identify? In, in Boston, and Boston's unique, I understand, because there's so many trauma centers, has laboratories, it has a lot of academic institutions. Well, that's where I was going. How prevalent is, how many cities do you think have uh, hospitals are designated as intelligence centers? Um, with the medical intelligence centers, I'm not sure if there are too many others that actually have mm -hmm. that uh, medical intelligence center. Um, there are other, I think maybe one other city has that. Uh, I had it. I'm not sure if they still do. Uh, most cities have uh, law enforcement fusion centers, and some of those have uh, public health slash EMS folks that are assigned to them. But again, mm -hmm. nowhere near the number that it should be. Nowhere. It, that, that's, I think, would be absolutely key to share the information to have it so there's not the barriers. In, in the different areas of public safety and public health and how we continue to have to link those together. I want to follow up on your comments about the local pharmacies having to play a role. Um, and you, you sort of post questions like, could that be done, should that be done, so forth. Do you have a, 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 a sense of what that would look like? So for instance, should the federal government think about um, prepositioning certain uh, countermeasures in pharmacies and set up a system where this is, you know, stored and and for emergency, or uh, which seems like pretty hard to do, um, or is it more uh, figuring out how to the, use them as distribution centers so the state or federal authorities would come in with countermeasures and and there would be a system to distribute them to uh, pharmacies and what would that system look like? Who would be in charge of doing that? Well, I think, excuse me, I think actually is a I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's actually a combination of both of those. 
of how we're able to use bo both the private sector, what they have, what the federal government has. Uh, some states and local governments have some uh, resources pre-positioned. And how do you not just look at one of those in a silo? It has to be how do we connect all those silos together and realize that ultimately it's for the public. And I think a lot of time we, we tend to forget that, that this is about people and the public. We, we, we all do. It's, it's um, I think when you work, <coughs> excuse me, in certain yeah. positions, in especially in certain administrative positions, we forget it's about people. So how do we look at what's best for people? Where do people go on a routine basis? Do people know where their local CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid, whatever their pharmacy is? And a lot of even small towns, you go on one corner and there's three different pharmacies on one corner. But have them not integrated a part of a plan for MCM doesn't make sense. All right, so one, more, one more question, if I may. You, you talked about um, no one should be the lead. Everybody has to do their job. And when you said that, it reminded me of all of these crime shows where the local cops are trying to solve a crime and the FBI walks in and says, we'll take it from here, boys, um, and the, the resentment from the locals. And, um, and I understand your, the point you're trying to make, but <clears throat> sometimes I can imagine where uh, the state or federal authorities would be wanting to uh, move in one direction and the locals may feel that that's the wrong way to move and there's a collision. Um, uh, then, what, then what should happen? I mean, should... Who gets to make the call? I, I think we may have seen something similar to that. There was uh, uh, the Ebola case in Dallas um, and what was happening there. And I spent some time in Dallas with the uh, public health, emergency management, first responders, uh, hospital folks in Dallas, uh, right literally uh, after that and while well, part of it was going on. And then I spent a few days in Washington. Um, you would have thought they were different responses. Uh, again, communications, understanding of each other is a perfect example of that. That, the, you know, looking for information, not getting information, not getting the correct information, then people at the local level just sort of, I don't want to say making it up, but going the best information they could gather. So I think we have to look at how do we, how do we change that, as I started out with, change the paradigm. How do we start to look at how do we integrate this and who will actually be in charge? It's, it's really tough. I mean, it's going to, at the local level, ultimately it's going to be the mayor or the governor. And each state is a little bit different on their laws who's going to be in charge. But ultimately it's a, it will be a local issue. And does the federal government step in and take over? That's, a, as you know, a drastic step. Um, and what will it actually accomplish? And go back to where do we want to be? How do we build? The resiliency. So I think it's more, we shouldn't have to get to that point. We should look at how we build the resiliency ahead of time so people are uh, trusting, people have confidence in their government. And government, I don't mean by federal, state, local, tribal, territorial. I mean government as a whole. Because the public really doesn't care what patch is on your sleeve. They really don't care whether you get paid by the federal government, state government, local government. They don't care. I know that's a shock to a lot of people, but the public doesn't care. They look at government as a whole. So I think it's incumbent upon us, although I'm not in government anymore, 40 plus years in government, that as us who work or worked in government, to actually understand that the public is who we're there to serve and not who's going to be in charge, who's going to do what. And if we start to work on this long ahead of time, then the old saying is 25 years plus, you don't want to be exchanging business cards that have seen a disaster. 
you want to have these relationships long ahead of time and how you're able to do that. And not just I know who you are, but I understand what the issues are. We've worked through these. Is it 100% correct? It's not going to be. It's a disaster. But let's understand that we can work through these together. Let me yield back to the Secretary. I just have one. <clears throat> one of the things that we, we talk about uh, with, with the panel, obviously, is the role of, of um, politics and the, the, the need for people to understand politics, uh, particularly in the, in the public health community and sort of traditionally non-political communities. But it's really, it's, it's really quite hard, Rich, to, to, you can say that and people say okay, but public health curricula, for example, doesn't generally include uh, a whole lot in the way of political science courses. It's not a requirement for graduation. And uh, the same can be said for emergency medical services. It can, the same can be said about uh, medicine, management. pharmacy, all, all kinds of things. But uh, so what happens is people, people come out of, of these programs and get positions like you did, chief, chief of EMS or, or deputy administrator of FEMA, and suddenly, whether they want to be or not, there is a political context before even anything even happens. So given your own experience, um, what, would you, what would you recommend to, uh, you know, to universities like the University of Miami and to the professionals that actually go into these fields? Uh, I mean, A, do you agree with what I'm saying about, about the need for some political savviness and at least to understand you're going to have to deal with that? And then what would your recommendation be about how to, how to go about getting that experience or, or that learning? To, uh, to say that politics don't play a role in disaster is a bit naive. Mm -hmm. um, I think that one of the things, one of my main uh, jobs, both actually in Boston but also at FEMA, was to uh, constantly educate politicians, be it congressmen, be it senators, uh, be it folks in, in the White House, to understand what the roles are. Uh, but also in Boston as well. I think taking the opportunity to meet your local mayor your local city councilor, uh, educate them to what you do. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember even before I was chief, but certainly when I was chief in Boston, I would take city councilors out and uh, let do ride around in mm -hmm. what we did for EMS. Uh, it, uh, I told people in public health when I went to public health, is like, let's bring them out so they can see what we're doing. Uh, at FEMA, we had quarterly uh, meetings that with um, that staff members, uh, from the Appropriations Committee would come to FEMA every quarter. Rather than us being summoned up to the Hill for whatever, it was always the finest thing I always loved to do was <laughs> go to the Hill. Uh, but, you know, being preemptive and bringing them down and educating them, you know, every quarter we did something different. Once was mitigation, once was response, recovery. But building those relationships ahead of time will pay dividends in the long run and understanding that it's uh, if they can pick up the phone and ask you a question, if, as a congressman, if you were to call me as in my role at FEMA ahead of time to say, geez, in this district this happened, and we had a relationship, that would be a much different phone call than why isn't everything here? Um, and I think taking the opportunity to do that ahead of time at all levels, uh, because you have to understand, most politicians, this is not high on their list. Um, it's, 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 this is not what they're going to get reelected on, mm -hmm. but it is what they're going to lose an election on, especially at the mayoral, city council, and governor level. They will lose elections if they don't run 
a response correctly, whether it's a bioterrorist response or it's removing snow. Mm -hmm. uh, understanding that, but that's not what they, they usually don't run on those issues, but it is what they will not get reelected on. Mm -hmm. That's a, um, that's a very good point. Um, in this county, for example, it's the county that has the uh, emergency response leadership, and they do a pretty good job, very good job, as a matter of fact, coordinating every institution in town. Um, most of the disaster preparedness strategies I've seen at the federal level um, uh, do have pallets that they can move around the country, either with FedEx or or something else in terms of drugs, but also have used veterans' hospitals because they have such, they have enough, the problem is the expiration dates on drugs, so you can't just have the drugs sitting someplace. Right. You have to have a place that, where they have enough volume and enough turnover, and I think VA hospitals, which are spread across the country, is one place where you actually could use uh, those, and the feds have long identified those places. I think the problem from our point of view is that we're well organized, we're probably better organized for a disaster than we are for a bio uh, incident, um, a bombing, a hurricane, uh, a chemical um, uh, disaster, but these bio ones require a, a different level of response and whether there's enough training in the areas and enough resources. The CDC has long given block grants to the states, but at the end of the day, it's really the states that have the legal responsibility to build these systems, and there, very few of them have put their own money um, into this, I think, over a period of time. I, I agree. A lot, of, a lot of states have the legal responsibilities, legal authorities, uh, but they don't have, usually it's not a priority for funding. Yeah, I was oh. interested in the Ebola outbreak in Texas. They seem to be blaming the CDC when it was really the state of Texas that had the ultimate responsibility um, it, for but, coordinating the hospitals and for the training and, and all the other pieces. And a lot of folks in Texas actually, the, the state and the county and the city were actually all sitting together mm -hmm. during most of this. Uh, and they were looking for that overall direction from CDC in a fairly quick manner that wasn't coming initially. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I want to go back to one of the other points you just made about the VA. I think that uh, to go back to the Boston Marathon, if something was aerosolized, that if we start to, to look at that, how do we, now this is spread across the country and across the globe, but across the country, how do we bring in the resources of both uh, all the private hospitals, um, the, the government hospitals, municipal hospitals are usually there. Most of the major teaching hospitals are, are, are pretty up. But how do we bring in the VA? And then how do we expand that past that? What's DOD's role going to be uh, in one of these incidents? The DOD has a lot of assets. What's their role going to be? What can they do? What can't they do? What should they do? What shouldn't they do? Will they have the resources CONUS? Will they be de deployed O-CONUS if there's a major incident? A lot of questions, but let's not work through those the day of the incident. Mm -hmm. Let's work through those now. And how do we start to, to look at uh, how do we utilize a lot of the resources that are currently available? You know, we're talking bio. Uh, that's what this Blue Ribbon Panel is. And, you know, a few years ago, I probably wouldn't have said we'd be talking nuclear as much as well, but I think we have to look at how these, you know, <coughs> just preparing for one, you can actually prepare for many. Mm -hmm. uh, Jim, do you have any other 
Yeah, I do have, I think we have you till 10 o'clock, so I, you have another question or two. Um, <clears throat> you used the analogy of a hurricane and said that people um, expect them and, and know, uh, know, we can tell them what to do and they, can, they, can, and they have lots of advance notice usually because of today's weather forecasting. Um, but a bioterror or a, a pandemic are quite different. People don't expect them to happen. And they don't, it doesn't even occur to them that it's a possibility that could ever happen to them. So I'm, I'm curious as to how you think, how you think you, you actually could educate the people about what to do in such a cir circumstance and, 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 and what would that look like? I mean, is, is it a question of going to the local media and saying, uh, you should, could you run some articles about what to do in, in these kinds of events and maybe do a series on it? I mean, I just don't know how you actually, or, or and, and that would be sort of advanced planning. And the second part of the question is, um, real-time real -time communication. So if something in, was in, uh, happening in Boston um, where people needed to react, um, you know, uh, there's a crawler on my TV or on my smartphone that will tell me there's a storm coming or flood coming and so forth. Uh, are, are those systems set up to say there's a, um, a bioterror event that's occurring and here's what you should do? I I think there's a lot of the fear of the unknown with a bioterrorism event. I, I think one of the, the first parts is how do we educate people ahead of time of what to do and how to do it, certain things that you can take, preparations that you can take as individuals. And yes, we could do media and a series of articles that are going to come out and you know, people are going to look at this article today, the op-ed, and say this is great uh, in this area that, that looked at it and it will be sent around to people like us uh, that will see that. But we need to do, we, I actually think we have to, again, shift how we're going to do this. We have to educate uh, our young. We have to educate uh, students in school. This is going to take a generation. This is not going to happen overnight. We have to educate, um, you know, some of us grew up in the civil defense area, and now, unfortunately, we seem to be going back to that. Uh, so this generations that understand certain things. You probably hit under your desk in school as I did. Right? Perhaps. <laughs> Uh, but it, was that the right thing to do or not? But we, we did it. Um, but I think we have to now start looking at how do we make that a priority, not just for bioterrorism, I think, but also whether it's nuclear, but it's also understanding, you know, students unfortunately are not doing, they do fire drills like we all did, but they're also doing, uh, you know, what happens if an active shooter drills. That's part of everyday life in most schools in this country now. So kids know what to do. So if we do this in the proper way, and we want to educate the young in kids in the you know, elementary school level, that as we start to educate them, that will make... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That'll make a, 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 a difference, I think, as we, if we educate people at an early age. And I think when an incident happens, um, Again, the, the way of uh, people will get, I, I know Saturday what I did, and we were all you know, on many different forms of social media trying to find out what's happening, maybe on CNN, but they didn't have anything yet. Um, so it, how we push messages out quickly, uh, the public expects quick. I think we have to be able to be honest. We have to say this is the information that we have. This is what we know now. This is going to probably change in the next time I talk to you because we're going to get more information. 
Uh, not saying anything is definitive, but I think you have to understand uh, giving people hope, giving people confidence. Well, I interrupt you. The emergency broadcasting system uh, <laughs> has a set of, I assume, canned messages mm -hmm. and, um, and a system to say where it's going to flash flood and, and that kind of thing. Um, I'm wondering if they even have the verbiage they would know what to, what to say to people in a, in a bioterror incident. I mean, the, the, somebody's got to be, you know, keying that, that those words into whatever's going to come across my phone or my TV. Right, and those, those words will be, they're going to be different for each incident, and to have a canned message for a bioterror. Right, but who, who, gives, who gives the system the words uh, at the local level? At the local level, it can be, well, it, you can go the through FEMA, and the emergency management at the, at the state level, some cities have it, depending on the size. Most areas have the ability to send out those notices. Yeah, but normally, the communications people are integrated into the emergency management. The one thing I want to uh, back us away from, all of these are not terrorism incidents. Ebola was not a terrorism Terrorist. incident. It was a naturally occurring biological event. And there, are, there will be situations when something is accidentally released. So uh, we've got to make sure that uh, we're talking about all three, the things that are intentionally uh, uh, introduced or accidentally released or naturally occurring. Um, the Spanish flu was naturally occurring. It was not a bioterrorism um, event. So um, how we organize ourselves may be the same, but to alarm people that it's terrorism as opposed to a mistake an accidental uh, situation, or we've got to educate the public in the science that a lot of these are going to be naturally occurring. Many of us are very afraid of influenza outbreaks, for example, which have nothing to do with some rogue country introducing um, a, a biological uh, antibody. And, and I think a lot of that goes down to the confidence in the messaging. Uh, we saw, you know, the confidence that people had around H1N1. We didn't see widespread panic. We saw concern, parents concern, as they should be. We didn't see the panic that we saw with Ebola, even though that the Ebola uh, was very, very isolated and didn't affect many people at all in this country. Jim, I, I think I told the panel one day that I had a rule when I was secretary. The only people that could talk about um, uh, science had to have white coats on. That We've never had a press conference at the White House um, that we always kept it to uh, the doctors, the nurses, the, the medical and the health professionals because the public has confidence in them. They don't have a lot of confidence if a secretary who's not a medical person or a White House spokesperson standing up and talking about uh, an accidental event, an intentional event, or, or so that you can reassure people um, that we know what we're talking about. And I think Dr. Rich Besser did a, a great job during the H1N1 and how he relayed information, told everybody people. at the University of Miami to wash their hands, I can tell you that. Yeah. Um, any other no. questions? Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you for thank coming you. to Boston. I hope you can get home. Yeah, they've already said that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> I'm sure we can find a beach for you. What do you want to do? Do you want us to stand up? Just stand up. Okay.
Right, I'm Lord Love. No. Okay, um, Representative Greenwood right. will introduce the next panel. So the next panel is entitled Community and Pre-Hospital Assets and Resources, and we're going to hear from Nicolette uh, Louisiant, if I'm saying that right, PhD, uh, Director of Healthcare Ready, uh, Jimmy Minot as the Assistant Aviation Director of Operations at the Charlotte Douglas International Airport, and James Robinson is the Assistant Chief of the Denver Health Paramedic Division. And Nicolette, how do you pronounce your last name? Louis Saint. Louis Saint, okay, thank you. Yes, welcome. Thank you. Um, we love Haiti. Could you, um, yes. perhaps you can explain what Health Ready is as yes, part of your presentation? Certainly. Good morning. Thank you all for having me. Um, I am here representing Healthcare Ready. Um, we are a nonprofit currently in our 10th year, um, formerly known as RX Response. Um, and really the reason that Healthcare Ready was created um, was shortly after Hurricane Katrina when um, the pharmaceutical supply chain realized that there needed to be um, more coordination and folks that frankly were working day to day on thinking about how public-private coordination should be happening on issues of disaster preparedness and response. And out of that came Healthcare Ready. And so for the last 10 years, the organization has been working very hard to make sure that Coordination with the public and private sector at all levels is happening, not just during an event, but also beforehand. Uh, one of the services that we provide during a disaster is called RX Open, and I will speak to that a bit. But um, that is out of the recognition that for many patients that need their medicines during a disaster, they're not going to know where their hospital, they don't need to know where their hospital is, they need to know where their pharmacy is. Mm -hmm. And so we have a map that shows the status of pharmacies and we're able to turn it on for the entire United States as well as all of the territories. It's currently still turned on for Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. um, and for us, what we've realized in that is that actually has become a major tool for emergency managers as well. Mm -hmm. It is the key healthcare indicator that is used right now by FEMA, as well as ASPR and the CDC when they're looking at the coverage of pharmacies um, during a response as are well. Are you financed by the pharmacy industry, by the drugstores themselves? We, we, are, we actually have a hybrid model. We, are, um, we have members from the trade associations in the right. supply chain, including Bio. Right. Thank you. Um, I think we send money every once in a while. Yes, <laughs> and more is always welcome. <laughs> um, and we also do um, quite a bit of project-based work um, with the public sector as well. Mm -hmm. Great. Yes. Just introduce yourself so we can. Everybody has titles, but 
Thank you. I'm uh, honored to be here. I'm James Robinson. I'm a paramedic and, and uh, assistant chief of EMS for the city and county of Denver, Colorado. Great. Good morning. Jimmy Minot. I'm with the Charlotte Douglas International Airport. Um, I'm the uh, director of operations, which basically means that if it goes wrong, I take responsibility, and if it goes right, the aviation director gets the Give me your card <laughs> before you leave since I go through that airport all yeah. the time. That would be great. <laughs> Um, Jim? Sure, let me uh, direct a, a question to, to Mr. Robinson. Well, look, they may have some statements, oh, I think. Oh, okay. Do, you want to, do they have opening statements? Yes. 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 Okay. Go, ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just wanted them to introduce right. So from our vantage point, um, one of the things that we really think is important is not just talking about um, partnerships, but really under, I, I think it's, I, th I believe it's on. Um, but really understanding how partnerships should, should work both across sectors and across jurisdictions. We believe that federal response capacity and coordination um, ultimately serves the ability to be able to um, meet the challenges of surge, but ultimately it comes down to state level coordination, especially when it comes to the private sector. But while we know that the local jurisdictions are always um, in the lead, the challenge that we see is how that operationalizes with respect to partnerships. It's often very unclear, especially with the private sector. Part of the reason for that is because a lot of the private sector companies that would have a, a primary role in a response are going to be large multinationals. So charging them with being um, building relationships and being in constant coordination with 3,000 local jurisdictions is just a logistical challenge. And that really is a part of the reason that organizations like ours are stood up. But even for small nonprofits like ours, that is still a challenge. So for us, we do think that public-private coordination does require, does require concerted work, um, but f the number that I would urge you all to think about is 93%. Um, that is the, num the percentage of critical healthcare infrastructure that is held by the private sector in the United States. So when we are thinking about the reason behind um, partnerships and the impetus to really make sure that this type of coordination is happening on a day-to-day -day basis, then that number, 93%, should, is always at the forefront of our minds. I would also like to reiterate um, the role of the normal supply chain. A lot of times in disaster preparedness and response, we think about the SNS and other parts of the disaster supply chain. But from our vantage point, it is incredibly important to think about the role that the normal supply chain has in disasters all the way down to local pharmacies. The normal supply chain is a key part of a response, and we have to think about how partnerships in the local normal supply chain will be able to especially meet the need in that critical first 72 hours. Just in the interest of um, time, I do want to also mention um, we do an annual poll, and one of the things that we tend to ask our patients in an annual poll is whether or not um, they have an understanding of who they should call on during a disaster. We also ask questions such as how long are you comfortable being without medicines or having access to a refill? Um, and last year we added a question about responsibility. Um, and what we found is that patients believe that they can only go about two to three days before they would need access to a pharmacy or hospital. And they 
also said, and what, which was a surprise to us, we asked the question around um, jurisdictions. Who do you believe has the ultimate responsibility during a disaster to make sure that you are safe and have access to the care that you need? And we saw that there was a split between the federal government, the state and local governments, and 33% of the respondents said that they thought that their individual communities had the ultimate responsibility. And so just to um, back up Rich's point, I think that shows that there really is a broad acceptance of this whole community response and sense of responsibility that we all share. Last point I'll make um, is around, again, healthcare ready and the role that we saw even during um, this last hurricane season. We were actually activated for more than 75 days straight. Um, and we turned on our RX open map showing the status of pharmacies everywhere from California during the wildfires and the Hepe outbreak in San Diego all the way to Puerto Rico. And what we saw was the private sector's ability to really not just provide medicines as a donation or funding to other um, agencies to be able to assist, but really step in as partners and find innovative, um, rapid solutions to the problems that we saw on the ground. Um, everywhere from during Harvey when we knew that hospitals needed refills of meds and distributors actually worked to do airlifting with partners like us to make sure that medicines were going to be airlifted to the hospitals that needed it most, all the way to Maria where we saw that the manufacturers on the island were actually using generators and putting them out into the communities so that people could plug their devices into them and charge. Um, but they were also doing things like making sure that pharmacies that were on the island that did have refills were able to um, serve as points of resupply for facilities that needed them as well. So we, we see that there is a critical opportunity to really engage, especially um, throughout the supply chain, but especially pharmacies, um, chain and community pharmacies, to really do a better job of engaging that normal supply chain. And we think that there is a lot of opportunity to really grow in that area. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for having me. Um, I've been a paramedic since 1991. I've been an EMS since 1989. And, and one of the things that has probably been one of the more profound lessons I've learned over that time is that um, that the entire relationship between EMS and the people we serve is really based on trust. And I, I think Rich mentioned the importance of trust. And trust, the kind of trust that I'm talking about is, is the trust of uh, an EMS provider showing up at someone's home at 3 in the morning and, and uh, being welcomed into the patient's home um, w without cleaning, they don't clean their house up or fix their hair or anything like that and, and welcome us in. And, and once we're there, they hand us their, their baby or they, or they allow us to ask them very personal questions that they wouldn't answer for their closest friends. Um, we undress them to examine them. We put our hands on their bodies to examine them. And, and, uh, and they do that and they offer us that type of access without ever asking whether or not we know what we're doing whether we're criminals or not, whether, you know, what, what our motivations are, how, how much education we have or anything like that. And that, that type of trust is almost mother-child kind of trust where I, I'm handing you my, my child or, or granting you that type of access. And I think the public expects that in return for that, that they're going to get the best effort every time. And I see an analogy 
um, with our level of preparedness in this regard is that the public trusts that we're going to be able to handle it on the big day. And, and I, unfortunately, I think that's probably not the case currently. Um, and, you know, I, I applaud the, the study panel and the report. And as I went through the recommendations from the report, um, it, it's, it's very analogous to the state of EMS in our country. Um, it's, we have widely varying levels of preparedness across the country. We have widely varying levels of effectiveness in our EMS services. And um, having had the opportunity to do some work on, in trauma recently, one of the things that came out of our National Academy of Sciences Committee was that where you live could actually determine if you live. And I think that that's something that is also pertinent in this discussion. As the level of EMS preparedness across the country, our capacity levels and the, the ability for us to mount an effective response to a, a, a biologic incident, um, especially with mass, um, you know, mass casualties from a biologic incident, uh, is, is probably not where we want to be currently. Um, there are a lot of reasons for this. Um, the patchwork of EMS services across our country uh, really means that we don't have a national EMS system. Um, we're very, we're, it's actually rare to even have a statewide EMS system. There are only a few states in the country that have a, an integrated and coordinated EMS system in a state. So what we have is a, a patchwork of EMS services across the nation that have different capabilities uh, they don't. They have different scopes of practice. They have different um, uh, resources available, and diff different delivery models. And, and none of those things are really important to the public because the public believes that they're going to get the best treatment no matter what. So, some of the reasons, from my perspective, uh, about our EMS preparedness in the country as it relates to uh, biological events. Is, uh, is one, we have difficulty having capacity. Um, if, you, uh, if you look at the funding model for EMS across the country, it's based on reimbursement. It's a reimbursement-based funding model that does not fund preparedness. So we're, we have to provide the service in advance um, to, to be reimbursed often for less than what it costs us to provide the service um, on, on the back end. And the problem with that is that it, it provides a disincentive for capacity because anything beyond what you would normally have at your margin is considered waste in that, in that uh, funding model. And, um, and part of that is that EMS providers are considered suppliers of health care under the Social Security Act. And so all, all that we can actually bill for is patient transport. Uh, and be reimbursed for transporting a patient from point A to point B. Um, that relegates EMS, which is a critical response um, discipline among public safety response, relegates it to really a commodity. Um, that, and, it, and that's reflected in, in federal EMS doctrine uh, as, it, you know, as it relates to preparedness doctrine. Um, EMS is really a transport asset and, and nothing more. Um, if you look across the core capabilities in the National Preparedness Goal, you also see that EMS is really, um, there are only a couple uh, 
of uh, the core capabilities in that in that document that even relate to EMS, and it's out of it's pre-hospital triage and patient transport, and that that's really it. And I, I, having been in EMS for almost 30 years now, we do a lot more than that, and and I think we it, the undefined capabilities really hinder our progress. Um, we provide a lot, we bring a lot more to the table in biosurveillance, which was another, you know, another thing that was addressed heavily in the study panel uh, report. Um, if EMS were able, if we were able to leverage EMS data as um, the demonstration project, the National uh, Collaborative for Biopreparedness, um, that's, a, that's an, actually an, a potential early warning system for some of the things that we would be most concerned about. Um, we, uh, I agree completely with Rich about the importance of including the whole of community and the public in these things. And one of the struggles I think we have uh, in terms of public preparedness is that it's it's difficult to have the conversation about this is what this is about how much preparedness you paid for, um, and the, no one wants to have that conversation. Uh, particularly an elected official um, wants to say, you know, this is, you, you didn't pay for that much preparedness, you only paid for this much preparedness. And, and that's a difficult thing. And I think w going back to the, the trust that's involved in the services we provide, we have to have that honest conversation with people. And, uh, and I applaud the, you know, the outlining of the, the threat. And I think it's important that we, um, as we kind of talk about where do we go from here, we need to have those honest conversations with the public about how, uh, you know, not everybody's going to get the level of care that they expect um, on a daily basis, and much less in a, in a crisis situation. And, and I think, that I don't mean to be a, a completely a, a dark rain cloud, because I think we're, we have a few things that we're heading in a good direction. Um, I think uh, the, the healthcare coalitions are, are a potential avenue for some of the success that I think we are all hoping for. Uh, but those efforts are nascent and, they, and they're not funded, and uh, for, particularly on the EMS side. They're not funded to the level necessary to really um, make things you know, as, as uh, robust as we would like. And as my friend Dave Marcosi likes to say, you can't grant yourself to preparedness. Um, we have to hardwire this, these. It has to become important to the public um, for us to have the right attention on it. And I agree with Rich about the, you know, about um, starting in the schools. Let's have those honest conversations uh, among children that will take them home to their parents, much like we did with seatbelts and smoking. Okay, thank so you. So I appreciate the opportunity, Mr. Mayor. Hello. Yeah, works great. Well, first of all, just thank you. It's, uh, it's an honor to be a part of this panel, and uh, thank you for your public service. Um, timing, I'm also grateful for the timing, as if I was not here, I would be on the PM operation at the airport with snow removal operations, so it's a much nicer weather down here. Um, so today I wanted to briefly talk about how at CLT we work to provide public access um, to, to bleeding control resources and how that model could possibly cross over to create a more robust biodefense program. Um, several years ago, I had the opportunity through the Harvard MPLI program to work on a project um, to further the Stop the Bleed initiative. 
um, worked closely with Rich Serino on this project. Um, and as some of you may know, the initiative was really aimed at empowering bystanders to actually do something, be by-doers, um, that no one should die from uncontrolled bleeding given the fact that the resources are available. Um, and, and I see a lot of crossover with a lot of other programs on how we can increase survivability by just providing those simple resources, building some resilience into the organizations, you know, limiting the amount of disruptions that can take place by providing these resources. So the goal was to roll this program out at CLT. Um, and just to give you a quick snapshot, um, CLT, we are a former U.S. Airways hub, now American. Um, their second largest hub and we're, we go back and forth between the fifth and sixth busiest airport in the world in terms of takeoffs and landings, so in terms of operations. So the, the audience that we see on a daily basis is 120,000 plus. It's, it's not Atlanta, um, but we're proud of what we can get through the airport and keep the power on, knock on wood. Um, <clears throat> but over 45 million passengers travel through that airport. So as we began to think about how we could further this project and this initiative, um, it, it was really creating this muscle memory as people begin to see these resources, and I'll talk a, in a few minutes about how we co-located them, but to have a, a, an audience that only facilities that have mass populations can create. So what we did <clears throat> at CLT is we worked closely with our executive leadership team and our local medical director to really identify the contents. Um, we had some documentation to refer to, the Hartford Consensus, and we worked closely um, with Rich and his team as we went through this and, and selected, you know, the contents, tourniquets and quick clot, you know, personal protective equipment, and we also created a quick reference guide um, that could be utilized for that. So we co-located these with AED cabinets, and at CLT we've got 16 cabinets, and in each cabinet there are 10 bleeding control kits. We also co-located those at the um, TSA checkpoints, at the screening checkpoints. Um, and these are all alarmed and monitored um, so we can see any time that they're activated, training was provided. But, you know, we're trying to reach the passenger, so we needed to tie into that an educational component. So what we did, um, you know, working with the Stop the Bleed team, we had the logo on the actual cabinets, and we actually had the AEDs marked up as well that they contained bleeding control kits, but we, we worked to create a poster that said, if you see something, do something. And that's basically out of the compendium document. But we had a place where someone could read it if they saw bleeding control kit. What is this about? As they're you know, connecting through the airport, they can get a little information. And there, and there was a QR code that we had on there where someone could come up, scan the phone, or scan the QR code and get some more information um, for the document. From a resource standpoint, with the exception of the hemostatic dressings, the contents were very inexpensive. And we worked with a vendor closely to get the, the right supplies that we needed for that. And this October will mark three years um, that we've had those kits in the airport. And since then, we have seen a lot of under other industries accepting you know, this and moving forward, Gillette Stadium and a number of other airports, Denver Airport as well. And you know, these are inspected monthly. But you know, a lot of time, I think when the initiative started, it was around mass casualty incidents, but all too common, someone could be injured on the ramp, you know, in, a, in an incident with ground support equipment and may need those resources as well. So some of the challenges we faced that I think may cross over as we talk about, you know, 
using public access to biodefense products, you know, we worked closely in this scenario with the medical director and there was some hesitation with the approval of using hemostatic dressings in these kits um, that the public may not have knowledge of. But, you know, trust seems to be the theme that keeps coming up, in, you know, in the first couple panels. And we had built strong relationships um, with our medical director and our public health care providers so that as we brought this initiative to them and, and they saw the effort that had been put into it, they adopted it fairly quickly. And, I, you know, I think John Maxwell said it best, you know, it takes someone to buy into you before they buy into your vision. So you got to build that trust up front. And I think a lot of these things go a lot smoother. Um, you know, the biggest challenge I see is how do we increase awareness and visibility? We need that industry acceptance and incorporation into other training programs such as CPR and AED that's offered. Um, and to begin to build that muscle memory so it's as common as stop, drop, and roll. When you see the Stop the Bleed logo or when you see a fire extinguisher, you know what to do. And so I think it then becomes incumbent upon <clears throat> facility owners and operators. They have a responsibility um, to protect our populations pro by providing access um, to those needed resources that could be used in an incident where the public could have access. You know, we have building co codes on how many exits and fire suppression, um, emergency alerting systems, but how do we incorporate these programs into facilities that experience large populations? Um, you know, and part of the research, epinephrine is now provided through allergy stations at some facilities. So how do we create this medical portal that are, that are in these facilities that carry a number of different things from AEDs to epinephrine to bleeding control kits, and how do we really push that. So that's, I can see a lot of crossover for how our model at CLT may be able to cross over into how you could provide access to the public in a bioterrorism. Thank you very much. Do you want to start with a question? Yeah, I, uh, uh, let me uh, uh, start. You actually uh, had experience at the State Department in Ebola because yes. you did the coordination yes. for the State Department during the Ebola. What did you learn out of that experience? Yes, yeah, so I served as the senior advisor to the Ebola coordinator at the State Department. Um, the major lesson in that um, actually happened, I would say, in the first month or so of the response where the roles and responsibilities were very unclear. Um, USAID has always had the operational um, responsibility for disaster response, but does not have public health response capabilities and so there was a lot of um, there was a lot of uncertainty as to who should take the lead and what that should look like um, and from the State Department's perspective that really hindered how we engaged the WHO and other actors and the private sector um, in the response and so one of my, my greatest takeaways um, from from my time at the State Department um, was really around thinking through that incident command and thinking about how you merge capabilities and, and understanding how USAID and the CDC had to work together mm -hmm. um, to do that and how from that, um, that challenge of, of just not being clear in ro roles and responsibilities, our ability to engage with the WHO was severely lagged. Mm -hmm. And we picked up some of that in the hearings that we had about the coordination at the national uh, level. Yes. Um, Chief Robinson, 
Um, I think one of the points you were really making is EMS is part of the health team and it has to be seen as more than a, just a transport because you have specialized training and you've got to be an integral part but seen as, as part of the health, uh, the health team. Is that correct? It's correct. Uh, EMS is an interesting animal in that, and I think one of the strengths we have is our ability to translate, to be mm -hmm. translators and connectors, um, because we, we're really part of, we're part of the public safety response, um, along with our partners in police and fire, mm -hmm. um, but we're also part of the healthcare system, and mm -hmm. we cross over public health and then the medical system too, where we actually coordinate, as Rich used in the example from the Boston Marathon bombings, are, we're sort of caretakers of the broader hospital systems as well, because mm -hmm. if we took everybody to the hospital, every time someone enacted 911 call, if we took them to the hospital, we could bury every hospital in, in a community quickly. So one of our capabilities is really determining who's a patient, mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, equitably distributing those patients in, in a mass casualty event. So uh, I think we do, we, we are part of the healthcare system for certain, but we also have public safety responsibilities as well. Is your scope of practice under the jurisdiction of the state? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yep. So, and it varies from state to state. Mm -hmm. um, you wanna talk about that a little since you're also sure. gonna head the national organization. Uh, well, yes. it's, uh, and there is a national scope of practice document mm -hmm. that's owned by the Department of Transportation and the NHTSA Office of EMS. Um, and that has sort of the bare minimum. And then, you know, and, but states, and most states have adopted that mm -hmm. uh, as their minimum standard. But, but it, in, in my state, for example, um, you could have a different scope of practice beyond that minimum it could be widely different if you cross the street from one jurisdictional boundary to another. and, and Within it, the same state? Correct. Because local governments put a restraint on it? And, well, in my state, the individual medical director can determine, the state defines what, what acts are allowed for mm -hmm. paramedics. Um, in my state, you can, you, know, you can apply for a waiver to do more beyond that base scope of practice but but at that beyond that minimum level it could be widely varying uh, you know from one community to another based on the local EMS medical director mm -hmm. um, and uh, mr. Minot um, tell me what's in the kit does it, what does the kit do that would help us on a biological event well, I don't, I don't think so much what's in the Stop the Bleed kit would necessarily yeah. help, but I think that model could be transferred over to if you had a resource that needed to be deployed during a biological event, that mm -hmm. that could be incorporated into these areas where you have co-location of other things that are publicly accessible. Mm -hmm. I think that's where I see the synergy in that. Mm -hmm. Do you, you know, some countries that you go into uh, do an imagery that, tries to detect, uh, um, I guess, um, body temperature, body temperature mm -hmm. and things like that. But we don't do that at our airports. Do you see? Well, for a period um, of time, they did that in customs yeah. and immigration. Yeah. Um, during but we don't do it? it for local transportation. No, That's correct. Yeah. We do not. So that the spreading of, possibly the spreading of an infectious disease from one local 
trip to another. Um, we don't have the technology. Do you see technology in the future that would not hold up our trips, but would give us um, another way of measuring yeah. um, or, or making a diagnosis quicker? Right. I mean, I think there's, I think airports have come a long ways, but from an innovation standpoint, um, and, and with regards to safety and security, we have a long ways to go, and there's a <laughs> lot of technology that could be assisted with that. With, with not only that, but with just the screening of passengers and creating a more efficient process. Mm -hmm. You could find out whether I'm carrying a gun. You can't find out whether I'm carrying disease. Right, yeah. right. Yes, ma'am. And the question is, you're in the biotech industry, whether there's something in the future that would be able to detect whether I'm carrying a disease. No. <clears throat> I don't know. Just, I was thinking about you know, everybody in the world has one of these, it seems. I mean, mm -hmm. I was in Egypt, saw a guy riding a mule talking on a smartphone. I think <laughs> it was great. Um, I'm just was wondering if, if, if there's some way that this could uh, end up sending information. Um, it'd be tricky to do, but uh, even if you had some kind of an app where... Um, well, they got my thumbprint. Right. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> there is some technology out there, and I can't... I, I, think, I want to say it's the Israeli airport that... Art is a big thing at airports. Um, you know, you're traveling through an airport, so it, it, calm, it has a calming effect. But they have this area that you, as you walk through, you're looking at the art, but it's what it's doing that you can't see is it's doing facial recognition. It's running you through databases. It's looking at a lot of things. So maybe you could incorporate some of those same aspects, you know, into. Then the question you know. is, if you found it, what would you do what with it? What would you do? <laughs> That's right. So you there always have to, have to think ahead. There is a discussion about using telehealth um, in preparedness and being able to leverage some of the existing technology. Um, SureScripts and AllScripts, for example, that have patient um, data are able to release that data um, when they actually did it during Harvey and Irma so that patients have access. Um, but the next kind of phase of that conversation now is how can we use technology like Samsung Health and Apple Health that allow patients to record their own um, data, their heart rates, their, their body temperatures, and put that into some sort of interface where there can be some screening and monitoring. Mm -hmm. So those conversations are starting, but they are very nascent. Yeah, from Jimmy's point of view, he's got to figure out a way to use it that doesn't delay so that I don't right. get irritated as I'm running through his airport. Right. Yeah, it, it needs to almost I've be never a, gotten irritated uh, running through your airport, I want to assure you. <laughs> Give me my card. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Masha, do you have questions? Um, go ahead. Sister. Okay. Um, so, Nicolette, so um, my understanding of, of Health Ready is that you're very well prepared and, and equipped to um, fill in when the sub natural supply chain um, falls apart in a disaster like in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. um, but if there were, and, and <clears throat> so if somebody needs their insulin, you know, particularly as you mentioned, the, the two or three days time you can do without various kinds of medicines, and, and that's a fabulous um, resource. But what about if um, there was a, a virulent strain of, uh, a, of a virus, particularly contagious one, and a rapidly evolving uh, um, incident, and, and what needed to happen is you know, something that you don't normally mm -hmm. uh, carry, uh, a countermeasure, Tamiflu, whatever it might be. Does, is, are you prepared to, to be part of the solution in that situation? 
So we are prepared to respond to, um, to bio threats. Um, our role and where we fit into the coordination would be different, um, but we've done it before. We've responded to H1N1, Ebola, um, and we'd be prepared for a future event. Um, the way in which we would engage um, the normal supply chain would be different. Um, it, there would be questions around, for example, we talk about scope of practice. Pharmacy scope of practice is something that we think about quite a bit. And so um, being able to work um, across um, impacted states to make sure that the pharmacist scope of practice are expanded during that disaster so that mm -hmm. pharmacists can administer countermeasures is a big part of what we would do. Um, also making sure that the supply chain is able to, the distributors especially, are able to support with the distribution of the countermeasures that need to be deployed. Um, and then also backing up the SNS and working with the SNS team on any additional support and coordination with the private sector that needs to happen. Um, another part of what we tend to do is also an education of healthcare care professionals, so thinking about those providers, including pharmacists that need guidance, making sure that there's harmonized guidance that's coming from the CDC that is translated and usable for pharmacists and other providers um, is, is something that we've done during H1N1 and Ebola as well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, Mr. Robinson, uh, I think you referred to the big day, yeah. being prepared for the big day. So if, if the big day, big day happened in Denver, and there was, as I just described, a, uh, an, a, an unpredicted virus that became, you know, was very contagious, and all of a sudden the hospital started seeing very sick patients. How prepared is Denver? What would, ha what would happen? I would love to lie to you and say that we got that thing licked, but, but we don't. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it, these are interesting ones because they're much more insidious in onset. And, and they kind of, and because of that, they complicate the normal kind of incident management structures. And, and I think in my experience, I've seen some uh, less, less than a coordinated effort between the public health and emergency management communities. And again, that kind of goes back to our role as potential translators for those, those two things. Um, but what would happen in Denver it, typically is uh, it, I, I'm fortunate that I'm part of an integrated health system. So um, we're a health and hospital authority. Um, and so public health and EMS and the hospital and community health centers and school-based clinics are all under the same umbrella, um, which, which helps to integrate data, helps to integrate effort helps to track patients um, so for us that that would those would all be benefits how what we would see typically is um, we would start seeing an increase in hospital admissions for patients with symptoms that public health would through their syndromic surveillance would be aware of those things and then we would they would communicate that to us we would um, through the health alert network and or other mechanisms um, so that we would know about that. And I think where it gets complicated is when, you know, it's all about the context and the scope. And so when, when you start having people dying, the conversations become very different at that point. And I think um, the problems of the incident management issues get, get a lot fuzzier too because uh, I think Rich said, you know, the, the people who are making the decisions at that point are elected officials. And, and while, you know, normally you might tap your ESF-8 lead as the public health person, you know, as the lead or the incident commander, quote, unquote, um, 
when people start dying, it, it immediately becomes a regional problem, not just a jurisdictional problem. And I think um, that's, that is probably one of the areas of opportunity that I see that is the greatest, that when, um, when one community tries to handle something that's biologic on their own, it, the wheels will definitely fall off. Because it, as soon as that recognition happens, it has to be a completely regional, and that's where the information flow from ground level up to the federal government has to happen expeditiously. Because when people start getting on airplanes, we have, you know, automatically the scope of that thing grows inst <coughs> instantly. And, uh, and, and I see that that's what would, that would happen. Uh, I think, I think we're pretty good at communicating um, across all those folks, but as far as managing that, depend, mm -hmm. it dep would depend on the scope. We do our advocacy work at the, at the federal level almost entirely. Um, can you think of, of uh, things that, that the federal government could do, whether it required legislation or just executive action, that would better prepare a city like Denver to, be, to deal with an issue like that? I think from an EMS perspective, one of the biggest gaps we have, and it's, it's analogous to the recommendations in the report, mm -hmm. is we have a diffusion of leadership. So at the federal level, there is nobody responsible or accountable for emergency medical services. There is no lead federal agency for EMS. There's no belly button for policy entry, and there's no fiscal agent. So, and, or targeted funding for EMS capacity building. So having somebody accountable and responsible that has appropriate funding for the mission would be, you know, a panacea from my perspective. I mean, we don't have any of that stuff currently. Um, I think taking a look at the, um, the payment model, the preparedness funding model, and the pay for, uh, you know, take maybe cracking open the, the Social Security Act and, and changing us from a supplier of healthcare to a provider type is another way of in incorporating EMS personnel into the solutions mm -hmm. for sure. And then, um, and I, I think we have some work to do on our own about identifying what are our realistic capabilities so that we can include them in, you know, the national preparedness goal. And then once you include them as capabilities, you can start training, equipping, funding, you know, planning and those, uh, the poetic cycle of things to, you know, mm -hmm. to try to get us up to a particular level. Thank you. So, Mr. Minot, um, I'm intrigued by the, the, this question that the Secretary raised about uh, the, 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 the ability to detect body temperature. Um, because there have been times when, when it, it seemed like a perfect tool to be able to, as somebody coming, particularly coming from another country, I think that was, it was really designed to identify people bringing um, disease into our country. But um, I, I'm, I'm, what I'm thinking is that it, it's unfortunate, but I don't know if it could be retrofitted, but you know, everybody who goes to an airport goes through either the, the old-fashioned or the new-fashioned um, you know, screening. And the new fashion one is you know, pretty darn um, invasive. Having said that, n none of them I mean, have the capacity to pick up temperature, body temperature. And if they did, um, any airport would immediately start to see, not it, it wouldn't necessarily be the case that you'd be stopping anybody, right? But if, uh, if an, a particular airport saw, you know, 25 people came through here in the last hour with very high level temperatures, something's going on around here, 
right? That would be incredible information, and it would be easy to gather it in, many, in every airport in the country. Um, has anybody ever looked into uh, retrofitting the screening devices at airports with that kind of technology? You know, some of the technology I've looked at, um, and I don't know how accurate, I'm not a, a subject matter expert on this, but with the CCTV and FLIR, you know, you can start to distinguish some heat differences, and I don't know how closely that could get to begin to measure what we're looking at, but I'm sure, I mean, every airport or every CADEX airport, you know, the 28 or 29 largest airports in the U.S. have very comprehensive CCTV systems at the screening checkpoint, you know, for obvious reasons. So being, I think if you retrofitted that component, that we could get there a lot quicker. And then it's kind of, it is behind the scenes to the passenger. And we talk about risk-based assessments a lot at airports, um, and we make a lot of those. But a lot of times we're just looking at it from the security perspective. I mean, like you said, this is a safety you know, issue as well. There may be no ill intent, but make that part of it. There's an anomaly, and instead of, you know, a device or a gun or an IED, this, it's, it's a temperature, you know, reading and pull them to the side and ask them a series of questions. You know, so I, I think there's, you get the right group behind it and the right policy. I think there's a lot of opportunity. Yeah. I'm more interested as a public health person in the pattern. If there are a large number of people during a certain time of the year going through who have high body temperatures, we may be measuring measuring uh, a flu epidemic, for example, as opposed to stopping an individual. Right, that's what, that's what I have right. in mind. And, and I guess it gets into some of the privacy issues is you're collecting this data, how long can you store it, what can it be used for, because a lot of airports have wait time technology where they're right. storing, you know, the, um, the ID from the phone as it communicates with different systems in the airport so that you can measure efficiency and you can measure how often someone goes to a concession or, you know, you can measure a lot of different things. So we're collecting this data, so why not add that, you know, as well. Without perhaps identifiers. Right. Yeah. That could be that we can get away with it if we don't have identifiers. Right. Right. Um, but we're just looking for patterns that will allow us to capture yeah. or move more quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. So I have some questions for everybody. Um, Nicolette. You mentioned uh, earlier that uh, FEMA and uh, HHS, I believe the ASPR, mm -hmm. um, uh, take advantage of the data that Healthcare Ready provides, yes. uh, particularly during emergencies, mm -hmm. uh, obviously. Do they uh, pay for that uh, data, or are we providing that data free of charge as of now? Um, they do not pay for the data. We are providing it free of charge. Um, we, as an organization, um, donate certain services to the, the general public. Um, to be frank, we were not um, fully aware of the extent of the use of the data mm -hmm. um, up until um, a few activations ago. Um, but at this point, we are not paid for it. Okay. I only bring it up because I know about a healthcare ready I serve on the board in uh, full disclosure. And um, uh, for a small organization mm -hmm. that uh, has its difficulties with obtaining donations, et cetera, mm -hmm. um, it seems that the data is being provided to some pretty gigantic organizations. Yes. Not to say that everybody's you know loaded, but at the same time, this sort of pharmacy information is very important to them. If they're putting it up on screens and showing it to the secretary and to right. the administrator, uh, there's probably a partnership there to be had in terms of sharing some costs. 
Absolutely. And um, we are under data sharing agreements um, in order to have the coverage that we have. Mm -hmm. And it actually took us years to be able to um, get the system up and running because of the nature of the data sharing agreements that we had to establish. Mm -hmm. um, so at this point, we have about 95% coverage of all pharmacies across the U.S., including all of the major chains. Mm -hmm. um, and so we know that this is difficult, um, you know, to say the least, but um, that has been um, an ongoing discussion, frankly, because organizations like ours um, are extremely stretched during major activations. And so the activation um, for hurricane season, for example, where most of the issues were public health issues mm -hmm. and having an understanding of the healthcare infrastructure and the status of that infrastructure was critical. Mm -hmm. um, but for a small organization like ours, um, that was a large portion of our expense for the year. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, James, one of the things we, we learned uh, on the panel recently is that in some parts of the United States, EMS is actually uh, part of the Department of Health, and not only part of the Department of Health, it is in fact uh, public health uh, and responsible for delivering health care, uh, so public health and health care. So they're going out to the rural areas and delivering health care, uh, never mind the part about actually bringing somebody to, uh, uh, to a hospital. Um, but that's an interesting, but that is an interesting model. Obviously, it doesn't occur uh, everywhere. But if that's the case, um, it seems like there's a separation. Then um, uh, you mentioned, you know, EMS is this bridge to everybody, but at the same time, it seems to be a, a member of a number of different communities. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, not really um, being part of the uh, the standard funding mechanism. Um, so, you know, for public health, it, it, it rarely is there a line that says this is what we're giving to EMS. Uh, for health care, you know, the hospital budget does not necessarily have a line that says here's, here's what we're doing right. for EMS. Is that correct? That from, is correct. From what you understand? Okay. Yeah. And if I can just expand on that a little bit. The, you know, the, I think what you're talking about is the community paramedicine or mobile integrated health mm -hmm. kind of provisions. Uh, of care um, that EMS, some EMS agencies are taking on. The problem with that is typically anything, again, it goes back to our classification as suppliers of health care under the Social Security Act. Mm -hmm. You can't be reimbursed for that care from CMS. So some private insurers are, are paying for those services, um, but there is a provision to pay for that through federal health care payment mechanisms currently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I think whether or not that'll change, uh, I think if it did, it would open up a lot of opportunities for us to, to do more interesting things, and especially in this, this discussion, mm -hmm. um, and be reimbursed for them. Well, as, and uh, what, what I think is a challenge, and something for, the, for us on the panel, to, to, or them on the panel, and me as the staff for the panel, to figure out, is if EMS is currently under the Department of Transportation, you know, in terms of its limited policy uh, uh, and fiscal um, mm -hmm. contribution and support, right? What you're talking about is CMS and affecting CMS, which is part of HHS. Um, so increasing a reimbursement or getting a reclassification of EMS to become um, healthcare providers 
such that you could get reimbursement under HHS. While it's really, as far as the federal government is concerned, over here under Department of Transportation, is I think it, that's a that's a bridge too far. I think that if 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 we're going to do that, and it makes sense in terms of the healthcare perspective, then we have to have some sort of switch from DOT to to HHS. Good luck. Yeah. Well, but but, but um, <coughs> HHS now through Medicaid, for instance, reimburses school districts on special mm -hmm. education. So it's not unusual okay. for <coughs> CMS uh, to reimburse people that aren't Council. under its uh, specific jurisdiction. So it's a matter of finding a rabbi. Uh, yeah, a leader in Congress. To, well, I was not just necessarily gonna... Jewish, but a leader in Congress to. Uh, well, I was just um, going to take ask the responsibility, question. but to take that responsibility <laughs> and to raise the issue mm -hmm. and to get before the health committees. Mm -hmm. yeah. Who who is who is the uh, uh, the champion or champions on in Congress for EMS? A number of them, actually. There is an EMS <laughs> caucus in yeah. in Congress. I I think the 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 unfortunately the delivery model becomes too much of an issue. Mm -hmm. So, and, and this is a problem with they have not to absorb the cost. Well, no, it's it, I mean each community. So the development of EMS historically has been community centric. Each community picks their delivery model and <clears> their <throat> you know what what they how they want to deliver those services to the people within that community, and and it, it's become too much of of a. a divisive issue the delivery model whether that's provided by a public health agency or a public safety agency no. uh, the fire department or the police department and the parochial interests among those different provider mm -hmm. model types um, tend to cloud the issues of of the actual discipline of yeah. EMS yeah we might have a chance to ask David Zambrana from uh, Jackson about the EMS model here yes. in this community yeah um, can i just ask one yeah. last question um jimmy <clears throat> to um to forward well we would call it forward deploy but to, i guess to distribute the um the bleeding control kits uh, even the defibrillators and that sort of thing um i would imagine your leadership there had to be convinced that you know, somebody could have a heart attack in the hallway. I guess we'd better put a defibrillator there. Somebody could bleed somewhere, so we'd better. Um, was there any difficulty, or at what point in, do you think leadership became convinced of um, the possibility of an event occurring inside the uh, inside the airport, such that it would be useful um, to to have this equipment, you know, spread right. uh, these resources spread out. Um, I would imagine, in fact, the opposite, right? If if they didn't believe it, then they would say, Jimmy, we've got other things to put our money right. into. What are we... Right. Yeah, I think uh, two things, I guess. A, a lot of that road had been paved through the Hartford consensus documents and a lot of good documentation and information out there on the importance of, you know, controlling, you know, hemorrhaging, uncontrolled mm -hmm. hemorrhaging. Um, and I think also just looking at what's happened at airports especially over the past few years lax where you know tsa lost an individual um right. you know I, there's no way i would speculate that had there been a bleeding control kit that person may have lived um but those things happen and if you had the resources um you know when law enforcement responds to an active shooter they're stepping over people bleeding to death to get to the shooter mm -hmm. to handle that so who knows how long that that area that you're there to fend for yourself. I mean, it, yeah. and, and so I think as we 
brought that compelling argument um, and that compelling information to our team that it was clear that we, we should move on this and we should be one of the first you know, to move on this. Uh, like I spoke before, we, had a po we have a population traveling through the airport of over 100,000 daily. So what better way to try to start to get this muscle memory, this information out there mm -hmm. than communicating it through that. So. Yeah, yeah. That's it for me. Break? Okay. Break. Thank you. Break. We're going to take a 15-minute break. If the three of you will come up, because I think we want to do a photo. All right, uh, we will resume, and our next panel is entitled Hospital Preparedness and Response. We have uh, David Zambrana, who's a Senior Vice President and CEO of the Jackson Memorial Hospital. David Marcosi, uh, Dr. David Marcosi, is an Associate Professor of the School of Medicine, University of Maryland. We have Dr. Alexander Isakoff, who's the Executive Director of the Office of Critical Event Preparedness and Response at Emory University. Welcome to the three of you gentlemen, and thank you so much for coming and being with us. And why don't you, um, if you'd like to... Well, now, David just got his PhD, so we better call him Dr. Trump. Oh. <laughs> Congratulations. Actually, I noticed I was making that mistake as I did it, but I figured, I hope nobody heard it. Um, so why don't you each take a couple of minutes to just introduce yourself in a little bit more than what I, how I introduced you. Sure. Um, so I'm Alex Isaacoff from Emory University in Atlanta. Um, part of my introduction was to say, um, you know, after service in the Navy as a medical officer, I really, the rest of my career, have focused on being the local guy. So I'm an emergency medicine physician. I'm an EMS physician. Um, I'm uh, the executive director of our Office of Critical Event Preparedness and Response, which gives me a great opportunity to interact with leaders at our university and locally on, on how best to be prepared for all hazards, including a, a bio threat. Um, I'd say m most of my focus has been trying to develop best practices locally that work to serve our community. Mm -hmm. But then as an academician at an academic health center, uh, to uh, provide education and training for those that would have it on these best practices that you know, we identify, and to as broadly as we can disseminate them you know, for the benefit of others. And so um, I think that's, that's largely uh, how I'm engaged here. I think the, what qualifies maybe me to sit with you know, my esteemed colleagues is our unique experience that we had at Emory University Hospital with the management of uh, patients with Ebola virus disease and um, what preparedness uh, we had in place to manage those patients and how we helped our federal partners and state partners disseminate those best practices for other health systems to replicate. Okay. Thank you for the invitation. Again, thank you for having me. I'm a nurse by training, so um, it, I bring a unique perspective to healthcare leadership. I'm specifically at Jackson. We're the third largest public health system in the country. Um, so not only looking at what is our responsibility to the underserved um, and, and anyone who presents to our doors without their ability to pay, but also we have the great responsibility of training over 1,200 house staff and residents across all of the academic programs. 
Um, we have a long-standing relationship, 50-plus years, with the University of Miami, in this case, the Miller School of Medicine, um, and under Dr. Shalala's um, leadership at the university, um, you know, buying their acute care hospital and how we partnered um, with then UM um, to, to continue to provide services in our region. So proud to be here, and thank you. Good morning. Dave Marcosi coming from the University of Maryland School of Medicine. I'm an emergency medicine physician there. I'm their director of population health. I also serve as the assistant chief medical officer for the medical center. I look at the perspectives of both internally how we're working as a hospital and then externally how we look at supporting health outside the walls of a hospital. So I think my remarks will be couched under that. In addition, I previously served 10 years in government. I was in uh, the Congress and uh, helped uh, draft uh, as a fellow of the original Pandemic and All-Hazard Preparedness Act, and then transitioned to the executive side of government where I worked inside Department of Health and Human Services in the White House under Presidents Bush and Obama, uh, and then recently transitioned out and now full, I'm a full-time academician. So look forward to the comments this morning. Thank you. Okay, you're, you have opening statements? <coughs> Who's first? I'm happy to take it. <coughs> so. As it regards a bio threat or a, uh, a community disaster, you all know there are many lenses by which that can be viewed, a federal lens, a state public health preparedness lens, and then the local lens. And through my um, introduction, I've held myself out as, as the local guy. And so I'm going to give you uh, my local perspective on a number of issues, some historical and some current and relevant. Um, and then, you know, forgive me if from a local perspective, I have a differing opinion from uh, from others about what happens at the federal level or maybe even at the state level, but it's the local perspective that I'm trying to share. So first let me start with something that you probably all are familiar with and was also part of my history in, in healthcare, and that is the uh, SARS outbreak, that uh, an epidemic that we experienced in 2003. A single index case, as many of you know, came to a Toronto hospital. Single index case resulted in 224 cases of SARS and 38 deaths. In less than two weeks, the emergency department and ICU of that hospital were closed. The clinics of that hospital were closed, and the hospital was closed to further admissions. Pretty dramatic. As a local guy, um, I'm interested in knowing, well, how is that possible? What did they learn uh, about why that was able to propagate the way it did? And what they came to conclude was that their emergency department and hospitals were overcrowded. I think it's something we still experience today, overcrowded emergency departments and overcrowded hospitals. Also, they would argue that they had poor policies in place around uh, where patients with respiratory illness are initially assessed in open areas, where aerosol delivery treatments of, let's say, you know, a, a breathing nebulized medication uh, is delivered in open areas, and unrestricted access to visitors. They would view that as uh, procedural and policy mistakes that I think largely, actually, we're still in many places still implementing today. They also argued that, uh, or found that some of the most basic standard infection control precautions, like simple hand washing, just wasn't adhered to by the healthcare workers in that setting. And that, I think, is something that we still struggle with today, and that's troubling to me as a, as a local guy. Um, ten years later, uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, uh, South Korea, outside the Arabian Peninsula, the largest uh, cluster of cases, one index case results in 185 cases, 35 deaths, more than 3,000 people quarantined, over 700 schools closed, significant community disruption as a consequence, and uh, having the opportunity to explore root cause for the uh, propagation of MERS in 
hospitals and the health systems in uh, South Korea, they came to a lot of the same conclusions. Um, overcrowded clinical spaces, policies that, um, uh, that allowed for easy transmission of this, of this communicable disease and uh, poor adherence to standard and transmission-based precautions. Now go to Ebola 2014-2015 outbreak, and uh, I think you'll all agree that many, most, most all U.S. hospitals felt largely ill-prepared for the possibility of an imported Ebola case. And why is that? Um, I think in part because this is a, uh, it's not a novel uh, illness. It's been you know, reported since the 70s, but it certainly is novel for U.S. healthcare workers and U.S. healthcare providers, its health systems. Um, kind of scary, actually, to some, in some regard, maybe because of lack of education around what Ebola is and how it's transmitted among healthcare workers that work, you know, um, in the local setting every day, um, causing severe illness, lack of uh, specific countermeasures, you know, supportive care being the way to manage patients, patients being described as pouring out liters of vomit and diarrhea, all containing high uh, loads of virus that are contagious. Um, case fatality rates reported um, in origin countries as high as 90%. Um, and uh, so pretty scary. Uh, and I think scary in part because of lack of education about Ebola as an illness, recognizing it as something that can be managed and controlled with meticulous impl uh, implementation of um, infection control procedures. Um, but, uh, but unknown. And so there's a gap there, and I think it was a wake-up call uh, for health systems and public health about many gaps that we had in our health system about managing a high-consequence infectious disease. So there were a few academic health centers that were prepared to receive patients. Um, I had the privilege of working at one. Emory University Hospital received uh, patients with confirmed Ebola virus di disease. So did colleagues at University of Nebraska, uh, later uh, NIH clinical uh, unit, and, um, and then beyond that, Bellevue Hospital Systems. Um, why were they able to manage patients and successfully treat them without secondary transmission of the disease? Um, having been part of a 10-year process, um, I'll say it's because there was a modest investment, and these were federal dollars, but a modest investment in the education and training of healthcare workers, the staff, um, an investment in the development of the appropriate guidelines, policies, and procedures that are needed to properly manage those patients without allowing for exposure to healthcare workers and other support staff. Uh, the evolution of a supervisory cadre and leaders in this area uh, for the management of patients with uh, high-consequence infectious disease, adequate quality of personal protective equipment, adequate quantity of PPE, um, lab processes. Uh, you know, it won't come as any surprise to anyone in this room that the core lab isn't quite interested in the blood uh, of a patient that may have Ebola virus disease or is confirmed to have Ebola virus disease. So parallel processes or ad adjunct processes for managing those patients' clinical diagnostics, the tremendous amount of waste that is generated, especially uh, and how it needs to be managed for a Category A agent like Ebola virus disease. Um, challenges for crisis communications by that health system to ensure that the public as well as other patients and staff in the hospital that aren't directly related actually are comfortable with the fact that a hospital in their community is managing a patient with a serious communicable disease. Of course, interface with EMS, public health, and emergency management. That was the investment over 10 years to include exercises and drills and refining of those policies and procedures that allowed a handful of academic health centers to be prepared to manage those patients. I'll use um, uh, Rich Serino's analogy of the Boston Marathon bombing and say it was no mistake 
that the Boston community was able to respond to the Boston Marathon bombings and have a successful outcome. It was a consequence of years of preparation, exercise, drills, and refinement. And I would argue that the modest investment made at an academic health center like mine and a few others in the community, uh, our nation, national community, um, that modest investment also resulted in 10 years of development of policies, procedures, the dissemination of education and training, um, and the, the exercising of those plans and refining of those plans so that you could have a successful program. And that was not prevalent across the U.S. So capability existed to manage a patient with a serious communicable disease, but capacity, which is a completely different issue, did not exist, and I would say still does not exist today. Um, through that modest investment, best practices, policies and procedures, educational modules, training modules, had been developed for the healthcare workers and, and support staff in those health systems. And the good news is, because that modest investment was made, you could, and CDC and others did, use all of that as a model to try and ramp up capacity across the U.S. so that in fairly short order, the CDC argued they had at least 50 to 55 treatment centers available nationwide. Um, not tested, but more capacity being developed as a consequence of those, um, uh, those resources. So are there any solutions to our capacity issue today in the United States, because I would argue that we still, we have health systems now with capabilities, um, but we don't have a national capacity. So as a solution, I would argue that, that our nation needs a serious commitment and adequate funding for a tiered health system approach for high consequence infectious diseases. The public health infrastructure and its preparedness is absolutely vital for management of these high consequences infectious diseases, but public health does not provide direct health care in the U.S., we all know that. And based on my experience at Emory, Federally funded and supported healthcare resources for healthcare crises help to make robust capabilities and help rapidly expand the uh, capacity problem when, when it's needed. And like trauma systems of care, we need systems for managing infectious disease crises that are inclusive of our EMS partners, urgent care and ambulatory care centers, hospitals, and maybe with a focus on EMS and frontline healthcare facilities because they're probably the most vulnerable. I don't know if I need to go into any great detail about what a tiered system and the different levels of providers do, but let me give a brief overview. Why do frontline healthcare facilities need to be identified as such and have to demonstrate certain capabilities? Well, simply because you don't know when the next person with a high consequence infectious disease might walk through your door uh, from either overseas or because it's some emerging infection that's, that's developing in your own community. And so at a minimum, Every frontline healthcare facility needs to be able to identify that person as ha having a risk of potentially uh, uh, transmitting a, a serious communicable disease, a high consequence infectious disease. Um, isolate that individual to protect other staff, you know, render minimum care to stabilize, and then inform the public health community and others that they have an issue so that uh, we can limit uh, unnecessary contact with that patient, limit secondary transmission. Um, and move that patient on to another type of facility, which could be an assessment facility uh, where they have greater capabilities to evaluate that patient, the more PPE on hand to hold them for you know, several days longer, um, an ability to obtain uh, diagnostic samples and send them to a reference lab so that for patients that are under investigation or raise the question of do they have a, highly con a high consequence infectious disease, that patient can then be identified and if necessary, moved to a treatment facility, which has 
far different capabilities in managing a patient with Ebola virus disease that for a single patient might take weeks until they're ready to be discharged back into the community. And this framework is connected by a web of EMS agencies that help from the 911 system and the interfacility transport capability that's necessary and, of course, public health partners. Are we anywhere close to that today? There are investments that have been made. Um, HHS ASPR is working and has been developing over the last two or three years regional treatment centers across its ten regions, and that is a great start. They've funded a national Ebola training and education center, which has developed metrics for uh, treatment centers and assessment centers. They do conduct, they conduct site visits, they provide education and training, they help develop exercise templates which are necessary for exercising these different capabilities. They facilitate research. And then in another house in HHS, NIH, NIEHS and their worker training program is also through its infectious disease training network provided education and training, not just for healthcare providers, but for other professions that might come in contact with an individual that has a serious communicable disease. And all these initiatives are important for improving not just our national, but our local um, disa national disaster resilience to bio-threats. Um, but even this funding, I think we all recognize is episodic, and we need a much more sustained approach and a serious commitment to having a framework for management of patients with serious communicable disease. And so in making recommendations in my closing comments, I would say we need to maintain the programs that have been started to develop the education and training for frontline occupations and for their own for the safety of the worker and for the proficiency of the workers that are providing or performing these critical functions. And you know, also to allude to another thing that Rich Serino said about education, education also contributes to a culture of preparedness, which I think is important in our community, especially when resources are low. We need to provide consistent funding for this tiered health system of care for management of high-consequence infectious diseases and continue to support funding, of course, for health system and public health preparedness, medical countermeasures research, um, so that we have capab uh, capabilities and capacity to manage patients with um, uh, serious communicable diseases. Even modest funding, because we know, you know, you ask for the world, you won't get it, you can't get it, it's not a, it's not a fiscal reality, but even modest funding helps to maintain and further develop a capability and a best understanding about best practices for these issues that can then, if need be, just be distributed in a just-in-time fashion with regards to the education and training, policies and procedures, which of course needs to be mated to a robust um, supply chain for personal protective equipment, uh, medical countermeasures, um, uh, uh, medical supplies that are just necessary even for supportive care. And all of this, I think, is, is of value, not just for national disaster resilience, but at the local and state level, too. So thank you very much for the opportunity to share some thoughts here with the panel. Thank you, sir. My comments might be slightly redundant specific to, to hospital preparedness. A um, little bit about Jackson Health System. Um, six hospitals um, included in the system, um, a seventh in the planning, um, about 65,000 discharges, 600,000 outpatient visits, of which 200,000 are ER or emergency room visits, 4,000 level one trauma alerts. Um, so that's the breadth and scope of, of our system, um, providing about 13% of, of our patient population is indigent or underfunded, um, and 37% um, covered by Medicaid. So that's the focus of the type of demographic of patients we see. Like with any organization, I believe uh, a system like ours, um, our ability to respond to any type of event, as we've been discussing today, is largely based on the scope and the nature of the event. 
we contextualize um, these types of events in two categories. Um, as my colleague pointed out, natural, um, which would be Zika, Ebola. We are very good at hurricane preparedness given our recent system, right, or recent um, season. Um, and then more man-made, which would be weaponized, aerosolized, um, intentional or accidental release of a highly infectious. The differences are important. The natural would be slower occurring um, in most cases, not necessarily all cases, which would allow for more local coordination and certainly deploying guidance um, with regard to effective um, pr personal protective equipment and, and you know, treatment measures. Um, versus the other, which would be very rapid, um, I'm going to say um, rapidly evolving, and the need for local and hospital preparedness to be in its place. Um, as it specifically relates to the hospital's response, there are numerous simultaneous um, priorities, um, and the first one being hardening the organization in a lockdown and centralizing access to the building so that you can channel and protect the in internal operations so that you can continue to provide care to existing patients while you're responding to an event. In a system like ours today, we're at 97% occupancy, so that poses in and of itself some challenges, as you can imagine. There's personal protective equipment, there's care and treatment of the patients as they arrive. You know, should they need diagnostic care, how do you effectively manage, in, in the case that it's necessary, decontamination and transport of these patients within the organization, while not very common, but should that need to occur, how do you do that? And then the flow of information, both with the team engaged in the care of the patients, EMS, um, receiving patients, and then outflow of information to local, um, regional, state, um, federal agencies, and then patients, families, and loved ones, and the panic that ensues with any event, um, making sure that, that we're positioned to do that as well. <coughs> we clearly have limitations, and, and the comparison I often like to make is we have been providing acute level one trauma services in our community for over 26 years. Um, and feel very confident in our ability to deal with any mass casualty situation. Yes, it would drain resources. Yes, it would require positioning if it's large enough of an event. But our teams are training for these events on a daily basis and, more importantly, exercising and refining our capabilities um, as we test and, and truly engage in the care of these patients. That is certainly not the case given the unpredictable nature of a biological event. There's also been deployed and very targeted um, funding um, through either private, public, or grant funding um, for the Im unimaginable horror of trauma, let's say. Um, but while there's been some funding, certainly not enough um, for a biological event um, and our ability to respond in the same way we've been able to and have proven expertise in the case of trauma. In the event of an event, certainly we have, you know, memorandums of, of agreement, let's say, with the Department of Health, with the stockpile, and, and deploying not only personal protective equipment, but, um, you know, emergency medications and, and different um, things of that. But however, we must be prepared as those um, resources would take up to, in some cases, 24 to 48 hours um, to, to deploy to the organization. 
How do we do this? Clearly through drills, and we stay prepared through targeted, um, I'm going to say focus on not only um, personnel. Um, we certainly have a great relationship, like I, I shared during the opening, with the Miller School of Medicine. So an entire division um, around emergency preparedness has been created, where they're engaged in research, learning from colleagues, like we saw with the Ebola crisis. Um, you would be surprised how much we learned from your work, so thank you. Um, and then tabletops. The most important thing, I believe, is certainly staff education um, and the ability to pull in resources of the organization and think past the normal role individuals have on, on the team um, during an emergency or during a disaster, um, you would be surprised how important something like a transporter would be in being able to, to deploy and effectively move patients um, and position the organization to take in um, you know, a, lot additional, a lot of additional patients. There's a viable and consistent chain of command as it relates to hospital, county, region, state um, communication. Where we in this community have an opportunity is in the collaboration among acute care hospitals. There is built disincentive to want to be the first um, to, to really take in some of these uncertain um, patients or situations, given the risk not only to the reputation of the organization, but also the un do scrutiny that most organizations would see in the event um, you know, that, that something goes untoward. Um, so there, there's really an opportunity for greater sharing of protocols, greater collaboration, um, and we believe there's a role for the federal government in creating, um, I'm going to say, um, mechanisms whereby acute care hospitals would collaborate, and, and this should transcend all of, I'm going to say, the competitive um, dynamics that occur in each of the markets. I'm going to close by saying that Orlando and Vegas were able to respond to both very difficult situations, as we saw in both MCIs, um, because of their ability to consistently refine their mechanisms of care for, for these types of patients. In that same way, we need to develop mechanisms um, to deal with the uncertainty that a biological um, threat would face. Thank you. Dr. Marcosi. Good morning again. I'm honored to be here in front of the panel. Uh, my remarks come at this, this challenge with regard to our ability to respond to a biological event uh, slightly differently. As a responder, uh, as a physician, as a provider, and as an administrator in a previously in my policy role in government, uh, I want to take the opportunity to potentially describe where, uh, although there are bright spots in the nation, Emory, Miami, Boston. Um, I also want to describe that I, I think, uh, to start this conversation off, we stand on a very, very fragile shell of preparedness within our nation. And the term preparedness, I think, is challenging us from our approach nationally to bettering how we deliver care during disasters. So with that, let me start by saying, although I'm going to date myself, I'm a fan of Howard Cosell. He used to have a quote, what is popular isn't always right, and what is right isn't always popular. So when I started crafting these remarks, I wanted to provide the Blue Ribbon Panel and its customers, which are largely the federal, our federal colleagues in the Congress and the executive branch, my best perspective on this topic. 
So channeling Howard, I'm gonna tell you like it is, or at least my perspective of what I think where we are as a nation. Events that test our national resilience continue, whether natural or man-made. And it is essential that our healthcare system is ready to respond. In fact, during events of crisis, there's an expectation that the hospital, paramedics, doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, the healthcare system will stand up and be ready to respond. Unfortunately, the patchwork of events that improve our delivery to respond to a large-scale biological event or other disasters is largely disjointed and inadequate. Truthfully, preparedness, particularly healthcare preparedness, is largely a one-off. It is assigned largely to a one person with these or other duties is assigned, and champion preparedness within a healthcare institution or a hospital that largely has to be shifted and pivoted to deliver daily delivery of care to meet the expectations of delivering care during mass casualties. That's the reality. William Deming, the great statistician and engineer, gets credit for this quote. Every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. Before 9-11, our nation embraced the term healthcare preparedness. At, the at this time, this new concept was the, the better ability to deliver care during disasters. The intent was laudable, but unfortunately, I think misdirected. After more than $5 billion in healthcare preparedness investments since 9-11, our nation's hospitals, healthcare systems, and communities are far from prepared to respond. On multiple levels, including congressional oversight, presidential directives, federal guidelines, payment mechanisms, metrics of success, and delivery of healthcare during crisis, these are separate and distinct from how we deliver care today during, quote, normal periods. The consequence of this is a disconnected, inadequate set of training standards, negligible scientific foundation of which we build our guidelines federally and at a state level, no patient-centered quality measures, and little impact on a competitive U.S. healthcare delivery system. Fundamentally, the economics won't get us from where we are to where we need to be. You cannot grant your way to successful healthcare preparedness. It has to be woven within the way we deliver care today right now, intertwined with the care that's delivered right now in emergency departments and hospitals across the nation, and fundamental to how patients think about the delivery of that health care, whether or not they, deliver, they are seeking care for their heart today, or whether or not they're seeking care for their biological exposure tomorrow. In reality, in looking at the American College of Healthcare Executive Survey to CEOs on their priorities, no executives prioritize disaster preparedness for their hospitals. The truth is, is it, it isn't even in their top 10 issues. This is particularly relevant as hospitals grapple with healthcare delivery reform changes and new payment models. Without effective incentives to reprioritize this issue, it is unlikely that any healthcare delivery system will adequately address the lives to save during disasters and particularly during large-scale biologic events. The first, there are two elements to, to what I think about healthcare preparedness or healthcare response during disasters. There are two fundamental elements. One 
is the ability to keep your lights on, staff safe, and the concept is known as continuity of operations. The second is the ability to medical surge. And my colleague from the University of Miami, I'll challenge this audience and I'll challenge all of us around the concept of medical surge. To quote him, he just said, he, we're 97% occupancy rate. So I'd ask all of us in the room, how do you medically surge when most of our hospitals in the nation have the same type of occupancy rate? In truth, I think it's a fallacy. This second element known as medical surge is rooted in the ability of a hospital to expand access and care for victims from a tragedy. <laughs> Unfortunately, this second critical element is fundamentally at odds with healthcare delivery today and the shift from volume to value. Today's healthcare system has limited inpatient capacity and maintaining medical surge on a daily basis results in a decreased return on the investment. That's an untenable position for healthcare delivery systems and hospitals. The lean and just-in-time hospital approach to supplies, to staffing, and to space remains fundamentally at odds with the ability and readiness to deliver care during mass casualties. Additionally, this vague concept of, quote, medical surge delivered through multiple approaches let's stand up more capacity in our cafeteria or let's stand up the tent outside our emergency department is how we do things as a nation. With support from this panel, however, we at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and with additional support from subject matter experts, national subject matter experts, we're hoping to change the scientific approach and assessment to how we think about medical surge. We have developed a methodology that links healthcare data, daily healthcare data, to a score which rates the ability of a hospital to medical surge. Upon conclusion of this analysis, which we anticipate this month, we will have a score for every hospital, every county, and every state in our nation and their ability to, quote, medically surge, based on a per capita basis. Building a firmer base to, of science to objectively assess our ability to care for victims during mass casualties is fundamental and woefully inadequate presently. For this conversation, there is one last element that I want to build on in addition to the ability to keep your lights on and continuity of operations and the ability to medical surge. And that's the need of the healthcare sector to respond to biological events. This complicated issue can't be understated that the risk tolerance for this within our nation needs a complete pivot and redesign of how we think about caring for victims in a potential biological mass casualty event. This is crippling. This is a nuclear detonation without the bang. When I think about a response like this, I anchor in seven questions. Is it contagious? How easily is it transmitted? What is the incubation period? How long is one ill? How many or could be affected? Who are the most vulnerable? And how sick does someone get when exposed to a potential agent? Like a graphic equalizer, increasing each of these parameters increases the scale of the biological event, the scope of the problem, 
and the ability of a, the inability of a hospital, city, county, state, and the nation to respond. Addressing the additional complexities requiring a substantial pivot from our current co construct, building from investments that were made, such as Emory, and modernizing our approach. Challenges include evolving treatment guidance, as we saw in H1N1 or Ebola. Today, here's our PPE guidance. Tomorrow, here's our new PPE guidance. Inadequate PPC adequacy and amount. When we first pushed out guidance from the CDC around PPE, the nation's infrastructure did not have the ability to execute what the guidance was pushed out at the federal level. The inability to, for hospitals to be able to mount a capacity to respond, as we saw, as, we, as my colleague from Emory spoke to. Provider education and the ability to fundamentally treat patients effectively. Layered on top of an already challenged system, disaster response to a large-scale large biologic event would be challenged, and we are not ready. So the, with these fortunate, with, pardon me, with these unfortunate realities square in our thoughts, it's time to take a Prozac because there are potentially some solutions. <laughs> Moving from planning to operations and from operations to outcomes is essential. Linking what we do to whether or not we save patients is where we should be and how we deliver care right now, but fundamentally, it's not how we think about care delivered during disasters. That needs to change. Insurers and the centers of Medicare and Medicaid services have significant ability to positively influence healthcare delivery resiliency. One example was the recently published CMS regulation that established emergency preparedness requirements for participating healthcare providers. These regulations are a step in the right direction, but a small step. The current CMS regulations are incremental, but significant other methods of influence and incentives could and should be utilized to influence better emergency preparedness regulations, understanding, training, fundamental staff stuff, space, and system development than we presently have, such as an emergency preparedness and an emergency care facility-based and regional-based incentive and measures shared savings programs that intertwine concepts of emergency preparedness and emergency care. One such evidence-based measure that I want to put an exclamation point on is the concept of immediate bed availability. I am presently in, a military, uh, in the Army and serve in the United States Special Operations. There are hard requirements that we put on our soldiers and our planners with regard to when we conduct an operation. Immediate bed availability is an ethically designed population health measure that takes into account present-day financial and operational factors and provides a solution to achieve medical surge within a community. It isn't layered on top of how we deliver care. It's woven within how we deliver care. So as our customers are primarily our federal colleagues, I'll end with this and conclude. The reauthorization of PAPA is square in the sights of everyone who thinks about preparedness within the healthcare and public health sector. It's an opportunity to overcome some of the challenges I described 
and the challenges our nation would encounter during a response to a, a large-scale biological event. Concepts such as, as we've heard from Chief Robinson and others, thinking about how emergency care in the pre-hospital space is included within emergency care within the hospital space and better linking them, which requires EMS to become a provider type, is essential because from the patient's perspective, those two are intimately linked. There also requires significant leadership. One leader who gets all of this is Dr. Robert Cadlick. He understands the complexity of public health and healthcare response to emergencies, and as the new Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, I am hopeful that Congress gives him the platform to improve our health resilience and listens to his advice for the PAPA reauthorization. It is 2018, and it's time for impatience. It's time for impatience because we aren't ready. It's time for impatience because we will look back and wish we were better after the event. It is time for impatience because our lack of understanding of how best to respond with limited resources still is woefully inadequate. It is time for impatience because planning is not linked to outcomes. It's time for impatience and it is time for action. It's time to have a goal. It's time to, have a, to design a system to realize that goal that employs resources, training, tactics, and procedures to accomplish that goal, and then measure our progress to achieve that goal. This is long overdue, long overdue. And I look forward to the, the questions of the panel so we can achieve better results as a nation. Thank you. Thank you. I should say, if it wasn't for Bob Catholic, we wouldn't be sitting here. Um, I'll, I'll uh, start. So in, in the early 80s, I, I was a state legislator, and there was a bad car accident in my district, and a woman um, uh, died as a result. And what happened is there was no trauma center in, level one trauma center in my county, and they had to medevac her, and it was, took too much time, and she died. So I looked into the question of, you know, why don't we have a trauma center, and I found out that the health department, Pennsylvania Health Department had tried to designate hospitals as, as, health, as trauma centers and the rest of the hospitals said, oh, no, 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 we don't want to be bypassed. And so it was a, it was a financial matter for them. So we, I passed legislation, we created a trauma centers process in Pennsylvania. And hospitals were willing to invest lots of money in order to be, to be so designated. So they'd build the helipads, they'd uh, hire the personnel and, and all of that. And it was a good business decision for them to do that. What I hear you saying is that the last thing in the world a hospital wants to be is a designated as a place to bring these kinds of patients. And, and if, that's, if I'm correct in hearing that that's the case, um, what, I'm, what I'd like you to tell us is, um, so, the, so the, there's no financial incentive for a hospital to, to prepare for these biological events, I assume. Um, and you said there's reasons for them not to want the, the scrutiny. Um, what would it take to incentivize hospitals to actually want to be so designated? Certainly support in preparation um, and, and allocated funding for not only preparation but the infrastructure required. And I believe that, that we need to stratify preparedness so that every hospital 
plays a role in this um, and everyone shares in the responsibility. So regionalizing, perhaps, you know, uh, hospitals with greater capability and stratifying patients where possible, because these events are, are not, you know, unpredictable. Channeling patients of different acuities to, to match the capabilities so that funding is better, you know, allocated. And the, the constant preparedness, like with trauma centers, can mirror that um, for a biological um, event. Without that level of support, it would be difficult for any hospital in its own or on its own to, to, to take on this mantle, let's say. And is it, is it the case that currently there's no, there's no federal source of dollars to, to accomplish that? That, that is correct. I mean, other than the episodic funding that there's been, right. usually tied to an incident or to a mm -hmm. scare, um, there's really no ongoing plan, um, as my colleagues both have mentioned, um, to, to accomplish this. So Congress decided that they needed to create such a fund. Um, they could do, obviously they could do that, they could figure out some level of appropriations and then uh, have a program by which hospitals could apply for those funds and, and, and be prepared. I think that's certainly a, a possibility as a potential solution to this. I, I think uh, uh, what my colleague said is really important. Um, you know, I think health systems want to serve their community. I know the health system that I work in wants to serve its community. Um, it doesn't want to bite off a mission it can't deliver on. It doesn't want to be the only one in the community that can do this if it doesn't have the resources to actually deliver. So that's, that's an issue. And so that's where I think having a regionalized systems of care is also valuable because any health system that engages then in this endeavor knows it has colleagues from which to share the burden when the call mm -hmm. is really made. Um, I think uh, this in part also goes hand in hand with ensuring that when the resources are made available to provide that education and training, to develop that capability and some capacity at all participating hospitals. The next thing that the, the health executives are going to want to know is that when they deliver care for these patients, that it's actually, they're going to be able to at least recover their costs. Caring for these patients is extremely expensive. It's just, it's a greater uh, workforce burden. It's a greater burden on utilization of available resources. Um, it also is something of a burden on the administrative, you know, leadership team just around uh, proper communications. Of just, it's just one issue, but I could, I could bring my colleague um, uh, Bryce Garland, who is the chief operating officer during the Ebola um, patient management uh, events at Emory University Hospital, and, and he, he, he would share how difficult it was um, to recover the cost for the care of those patients. In some cases successful, um, but not in every case. And while the and focus was on- So I assume that, on, that the individual either has to have private insurance or has to be enrolled in some kind of federal program um, because- Or has to have a sponsor. Pardon me? Or has to have a sponsor. Right. Um, but, but if somebody walks in un, uninsured, there's no way to recover those funds no matter and I would Where say typical look? reimbursement uh, for care delivered in a, you know, in a critical care setting doesn't right. cover the costs of managing a patient, for example, with Ebola virus disease, just the additional resources that are, that are required. And so that's, that's another you know, issue, too. I think healthcare executives would be more comfortable engaging if they knew they could recover their costs, and that's not clear. You know, the anecdote I just would quickly share is that while the nation was focused on Ebola, and it was perhaps easier to identify means to recover costs for the management of an Ebola patient uh, when uh, a, a patient with um, 
another serious communicable disease was transported uh, from Africa and managed in the same health system because there were no appropriations for the management of, of that health condition. Um, it was extremely difficult to recover costs for management of that patient. So it doesn't always come down to all economics, but it certainly plays a large role. Um, and I want to just bring it back to the fact that um, we can supplemental this to death, but supplementals won't get us there. I mean, this is, you heard, Emery, this is a 10-year investment through time, woven within how they deliver care, and then the nation capitalized on all of that time, blood, sweat, tears, and investment to utilize them during a national crisis. Uh, and that is not the perspective across the nation currently. I mean, that is a beacon of, <laughs> of excellence. Um, and and what we would, what I, what might be a, a valuable, certainly the, the hospital preparedness program is about a $225 million program in a $3 trillion industry. That's 0.001% about the, the overall, you're not going to get there economically from where you're, what we anticipate as prepared. It's not going to happen. So you have to take a concept of preparedness and build it within the construct of delivery of care today. Is, is it fair to say that um, building the capacity to handle one of these biological events um, ha has dual use capacities so that the Congress wouldn't think, boy, we're spending all this money for this very unlikely event and at all of these hospitals, um, and the hospitals might think we're using these resources for an, uh, an unlikely event I mean, they, and for any any given hospital it's obviously an unlikely event that they'll utilize them is is it capacity that you could justify for having um, good uses during regular times that's the only sustainable model um, and now I think about it's cake, cake and icing so you need a fundamental cake uh, and then you have places like Emory that is the icing. When you really have the specialized, super squirrely thing that you need help with, you call Emory. But otherwise, th right now, we, we're trying to, you're, we're talking about the cake and building, but there's no, pardon me, you're talking about the ice, but there's no cake. Uh, uh, one of my colleagues said, oh, I'll tell you what kind of cake it is, um, and which I wouldn't repeat in an open forum. Uh, so, um, so fundamentally, I think that there's, 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 a, there's a give and take here. There has to be investment and woven within how we deliver care today and then those places that are get specific funding and potentially through grants for that becomes the centers of excellence. One more question for me. So on the topic of hospital surge, I'm not sure I've heard the answer here. Um, if, if hospitals are high 90s in, in terms of uh, beds filled um, and you, you know, sort of jokingly talked about tents and cafeterias, I mean, what, what does a hospital that's at almost full capacity do if all of a sudden 50 very sick patients walk in the door? I mean, do you kick people out? I mean, how do you prepare for um, a, a surge like that? How, how does the nation prepare for a surge like that? Yeah, I'll start. Yeah, not well. Um, so uh, the reality is that you know, that's why I've challenged the concepts of medical surge. Um, it's, it's complete counter to the way we deliver care today. So um, uh, largely, and you think it's a joke that we would unlock the tent in the, in the emergency department and open up, the, unlock the locker and open up the tent and put it in the parking lot and try and develop some more space so we could deliver care or convert to cafeteria, but that's what places do. Well, should CDC has these you know, pallets that you can rush uh, medical medicines to capacities. I don't know if, if there is such a thing, but should the CDC have a mass unit all packed in some kind of deliverable 
they could fly into no, the a military has hospitals. So, so there's a couple different layers here. Yeah. I think that this is a larger construct, but basically you're not going to beat, one of the previous speakers said, the entire, the medical, the healthcare capacity of our nation is largely in the, 93% of it is in the, in the private sector. That needs to be tapped. On top of that, you layer potential teams, NDMS being one of those teams, DOD being another one of those teams. But now we've elevated to a federal response to this that is, that is minuscule compared to the infrastructure that is the 93% of how we deliver care today. Um, and yes, it could layer on top of it, but it is, it, the impact to that compared to the impact of how we deliver care today, it's, it's not even uh, budget dust. Uh, but they will certainly deploy and be a resource but I think broader engagement through the healthcare delivery infrastructure is going to be one of those key tenants. You know, very briefly, to some extent, the canary in the coal mine on the ability to manage patients with communicable disease, we can actually see a bit in this difficult seasonal influenza outbreak and epidemic that we're having in America today. So just to complement uh, David's comments, I mean, how things change is that Patients that should be in an intensive care unit are boarded in an emergency department, which is understaffed already to manage the inflow of patients that are coming. And so broadly what you can say is that, um, you know, David would say, the system for managing patients under surge doesn't exist or is broken. What I would say, maybe it's saying the same thing, is your safety margin there is decreased dramatically. I mean, we all know we would rather have a patient in and then ICU setting with the appropriate nursing uh, ratios, uh, getting the care that we would all want, you know, for ourselves, for our loved ones, for our neighbors. Um, when things get tough, which is what's happening actually in many places in America today because of the, epi uh, the flu epidemic, um, you're just seeing hospital overcrowding, critical care patients boarding, other patients that are admitted boarding in that emergency department, and swelling uh, uh, waiting rooms. Um, where people are ad hoc trying to expand into tents where the weather allows it and the cafeterias where it doesn't. And that's mm -hmm. uh, n nobody that's a clinician or probably in a healthcare leadership position is, is comfortable with that. And I think everyone's looking for that solution. I, I wanted to ask about physical facilities. What did Emory do? Because this is not an ICU. Uh, ICUs tend to be more open. These, our hospitals actually started by dealing with communicable diseases. Did Emory isolate a unit to deal with the Ebola patient? They did, and through, through, through uh, some investment of federal dollars, they were able to identify because an isolated unit. hospitals have trouble, you know, getting a unit, that kind of a separate unit. No, that, that's right, and it, 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 it didn't remain open or vacant in times that it wasn't being utilized, let's say, you know, to manage a patient with uh, Ebola virus disease or Lassa fever or something else. Right. Uh, these end up being somewhat dual-use spaces. And, um, and you're right, it's absolutely rare that a health system could identify two or three or four ICU beds and leave them empty. That's not economically feasible. It's not, me you know, it's not consistent with the realities of right. ICU patients boarding in the ER. So yeah, these end up being dual-use spaces, but they, they are isolated from the rest of the hospital, its staff and patients, because that's what's required, you know, for, for safety. And the teams that manage those patients are most always volunteer, but also dedicated to the care of that patient, um, which David, is a could challenge. And David, give us a quick look. Uh, Miami managed the Zika crisis. I mean, it did a full court press working with um, you and others. Uh, could you talk a little about that? Sure. Um, 
that work is largely credited to Abdul Memon, who's our chief medical officer yeah. um, and, and leads our emergency preparedness, and the Department um, of, of Infectious Disease, yeah. Yeah. and Lillian Rivera at the Department yeah. of Health. Um, you know, we're the gateway. Um, mm -hmm. So a, a lot of, you know, the, the transiency and, and things of that nature. Yeah, this is a good news story because yeah. Miami got their arms around the issue and very quickly isolating making sure that we could you know and I call this the invisible surveillance system in every single organization that exists in the experts who are touching and interacting and triaging and doing medical screening examinations you know at every one of our ports of entries um, and making sure that you know we we identify patients with with recurring themes which is what was important here um, and then the the response around the communities in Wynwood and isolating it to to mosquitoes and and all of the things that occurred in Miami in response um, I, I believe um, were important in not allowing this to really grow and spread um, mm -hmm. and then documenting it which is mm -hmm. you know as in the case of Emory making sure that others can learn from from the findings of, of any one cluster or any one organization mm -hmm. Um, Dr. Uh, Marcosi, um, I actually saw a surge capacity that was interesting in Haifa in Israel. What Israel has done is convert their garages, their hospital garages, into emergency uh, beds. And they actually, it's almost an ICU the way they've done it. They built it into the walls. They can pull the beds out with all of the electrical uh, equipment and they actually can manage their way through, and they've made the investment of this, uh, in all of this. Now, they're concerned both about physical bombings and things like that, but also at the same time about infectious diseases. So it's worth looking at what Israel has done in terms of converting the garages in their hospitals, which they just use as garages, um, into uh, emergency units that can manage large expansions. So familiar with some of the Israeli work just with my prior job. Um, yeah. And uh, they, they have some, they, their, their model of care is, is ready and, and, and they have a constant threat. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a constant awareness and I'm willing to bet if the American College of Healthcare Executives pinged their emergency preparedness folks and their hospital executives, I'm betting disaster preparedness would be on their top 10. Mm -hmm. um, uh, now, pivoting that to what we deliver in a very competitive market. Israeli is not a competitive market. So there is there's a completely, there are some wins that Israeli, uh, Israel has with regard to their ability to respond to disasters quickly, effectively, uh, and, uh, and mobilize a significant amount of resources to do that. Here, the economic construct is not there. So the interesting thing to me in Israel was they were using existing facilities and that's making sure that they could be converted uh, very quickly. So there are some places that do that. Perfect example, you could say take it as a garage, but other facilities and hospitals use their cafeteria. It's the same. It, that's the space part of how to surge, how to medically surge. But what I would, what, what but I what would. What interested me is that they had the electrical outlets to handle very critical patients in those garages. Most of our cafeterias would have to be rewired um, to do that kind of thing. They're just spaces that you can. Uh, move beds into. This was completely different from what I 
could see. That's fair, and 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 I think that there's a Stephen a step beyond that. If that that if that is a best practice, I'll give you one more, and I think is this concept of immediate bed availability. It was published by HHS in Asper, that basically takes concepts of when you you are able to triage throughout the day your higher level of patients and lower your lower level acuity patients, and when the thing occurs. Now, every day, hospitals discharge approximately 15 to 18% of their patient volumes on a daily basis. So, so the expectation from the immediate bed availability standpoint is you would attempt to achieve 20% of discharge within four hours. Why? Because you would be able to respond to a bombing event because the, usually, typically, Israel, the, the data demonstrates that you're going to clear the scene within three hours. And for a large-scale biologic event, that concept of, cont of continually triaging and being able to offload your lower acuity patients to the community and bring in your higher acuity patients could be just as applicable for a nuclear detonation to a large-scale biological event. And discharging, it as you know, is a big challenge for hospitals working with their docs because they're always looking at those numbers and trying to push the docs into getting patients out of the beds. This builds, this builds, when I presented the concept of IBA, one of the CEOs walked up to me and said, this would require us to be more efficient. Uh, yeah, yes, it would, yeah. yeah. Could you survive? Exactly. Uh, I think we're actually out of time. Okay. Is that right? Yeah. So thank let you. us thank the panel, thank extraordinary you. panel. Come on up and get your picture taken. And we'll set up the next panel right away.
going to take the full 45 minutes uh, for the panel because moving to lunch is next door. Everybody in the audience is invited to lunch. So particularly for my students that are sitting out there, free lunch right after the... <laughs> Always a draw. Right after, uh, right after this panel concludes, we'll move right into the next room uh, for lunch and to hear uh, uh, Dr. Julio Frank. Um, he's going to speak at lunch. So, um, Jim, do you want to... Sure. All right. So, um, okay. So this panel is called Public Health Response and Population Management. And we have uh, Celeste, Dr. Celeste Phillip, who's the Surgeon General and Secretary of uh, Florida Department of Health. Uh, Dr. Scott Zimmerman, Director of Division of Public Health, North Carolina State Laboratory of Public Health. And Dr. Tina Botcher Hershey, Assistant Professor, Health Policy and Management, Assistant Director for Law and Policy, Center for the Public Health Practice at the University of Pittsburgh. And as we've done with the other panels, if you'd like to embellish your uh, credentials a little bit or your, your introduction, please do. Um, I, I was going to say good morning, but I think technically we're afternoon now. Um, Celeste Phillip, State Health Officer for Florida, it's an honor to be a part of this um, event and uh, be able to share from our experience in Florida. Um, a little bit about my background. I am um, a family physician, also trained in preventive medicine and public health, spent a couple of years at CDC as an EIS officer, um, started with the Department of Health in a county health department. So I've had about five years at the local level, five years at the state office, um, three as a deputy secretary, two in this role as um, state health officer. Um, but I, I always try to when we're working with partners, remember how the system works and try to look at everyone's perspective as, as a team. Um, and, and I was planning to share some insights on Zika and, and would like to comment on um, some lessons learned and, and what worked well from that perspective. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you for the opportunity to be here today. It's an honor. Um, I wanted to first commend the study panel for your efforts on this, you know, in this arena. I think it's really important. Um, I am a lawyer by training, so I offer a little bit of a different perspective. I was a practicing healthcare attorney in Washington, D.C. and Pittsburgh prior to entering academia. So I'm familiar with the health system and, and some of the practicalities of the health system, but I've been working in academia on preparedness issues, particularly on the legal side, and I think there's some important considerations that, that the panel needs to, to think about when it comes to the law. I've also had the opportunity to work with tribal nations across the country, and I think um, sharing some of the, the experiences I've had with the panel will be helpful as you craft, you know, you continue to craft um, um, your response. Good afternoon, and uh, likewise, I'd uh, like to give my appreciation to the panel for the invitation today. Scott Zimmerman, uh, I am the director of the North Carolina State Laboratory of Public Health in Raleigh, North Carolina, and have spent the last 25 years of my career as a laboratory professional leading public health laboratories. Um, spent several years at the Centers for Disease Control, um, trained as a clinical and public health microbiologist um, in a tertiary care institution, um, and spent about 20 years in New York State in the public health laboratory system uh, as the director of a regional laboratory and the last five years as director of the North Carolina State Public Health Laboratory. And so I hope to bring a perspective to what I would call a core function of public health to the panel today and talk about the laboratory response to biological events. Okay. Would you like to start with your prepared remarks? 
A little bit of background on the Department of Health in Florida, which I think might be helpful to understand. Um, we are what is considered an integrated system. All of the county health departments are part of our state system. We're all state employees. And most of the time, we like to call ourselves a happy family, which you know what that means. Sometimes we're all on the same page. Sometimes um, there is a challenge with balancing um, local and state priorities. But overall, it, I, I think it is extremely effective when it comes to response. Um, for the, over the last couple of years, which is how long I've been in this position, we've uh, stood up an incident management team four times. And each time um, at the state level, when it either was at responding to a state level issue or helping to support local efforts, um, this integrated system allows for us to move staff and resources around as needed to provide um, public health surge capacity and um, additional support that once the local level, and as we've been saying, um, response is local, once local um, efforts um, need some assistance, it makes it easy in our state to be able to provide that support. In looking at the 2015 report and a number of the recommendations, um, they're spot on and so many apply to our experience with our response to Zika. Um, as we were going into planning early in 2016, CDC convened a meeting for um, all of the um, state health officers and, and other key staff to, to start thinking through, and I would call it a tabletop of some sort, um, based on previous experiences with mosquito-borne illness, what are some of the, um, what, what can we expect, um, how can we start planning for this. Um, after that meeting, there were a couple of tabletop exercises that were held in DC and states that were considered at highest risk based on having the Aedes aegypti uh, mosquito in our states, um, as well as looking at previous mosquito-borne illness trends, and um, we were invited to participate. And, and it was interesting, it was important, I, I think speaking to the um, what other speakers today have said, the relationship uh, how important it is for us to know each other, to have relationships, to have trust. Those tabletops were a first step in many cases for us meeting some of the federal partners who would be key in helping us um, in our um, response efforts, um, as well as being able to inform policy. I, I think in emerging infection um, or disease like Zika where uh, we go into it knowing that there are so many unknowns, um, as we were going through the planning phases, um, CDC was creating a number of, of guidance documents, many pertaining to lab testing. Uh, that changed as we learned more going through the response. So that element of being able to communicate the latest guidelines, but say to individuals, whether that's those are clinicians who need to know about testing, um, whether it's regarding vector control, um, this, the fluid nature of our knowledge and the changing guidelines and then communicating them was a, a bit of a challenge. And I, I don't know how that gets translated into a guideline, but it, I think it's something important to consider because much of what we ended up responding to as a part of, of um, uh, making sure we could contain Zika and, and prevent ongoing transmission in our state was the messaging and communication to the residents and visitors to impacted areas. And, and I think, again, that speaks to some of the themes earlier about how important it is to have community engagement. So as we um, went through the process of, of first identifying that we did indeed have local transmission, 
which was different than what we, what we contemplated in our tabletops. Um, we made some assumptions that ended up not being quite true in that we expected transmission between people that through mosquitoes uh, would occur around homes and what we found it was actually more uh, a workplace associated exposure or people who were in a recreational setting. So that paradigm and, and how do you start um, then identifying people who've been in an area where we believe transmission occurred is very different than going to households around in, in a particular neighborhood. Now we're trying to identify people who maybe were at this particular event, this particular business. Um, and that required us to be very creative and work with hospital partners such as Jackson, um, work with FQHCs and other clinics that were, became testing sites as we were trying to identify um, additional individuals who had been exposed and indeed um, um, were testing positive for Zika. As many of you probably recall, about 80% of individuals who may be positive do not have any symptoms. So that was another layer of trying to um, understand the magnitude of, of the um, transmission. On top of that, as CDC, because we were already into the response, if you will, when there was the report from CDC stating that their review, um, they were very confident that Zika was indeed a cause for congenital malformations. And this was the first time in over 50 years um, that we had identified a new teratogenic um, agent. This was the first time it was uh, mosquito-borne. And on top of trying to understand a, a new virus, um, this now created a lot of concern and, and quite frankly panic for pregnant women or women who were interested in becoming pregnant. Um, so that, I, I think, I don't know how you prepare for that, but again, something else for the panel to consider when you have that um, uh, something that unusual occur, um, it is, it requires, I, I think, many different considerations and all of the different layers and um, um, governmental agencies to, to come together. When we had our tabletops, we, it was stated over and over, this was the first time that there were so many different federal agencies and sectors represented around a health issue. I mean, I would say that was the same at the local level. Um, and, and I think that is um, one of the interesting considerations, and, and I think Secretary Shalala's comments about everything becomes public health. I, I think this was a good example of that um, because there were also uh, economic considerations in the areas in uh, Miami where we identified ongoing transmission. And for the first time, uh, there was a local or a domestic uh, travel advisory saying if you are pregnant, you should avoid these areas. Um, that was disruptive to businesses there. Um, and, and from a health perspective, if you don't have a job, uh, that is one of the, the, the barriers to, to being healthy, as we all know. Uh, so there, there were many different considerations for something of this nature that I don't think were anticipated beforehand. Um, and I, I think the, the last comment I'd like to make um, is regarding um, when these issue, actually two comments, um, when we are going from preparedness into response and 
situation of hurricanes into recovery, the way the funding um, flows down to the state and local levels, I think, um, could be revisited and um, looking at ways to streamline reporting as well as um, the ability to move funding around as needed would be extremely beneficial. During our Zika response, uh, there, there was a delay in receiving the federal funding. Uh, we were able to access um, state general revenue for a period until that funding came into our system. But over the course of our response, we had 13 different funding streams that we had to track. Each one had a different deliverable report reporting that was required. And it took two people, quite frankly, to track that along um, it, along the, the period of time, uh, because of course each of those funding streams had different um, dates where the funding had to be expended by, um, so it, it got quite complicated. So while we greatly appreciated that support in the future, I think that is, and that is included in some of the rec recommendations I know. And finally, I'm extremely grateful to um, our colleagues here in Miami for their um, hard work, their dedication, and the ability to disrupt transmission. And this year, it's a very different story. We didn't know what to expect. I think no one is happier than, than me, and I, I think my colleague from um, Jackson, that we are in a different place. But when that happens, sometimes all of the lessons learned, um, the, the point of care testing, which I know is one of the recommendations, um, we haven't heard much about progress for um, Zika point of care testing. Vaccine trials, um, development, again, wouldn't want to, um, because now it's not an, an imminent threat for us to lose ground gain there, um, because we do expect Zika will return um, as there are more folks who do not, have not been exposed and our herd immunity wanes. Um, and the, also the progress that we made around vector control with um, some of the novel techni techniques that Miami-Dade implemented for controlling the Aedes aegypti mosquito. Um, we did receive some additional funding for sterile insect techniques that we're moving forward on. So sometimes when that threat is gone, we, we forget about those lessons learned and, and the important work that that can contribute to helping us in future responses. Um, so I don't know if there's a way to build that into the recommendations as well, but that's um, another area, at least for us in Florida, where we are continuing that work. Thank you. Is it true there's no standing water left in Miami? <laughs> <laughs> well, as you know better than I, um, with, with, with the rains here, there's, there's always some, uh, depending on what day, but I can tell you that the community engagement around getting rid of standing water in your, on your own property made, made a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, as mentioned, I am an assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health, where I teach classes on health law and ethics and healthcare compliance. My students are future healthcare executives, and I just wanted to point out to the hospital administrators here that I do teach them about emergency preparedness. I think it's a really important aspect. Um, they have varying levels of attention to the topic, but it, it is something that's being introduced to those future health executives. I also mentioned that I'm a lawyer by training and that I work in legal preparedness. And I think it's an important area to consider because the law provides the foundation upon which public health response is based. Uh, public health preparedness requires effective legal authority to number one, respond to the crisis, coordinate public health response across jurisdictions, resolve the disputes that inevitably arise between jurisdictions, between individuals, and also aid recovery post-crisis. 
So we have laws permeate um, at every level of government and, and permeate emergency response at every level. Laws determine what constitutes an emergency. So some states have a definition for a public emergency and some other states have public emergency plus a public health emergency. So you definitely want to consider the laws of your state to know what an emergency constitutes, but then also at the federal level as well. The laws um, creates the infrastructure through which emergencies and disasters are prevented, detected, and addressed. So our whole response infrastructure is based on a legal foundation. The laws provide the authorization for the performance of actions and also the non-performance of actions through which um, a variety of actors, you know, they, they prevent, they detect, they respond. The laws also determine the extent of responsibility for potential or actual harms that could arise during emergencies. So I'm talking about liability issues. So I spent many years educating state court judges on their powers under public health emergency law. And these are trainings in person uh, to judges who were not necessarily understanding that they were part of the public health system. So we trained them, number one, on science. Judges are typically lawyers. They don't have a scientific background. So understanding disease transmission was not in their arsenal. But they needed to understand that in order to incubate, or excuse me, in order to isolate or quarantine someone in an appropriate manner and understand what an incubation period was. So for example, if you have a disease like Ebola with a 21-day incubation period and you quarantine or isolate someone for three days, you're not doing anything effective from a public health standpoint. So the judges really appreciated that scientific education um, you know, at a somewhat basic level. But then we also, we brought in the state epidemiologists typically to do that education. So we tied the public health community with the judiciary. And I think that was an important relationship builder along the way. We also um, included hypothetical scenarios for the judges to look at and, and all the public health practitioners in the room so that they were really stopping to think about the legal issues that could actually arise and then the, the public health issues as well talking about the isolation, quarantine, um, social distancing measures, global health issues. So it was a really interesting um, way of, of educating the judges. Uh, as part of the similar projects, I have developed public health emergency law manuals and public health emergency law bench books for judges, attorneys, and public health practitioners um, on this topic because we feel like law is such an important player in this arena. So, for example, we just developed the District of Columbia's Public Health Alert Emergency Law Manual and did a training for the district, which the district has interesting laws, and because you have a lot of diplomatic, com uh, diplomatic community there, there, there are some interesting issues that arise there, and of course, Congress. Um, so that was a really interesting exercise. But um, as I mentioned, the law, I believe, plays a central role in the fight against infectious disease agents and other uh, aspects of biodefense primarily by providing the, the, the legal authority to take action. Those legal authorities cover a range of activities, including isolation and quarantine, as I mentioned, but also deploying medical countermeasures and declaring emergencies. So laws provide action, but then you can also waive laws during disasters and emergencies to address um, re response and recovery efforts. That can be loosening licensure requirements so that you can address medical surge, expanding scope of practice. We, we've already heard about how scope of practice is an issue. If you expand practitioners and, and their ability of what they can do, you can address some of the medical surge issues. That doesn't address the facility aspect, but it does address the provider aspect. And then also, you can also relax transportation regulations to ensure that vital supplies reach citizens. So for example, we did some research um, about access to primary care after Hurricane Sandy in, in a certain uh, region of New York City. 
And when the bridges are shut down and only certain vehicles can go across, if you don't have your supply chain vehicles as part of the order, the executive order, supplies can't get to where they need it. And we actually used RX Open in the research, so it was nice to see Healthcare Ready um, here because it was, it, it was a really important resource to use to see where pharmacies were open to get primary care access. So the exercise of legal authority or the waiver of law requires balancing between the preservation of individual liberty and the protection of the public's health following principles defined in the US Constitution. So you always have to remember that there's this tension between public health and individual liberty that have to be balanced. So public health system agents, including public health officials, judges, and lawyers, must understand exactly what public health legal preparedness encompasses in terms of both authority and limitation. And Secretary Shalala, I believe your op-ed that was published this week talks about um, uh, some of these issues in relation to the enforcement of quarantine. So we really need to understand the powers that we have. Um, I, I mentioned liability as a, as a concern. Every time we talk to volunteers, the number one thing they talk about is their, their fear of liability. So making sure we educate volunteers about their liability protections is part of this legal preparedness component. Um, and as we are talking about medical surge and using volunteers to, to address that surge, um, I think it's important for the study panel to consider legal preparedness as part of an effective biodefense strategy. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit and now talk about my work with the tribal community, which also has a legal focus, but because it's a different type of community, we're, we're dealing with all sorts of preparedness issues. So I have been working with the CDC's public health law program on both the judges training and also this tribal work. And I've conducted listening sessions with tribal nations across the country through what's called the Tribal Legal Preparedness Project. As I mentioned, um, it's funded by the CDC Public Health Law Program. And we're, this spring, we're, we're releasing online training modules specifically geared towards tribal nations and their preparedness efforts on the legal side. So we'll have these training modules, and then we'll also have a resource library that encompasses resources specific to tribal nations, but then also general preparedness as well. So in the process of developing those resources, I've had numerous conversations with the tribal community that I'd want to share with, with the panel, things we've learned. So th the first lesson that we learned um, is the, the importance of recognizing tri tribal sovereignty. That, that is the number one thing we hear, that they just want that recognizing, recognizing it from the outset. Um, because tribal nations, as sovereign nations, have inherent authority to take action to protect the public health and welfare of their citizens, including managing public health disasters and emergencies. And, and they do that in the manner that's most appropriate for their communities. Only after tribal sovereignty is recognized will meaningful conversations and collaborations be able to take place between the tribal governments and all other levels of government as well. There are 567 federally recognized tribes across the United States that share borders with other jurisdictions, and they have different levels of public health capacity. So it's the, a big thing to understand is that some tribes have fully developed public health systems with code, uh, public health codes and um, you know, a public health department, and other tribes do not. So understanding that the range of capacity is important. Um, we all know that infectious diseases and other biologic agents don't follow geographic borders or man-made borders. So it's very important that we, we um, have tribal health capacity at the same level as other governments. So um, I just wanted to point out that there are 5.2 million people who identify as American Indian or Alaska Native, which is about 2% of the US population. So this is a significant portion. So another issue that I've learned about in my conversations with the tribal community is the frustration regarding public health preparedness funding. 
As it currently stands, tribal nations do not receive money directly from CDC's Public Health Emergency Preparedness Program. Instead, the funds are provided to the states who then filter the money as they see fit. Um, and typically these funds, when they get to the tribes, are not substantial enough to actually develop robust capacity. Um, tribes would like to see the, that FEP funding provided directly to them rather than being a pass-through through the states. And as we go through the, um, the POPA uh, uh, authorization, reauthorization process, it's, this is an important consideration. The study panel's focus on biodefense is highly relevant to tribal communities. Historically, American Indian and Alaska Native populations have been greatly affected by infectious diseases in comparison to other groups. So for example, during the 1918-1919 pandemic, as well as the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, deaths for this population were four times higher than other groups. So they are significantly affected um, by these types of diseases. And also there have been outbreaks of deadly pathogens such as the hantavirus on tribal land. So that leads to the, the study panel's focus on animals as a major source of biothreats makes focus on tribal preparedness even more important because animal control is an issue that's been identified by the tribal nations as an, a significant area of public health concern for their own communities. But then we also know that there are disease reservoirs and animals, so that's, that becomes a national concern. We have to be culturally sensitive that anim, the, the way of looking at animals is different in tribal communities than it is perhaps in other communities and cultures. And it's also important to remember that there is no one tribal community. I mentioned there are 567 tribal nations, federally recognized tribal nations in the country. They all have their own unique culture and customs. So we have to be mindful of, of, of that as well. All of that, what I've just spoken about, makes it essential that tribal communities are given the resources to be prepared for these infectious agents. I spoke earlier about the importance of understanding the law particularly legal authority in relation to emergency preparedness. And this is particularly relevant when we're talking about tribal preparedness because there is a lot of jurisdictional uncertainty about which level of government has jurisdiction. We have what's called checkerboarded land. We have tribally owned land next to state land, next to some federal land. So there is a lot of jurisdictional uncertainty. So there is a reliance on intergovernmental agreements such as mutual aid agreements, memoranda of understanding. Uh, that makes the law really important to this process. Um, we've, today we've heard a lot about trust and the importance of trust, and when you're working with tribal nations, that, that trust is critical. And so it's important to establish a relationship of mutual respect and, and trust um, really in advance of any sort of threat, whether we're talking about a natural disaster, we're talking about a bioterrorist event, or uh, an infectious disease. Um, my work with the tribes has, has shown me that that takes time and patience and, um, and uh, determination. So you just you, you keep coming back and having conversations and you build that trust and, and that relationship and it's, it's, it's really important. I wanna close by commending the study panel for your efforts to date um, and your recommendations will help our nation become more secure from these bio, um, bio events. However, there needs to be additional efforts to bring the tribes to the table. At, you know, as a, as a partner, not just as an afterthought. Recognizing tribal sovereignty and providing sufficient resources for tribal nations to enhance their preparedness capacity, these are two critical steps we must take to protect our public's health. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Zimmer. As 
part of my um, initial communications with Dr. George around this event, she asked that specifically I focus on helping the panel better understand laboratory capabilities around uh, biodefense, um, in, and specifically the role of the Laboratory Response Network, or the LRN, as it relates to that. So I think some of the comments that have been made today around laboratory support and such, whether it be um, in our hospitals, um, in our public health departments, et cetera, hopefully will be uh, brought together a bit in some of my remarks that I, that I intend to make. Um, and so what I hope to do briefly is to introduce um, the panel to the concept of the Laboratory Response Network, or the LRN, uh, briefly discuss its concept of operation, um, and highlight some of the opportunities that I believe are available for improving its functionality. Um, and so going back in history just briefly, um, nearly two decades ago, uh, the CDC, uh, the FBI, um, and the Association of Public Health Laboratories, or APHL, uh, recognize the importance of an effective laboratory response to bioterrorism and to public health emergencies. And so the Laboratory Response Network, or the LRN, was established and operationalized in August of 1999. Uh, the goal of the LRN was to ensure a robust laboratory response to emergencies that involved biological and microbiological threats by improving the nation's public health laboratory infrastructure. At the time the LRN was established, the public health laboratory community had been in a period of decline for a number of reasons. Um, inadequate resources, um, the inability uh, to keep up with uh, rapidly evolving technologies uh, in the industry, uh, a changing workforce, regulatory requirements, et cetera. They all decimated state and local public health laboratories across the entire country. At the time, very few public health laboratories in this country performed molecular or DNA-based, um, nucleic acid-based uh, technologies, um, and therefore relied upon uh, what was predominantly a traditional culture approach to culturing bacteria, viruses, fungi, et cetera. The problem with these conventional methods, as we all know, uh, was that the turnaround time was unable to provide a rapid response uh, during a biological event. Inasmuch as public health uh, laboratories had not employed the use of rapid or accurate techniques, neither did the facilities that housed these labs have containment, high containment facilities, predominantly biosafety level three or BSL-3 capabilities. Um, and the importance of that was that most public health laboratories at that time uh, were then unable to do some of the work that was really necessary to, to mitigate some of these public health emergencies. Because BSL-3 laboratories are built to contain potentially aerosolized microorganisms, they're used to test for highly infectious agents that have the potential to cause very serious or potentially lethal diseases, and at the same time, protect the staff that are performing this testing, and as importantly, uh, protect the environment surrounding these facilities. Since the inception of the LRN, the funding has been provided to public health departments across the nation, primarily through the Public Health Emergency Preparedness, or FEP, cooperative agreement. And it's allowed public health laboratories to develop these so-called high containment BSL-3 capabilities. So that today, I'm happy to say that nearly every state in the United States has at least one BSL-3 laboratory for these purposes. In addition to that, again, with the funding that's been provided to public health departments and, and more particularly to public health laboratories, uh, public health laboratories have been able to acquire cutting-edge technologies 
again, I mentioned uh, molecular-based technologies, uh, DNA and nucleic acid amplification approaches. Uh, labs have been able to hire scientists that are capable of performing these uh, more sophisticated types of testing. And they've improved operational capacity for high-priority, high-consequence events. Let me just talk briefly about how the LRN is structured. And again, I think this will bring to light some of the questions that have been raised and comments that have been raised today. The LRN is structured, if you think of it in a pyramid fashion, with three different levels of laboratories. The base layer, uh, or the foundation for the structure, is comprised of what is typically our hospital-based or commercial clinical diagnostic laboratories. We call these the Sentinel laboratories because they're on the front lines. It's estimated there are nearly 25,000 Sentinel laboratories in the United States, housed in hospitals, in clinics, and health departments, um, or as commercial entities that provide laboratory testing on a fee-for-service basis. Because these labs have direct contact with patients, they play a key role in the early detection of biological agents since they may be the first to identify a suspicious specimen. The concept of operation around the LRN is that when a sentinel laboratory presumptively identifies a bio-threat or emerging infectious agents, they have a responsibility to rapidly ship these suspicious specimens to a higher level reference laboratory for further testing and confirmation, which brings me to the second layer of the LRN, uh, or the, um, the, the reference laboratories. This second layer is made up of approximately 150 state and local public health labs uh, and other laboratories that test specimens of public health significance, agricultural labs, food testing labs, water testing in some cases. And again, these are the reference laboratories in the LRN concept of operations. Reference laboratories are responsible for the detection and confirmation of threat agents through unique and rapid testing platforms um, for on, in specimens that are forwarded to them by the Sentinel laboratories. Reference laboratories have the ability to produce conclusive results so that local authorities can respond quickly to emergencies. The third and the final layer of the LRN is made up of the national laboratories, including those operated by CDC, U.S. AMRID, the uh, Naval Medical Research Center, and others. Uh, and these national laboratories are responsible for identifying or further characterizing some of these strains of agents um, and handling highly infectious agents in that, in some cases, they have BSL-4 capabilities. It's important, I think, to note that LRM members are strategically located across the U.S. and abroad. Uh, each lab plays a role in their jurisdiction's overall emergency response plan. And it's important to note that 87% uh, of the U.S. population is located within a 100-mile radius of an LRN laboratory. The timeliest piece comes into play in terms of where geographically these laboratories are located. A few examples uh, of, of the LRN in action over the years include um, the Amerithrax uh, episode, the anthrax attacks of 2001, where member labs uh, in the LRN tested over 125,000 specimens, leading to well over a million different laboratory reports. Um, in uh, 2009, the H1N1 swine flu epidemic, where LRN partnered with federal agencies to roll out laboratory tests to identify uh, these, this rapidly emerging influenza strain. Uh, and another example, SARS, the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, where CDC laboratories developed a molecular assay for the detection of the agent responsible for the global epidemic and distributed this assay to members of the LRN. 
the LRN is a unique collaboration uh, between public safety, public health, the healthcare community, et cetera. Um, and some components that make it unique are that the FBI has brought its forensic expertise to the LRN, while CDC has brought the epidemiological expertise. Together, these overlapping approaches to case investigations have led to a philosophy of forensic epidemiology, which basically refers to the use of epidemiologic methods in the investigation of public health problems that may have been caused or associated with intentional or criminal acts. And so the question at hand today is, are state, local, territorial, and tribal governments able to adequately respond to a large-scale biological event? And since laboratory is a core to public health and to our healthcare uh, agencies, it would seem that the LRN would provide the necessary tools for the rapid and accurate detection and identification of biothreat agents. However, um, I'm here today to tell you that there's plenty of room for improvement. Some of the concepts that uh, the LRN has been based on, frankly, at this point are 15 years old. And we have not moved forward with some of our operations within the LRN as I think we really need to. Um, there's a couple of approaches that have been used by the LRN um, to monitor and detect agents of biological concern. Certainly one that this panel has wrestled with um, in the past, uh, that being the BioWatch program. Um, the BioWatch program was originally conceived and developed as an environmental aerosol surveillance and detection system that provides an early warning to support public health and emergency management communities in preparation for and response to biological incidents. BioWatch consists of a network of continuously operational indoor and outdoor biological portable air sampling units placed throughout a targeted geographic region. It's intended to detect and mitigate the severity of public health impact associated with the widespread exposure of humans to select bioagents. However, there is room for improvement. And again, this panel has recognized some of that, and I applaud the panel for some of the efforts around that. Detection of a biothreat agent in the BioWatch program doesn't necessarily confirm that a bioterrorism attack has occurred or that there is even a real risk to the public's health. A BioWatch alert can represent that a naturally occurring microorganism was detected in its natural environment with no validation that the public's health is at risk. To date, there have been no BioWatch alerts that have been indicators of intentional bioagent release. While the current BioWatch program has effectively led to collaborative efforts, and I don't want to under, um, understate that. There's a lot of collaboration that has come out of that program, which has been vital to local and state public health efforts, uh, crisis management, et cetera. There are a number of limitations that require the BioWatch Air Monitoring Network to be reevaluated. Some of these uh, limitations include the limited uh, menu of microbial pathogens detected, the inability to ascertain the viability of organisms, and other such things. Um, LRN labs are also instrumental in detection of biothreat agents derived from both clinical specimens tested at Sentinel Labs and samples collected by law enforcement and tested at LRN reference labs as part of the forensic investigation. Some thoughts that I have here are that to be successful in our ability to respond to large-scale biological events, we have to be mindful that preparedness planning needs to add value to daily activities in the absence of a large-scale event. Routine or even daily use enhances competency and provides better health outcomes. We need to garner resources ahead of an emergency uh, that can be used to enhance routine practices. 
We need to motivate action by government and researchers to explore novel approaches for laboratory uh, solutions. And we need to create open public-private discourse about infectious diseases and epidemics. In North Carolina, we have developed some and fostered some relationships. Uh, an example would be with a not-for-profit agency in the Research Triangle Park, RTI International. They're an independent nonprofit institute that provides research, development, and technical services to government and commercial clients worldwide and whose mission is to improve the human condition by turning knowledge into practice. This type of collaboration has allowed us, a government agency involved with laboratory diagnostics, diagnostics to achieve goals that were beyond our reach alone. Finally, we need to excel in the science to support evidence-based public health. State-of-the-art laboratory detection technology will assist our surveillance efforts. <coughs> Things such as next-generation sequencing or whole-genome sequencing has, have proven itself to be a powerful and flexible tool for infectious disease investigation. <coughs> Advancing the use of this and other cutting-edge technologies for communicable disease outbreak investigations and other laboratory-based surveillance programs can produce faster and more robust data. In conclusion, I leave you with the following three specific and actionable recommendations. One, that existing technologies for both laboratory-based human and environmental surveillance have limited capabilities to identify atypical or emerging threats. Therefore, it is imperative to enhance support for the discovery and the establishment of novel technology initiatives, including advanced molecular detection technologies like next-generation sequencing for hospital-based labs and for state and local public health laboratories. Secondly, uh, limit the use of routine environmental bio-threat monitoring and enhance the ability to rapidly and accurately detect atypical, emerging, and existing bio-threats in humans. And three, maintain critical funding that sustains existing epidemiology and laboratory capabilities and capacity in state public health and local public health departments. This funding supports the infrastructure needed to respond rapidly and accurately to public health emergencies. Thank you for this opportunity to provide a perspective on a critical component of core public health infrastructure and demonstrate the value <coughs> of the public health laboratory system in state, local, territorial, and tribal communities. Thank you very much. Um, uh, perhaps I could start by asking the Surgeon General. Um, I was alarmed when you said that you had 13 different streams of revenue. Were those federal streams of revenue that you had to manage? Yes. I mean, it took a couple of people. So there. Yes. So could you sort of give us a feel for that? Sh sure. Um, and again, I want to emphasize we were very grateful for the support. Yeah. Um, some of it was funding that was redirected from existing FEP funds. Okay. Um, some of it actually went back to Ebola funds that um, were allocated from a previous fiscal year. Um, then there were supplemental funds that were offered. Um, some were specific. Um, I believe FEP and ELC had two or three. So they basically correctly. scrambled to get you money, and, and they had to take it out of different pots is what I think you're. That, yeah. that would be my guess, although yeah. I don't know the certainty. <coughs> but you had to have two people to manage that. We did. So we would need a federal law that would make that streamlined, correct? Absolutely. And then when you think about a tribal nation dealing with the administrative burden here, you know, you're a large state with, with a well-developed public health system. Uh, with tribal nations inside the state, yeah. Absolutely. Or outside the state, I mean, yeah. Sovereignty yes, puts yes. them outside the state. I'm being very sensitive on the sovereign issue. 
Well, and it becomes a question, you know, they're, they're, part, they're, they're U.S. citizens, they're part of our country, but right. they are of their own separate right. status exactly. as well, so it, it, there is a tension there. Um, but the, the administrative burden is, is tremendous for, for tribal nations when they're talking about these, these um, grant programs. Um, there's lots of opportunity on, through FEMA for, for grants, but the tribes can't always, can always uh, manage the administrative burden. Yeah. So it's, it's a true issue. So let me go back to the state a little bit. So um, one of the things to look for is some kind of emergency power when you're given resources like that so that you can integrate them and you don't have to track all those pieces would that have made a difference in your ability to i mean you put people on top of it and sure you know. i i think if there had been a um federal discretionary of some, yeah, of some yeah. sort for us yeah. that that gave us that authority that would have certainly been helpful in our state we had um a public health emergency and executive order declaration from governor scott that allowed for us to bypass most of our usual processes for procurement um, and under contracting. state law. Correct, he could correct. Give correct. you emergency powers under state law. So for us, that was helpful for the state funds that we ended up using for the first several months. Um, when the federal funds were made available, it became much more complicated. Mm -hmm. So um, if, in fact, what they had done was simply put all those funds into the CDC block grant and sent it to you, that would have made it, it could have been more discretionary. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't um, suggest that I know the appropriate mechanism, but yes, if there was one funding stream that would be available for these types of responses, that would certainly facilitate our ability to be responsive and not take so much time on administrative duties that we weren't quite sure what value they were adding, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if some of it has to do with what is um, the, the current reporting that's required, if that needs to be looked at as well, where maybe it's... It, as we were shifting to outcomes-based reporting in many other areas, if there is a way of considering that kind of approach. Now, we have to look at this piece, too, because this, this is part of the infrastructure capacity uh, issue. If we're going to hold the states and local governments accountable, then they have to be able to respond quickly and, not, and allocate resources, people resources in particular appropriately. Is there something else you've learned out of that experience that could be helpful in terms of support, um, even at the state or local level? You obviously had cooperation. Everybody was trying to work together. I, I think so. I um, came into this position about a month after um, the executive order was signed, and at the time, I thought it was great that the Surgeon General was considered the lead for the response until that became me. Mm -hmm. um, and I started to understand um, how much or, or how many partners would be involved. And, and I will echo the comments earlier about how important it is to have those relationships. I did have some opportunities leading up to when we were extremely busy um, to have made some of those personal connections. Um, but I think going forward, and, and also for our hurricane response, some of the federal um, staff that were in the EOC with us, there were a couple I had met before, so I knew them. It was easy to have frank conversation. Um, Bob Cadlick actually came to, to visit us um, in Key West when we were a uh, week post Irma, and we had spoken on the phone several times. He was new in his role. That face-to-face -face made a, a huge difference, and going forward, I, I feel very comfortable being able to call him as needed, and I hope he feels the same. So if there are opportunities for um, 
these kinds of meetings that are strategic tabletops um, under blue skies conditions where we can get to know each other um, and, and have that face-to-face. -face. And learn how to work together. Yes, and, and start establishing that trust that we keep hearing is so important. I think that would be very helpful. Um, the history of the hantavirus is interesting because it, at the turn of the last century, they actually, but um, the, it's a funny story about the CDC. They went running out to the Navajo reservation and um, the way they figured it out was by talking to the medicine men. That's right. So I had the opportunity to hear from some of the medical professionals who were involved in the hantavirus discovery and, and the, the outbreak. Um, and, and who identified the deer mice. Exactly, yeah. who identified the deer mice. Um, and they, talk, they spoke very highly of, of the medicine men and the, that cultural history and, and understanding the tribal community and the need to go talk to, to the shaman, essentially, uh, and find out what they knew and incorporate that information into you know, current medical practice. So mm -hmm. it was really important from um, a preparedness perspective, a response perspective, to incorporate the culture of, of the community. Mm -hmm. So it reminds us again that incorporating the culture of communities in public health response and the level of sophistication that you bring to it is, is also important, not just in the Native American uh, communities where there clearly is sovereignty, but in other communities. Absolutely. And the, the importance of the face-to-face -face meeting can't be overstated. So when we, I was conducting these listening sessions, time and time again, you know, that's great you're developing the online training, but we want face-to-face -face meetings. We want to meet our federal partners, our state partners, and we want them to, to sit at a table with us and we want to build relationships. Mm -hmm. So while they appreciate this, this online effort, they don't want to just see everything go on the web and not have any face-to-face -face meetings at all. Mm -hmm. I also know that as um laboratories collapsed in other parts of the world, um, New York and other states, they became dependent on U.S. labs and on European labs uh, when we had outbreaks. True, and, and so the LRN is not only a, a domestic network of laboratories, mm -hmm. but uh, has laboratories in the United Kingdom, Canada, Mexico, South Korea, a um, number of locations across the world. And, um, and the Association of Public Health Laboratories also um, fosters relationship with other countries across the world in terms of laboratory capacity, building capacity for other laboratories, and, and, and helping with standards, if you will. And so um, there, there is that need, um, in a sense, to standardize um, laboratory testing, um, not only within the United States, but worldwide, so that we have a better understanding <coughs> Um, that what comes out of one laboratory can be uh, translated, if you will, in any laboratory or any jurisdiction. I know we're behind schedule, so I just two questions. <clears throat> First is Celeste. I know, it, I think it was in Key West they had a referendum on the uh, releasing the Oxitec mosquito, which uh, for everyone's benefit is a mosquito that's, uh, that's bioengineered so that it mates with the females. The males don't bite. It mates with the females and then they don't, their larva doesn't d develop. Did you, were you, have you had any results from that yet? Um, the mosquito control districts are um, not under the Department of Health, so, but we do work closely with them. And, and my understanding is that um, they initially proposed a location, uh, a specific location to the FDA and EPA, and then wanted to addend that and say um, we'd like it for the entire county. So I, I think they're still going through the process of having that application approved. 
Um, but I know that they are looking at moving oh, forward. So there haven't been releases? I, I, I don't yeah. believe so, no. Okay, okay. So for Tina, um, so state law, federal law, state law, local law, tribal law. And if you were to look at the gaps, um, uh, help me understand, help us understand what the remedy is to the gaps. So for instance, um, if there are specific kinds of laws that only municipalities, it's their jurisdiction and their jurisdiction alone, <clears throat> to the extent that, that municipalities in the U.S. haven't done that, do states have, uh, or, do, or, or municipal associations have model statutes and ordinances that they then distribute or can or should distribute to the localities and to the extent that <clears throat> states and tribal tribes are haven't done the kinds of things that they needed to do to be up to snuff. Um, does the, the, the federal government have a mechanism of, of distributing the same kind of model statutes and recommendations that these things get done? So there are some commissions that have uniform laws. The Uniform Law Commission is one of them. And, and one of the uh, pieces of legislation that they've developed as a model law is what's called the Uniform Emergency Health Emergency Volunteer Health Professionals Act. So it's providing volunteer liability protections. So they developed this law after Katrina and Rita. Um, some states have adopted the law, but it's, it's up to each state to develop their own laws. And then, you know, as you filter down the level of government, each one of them has authority to develop their own laws. So if you have a statewide emergency, your state law is going to control. But then if you have a more localized emergency, maybe you'll have a city declare an emergency or a municipality. So it's going to depend on the level and the extent of, of the crisis, essentially. Um, at the tribal level, when I initially started um, my work with the tribes, we thought we would develop some model laws, but we've kind of stepped away from that uh, idea because there are so many different tribes involved, 567. Um, and you also don't want to step on any toes and, and tell them what to do. So we've stepped away from the idea of a model law and instead are um, talking to the tribes about what they want to do. Um, do they want to develop laws li like the American system or do they want to continue with their own cultural patterns and, and not have everything written in, 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 on paper or you know, on the web? So you have that, that again, you have to be mindful of the culture because not every tribe wants to have a public health code or a food code or something like that. Uh, one interesting thing we heard through the listening sessions was the idea that some of the tribal elders believe that preparing for a disaster is calling the disaster to the community. And so those, those are the types of cultural considerations that we have to be mindful of. Um, that's not to say that they shouldn't be prepared or they shouldn't be preparing for these disasters, but how you phrase and couch the preparedness efforts may be different in communities that have those types of beliefs. What uh, do they think is the, what, would, what do they think would counter a disaster then? If preparing for a disaster would call the disaster to them, or do they think that not preparing for a disaster pushes a disaster away, or is there some other action that they can take that would do that? That didn't come up in our meetings, but just from other conversations, you know, prayer or something like that, um, uh, you know, calling to the spirit, something like that would be one method. Um, again, it's going to vary by tribe. So I, I just I want to make sure we, we continue to remember that there is no one tribal culture. Mm -hmm. And, that we and have they to have be, different approaches to yeah. health because exactly. some of them contract out, take the money and contract yes. out for their health care and others yes. use the Indian Health Service. So it's just, it varies depending on the wealth of the tribe. 
right, and, and, they, and their own internal politics. Right, so that self-determination, they have the ability to take on services and bring them back into to, right, to their own exactly. um, jurisdiction. Are, are there um, incentives for jurisdictions to enact these kinds of laws and ordinances, and are, are there um, disincentives for not doing it? Do you mean financial incentives or just incentives in general? Well, for instance, eligibility for grants and those kinds of things. Um, I'm not familiar with eligibility for grants in terms of passing laws, certainly um, preparing plans and having the, the, the right plans in place. They, um, for example, under certain FEMA programs, if you don't have plans in place, you can't apply for the programs. But in terms of other than financial incentives, I think uh, experience has shown that uh, jurisdictions that have legal authority and have taken the time to consider the various options and, and, and um, outcomes, they have had better managed disasters and crises. Yeah. So when they understand their authority and when they know how to use it, they have better outcomes. Great. So I Thank think you. that's the biggest incentive. Thank you very much. It's an extraordinary panel. Um, uh, President Frank has arrived. If we could move quickly into lunch, right next door. I'm buying. <laughs> Yeah, tell them to Thank you very much, Donna. And um, <clears throat> I did work in, in government for, for six years as Secretary of Health of Mexico. So I'm, I'm used to speaking while people eat. So please, uh, please enjoy your, your lunch uh, while I try to uh, provide a few remarks. Um, and first of all, I, I want to thank, um, obviously, uh, the members of the, of the Blue uh, Riva study panel uh, for the invitation and most especially my very dear friend and predecessor 
uh, Donna Shalala, our immediate past president here at the University of Miami. Also, of course, Representative James Greenwood for, for this um, opportunity to, to speak with you and also for hosting the meeting at the University of Miami. Uh, obviously, this is an incredibly timely and important uh, topic um, of events, the SARS epidemics, the anthrax, anthrax attacks post 9-11, the 2005 outbreak of avian flu, the H1N1 pandemic of swine flu, and most recently Ebola and Zika and a whole string of, of other outbreaks and, and events. And they just, uh, every time we have those events, we have in much increased awareness um, for um, what's been called health security, uh, global health security, and especially the, the need to, to develop very solid response to large-scale uh, biological events, whether they are naturally occurring or man-made. I almost never use gender-biased uh, terminology, except when it's a disaster, it's usually man-made. Um, and, 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 and this is this is the case as well with uh, the threat of bioterrorism or chemical attacks. Um, this, of course, has been very very well established in the in the different reports of the Blue Ribbon uh, Study Panel. Now, the session today, as as we know, is been mostly focused on the local on the local response. But I think the organizers were very wise to think that uh, it would be valuable to add a, a, a global perspective, and, and hence the title of this presentation, which is Local Response, Global Perspective. So while you've been discussing for, for the whole of the day this local response, that global perspective, I think it is uh, absolutely crucial. Because the fact is that in, in our interconnected world, the local and the global are inseparable. Um, Clearly, all, all biological events manifest themselves locally, but the determinants of an event are very often global. The first stages of response typically take place locally, as do many of the elements of preparedness. But all the upstream actions that can stop an event from actually reaching a local community happen through global cooperation. And, um, so rather than this dichotomy between the local and the global, we, we should think in terms of what's being called the global. These two realities are so connected that someone has now coined that word. And in point of fact, you can find it in a lot of dictionaries. The Oxford Dictionary has the, uh, a, a, an entry for the term global, which is meant to describe that everything is both global and local. So the main uh, message of, of my presentation is that because of the realities of interconnectedness and interdependence, no individual government can by itself uh, guarantee a secure domestic environment, nor generate an effective response by itself to most global threats. In order to, to address um, the health challenges of, of, uh, in an interdependent world, we really require global cooperation as a condition for effective local response. And, and that's, that's the key issue. It's, it is a condition for effective local response. I, I wanted to illustrate this um, with uh, some of this reality and need for multilateral cooperation. 
through different experience I had when I had the privilege of serving as Secretary of Health uh, of, uh, of Mexico. Um, Don and I overlapped uh, only for um, uh, 31 days because she finished uh, as Secretary of Health on, 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 on January 20th and I had started December 1st of the previous year, of the year 2000. Um, of course, shortly after I started, we had the tragic events in the United States of 9-11. And as a result of that, and then the subsequent anthrax attacks, many uh, fear that the U.S.-Mexico border could become an, an avenue, um, or a, a pathway for extremists to, con to conduct all kinds of, of attacks, including, very importantly, bioterrorist attacks. And this led already in 2002 to the design uh, and the implementation of, of something that was called a smart border plan uh, between Mexico and the United States. And the purpose was to promote trade while preventing uh, terrorism. And then in 2004, which was the 10th anniversary of NAFTA, which is now such a current topic of discussion, the, the three countries, the three signatory countries, Canada, the United States, and Mexico, decided to add very explicitly add measures related to sanitary and, and health security. In parallel to that part of the, this region of the world, um, the increased awareness from the anthrax attacks in, in 2001 led to the creation of a very interesting instance, um, which was called the Global Health Security Action Group. And, and that was um, a group formed by the G7. And this was, again, formed in, in 2002 uh, directly as, uh, in response to the 9-11 and subsequent incidents. And it was a group formed by the G7 plus Mexico. I, I think it's the only grouping that has that composition. And, 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 uh, and the reason for that uh, was that the G7 were worried about their own vulnerabilities. And in the case of North America, um, there was a need to include Mexico also to, to make sure that there was that uh, added protection uh, given the land border, the extensive land border with the, with the United States. This meeting um, uh, met for the first time in Ottawa in November of 2002, I mean this group, sorry. And uh, in, in that, <coughs> that, the, uh, that, that by the way predates the global health security agenda that was adopted many years later, and a, a lot of that actually came from this initial group, the Global Health Security Action Group. In the inaugural meeting in Ottawa in November of 2002, the group agreed to work together along eight lines of actions, and, and I wanted to mention them because I think they are still uh, highly relevant. Uh, first, explore joint cooperation in procuring vaccines and antibiotics to create strategic stockpiles in, throughout those countries. Second, engage in constructive dialogue regarding the respective regulatory frameworks for the development of vaccines. Um, remember that back then, um, the big, one of the big fears was uh, smallpox. Big, you know, one of the greatest triumph, not just of global health, I think the eradication of smallpox is one of the greatest triumphs of human cooperation. The fact that a disease that had produced a biblical scourge that had caused millions of, of deaths um, throughout all of human history 
was finally wiped out of the face of the earth, led unfortunately to the vulnerability that most countries stopped vaccinating against that. So anybody born after the 1970s was unprotected. And that, and that was, and if you remember, President Bush actually very publicly got himself vaccinated against smallpox, although he probably had been vaccinated as a, as a child. Um, so there was this whole question about regulatory uh, frameworks among the countries. The third action was to further support the WHO-coordinated disease surveillance network and, um, and the need to develop a coordinated strategy for outbreak containment. The fourth was to actually share emergency preparedness and response plans. Five, agree on a process for international collaboration on risk assessment and management a risk assessment management and a common language for risk communication. Um, the awareness that if there is a global outbreak, outbreak that, um, that affects more than one country, uncoordinated uh, messaging can, can actually disrupt local actions. Six was to improve linkages among laboratories. Seven, to undertake uh, close cooperation, particularly in, in for preparedness of radionuclear and chemical events. And then the eighth was to share surveillance data from national public health laboratories and information on contamination of food and water supplies, along with information on risk mitigation strategies to ensure food supplies. The whole question of, because you know, there's a multi-trillion dollar global uh, trade in food. Uh, that was a particularly vulnerable spot. The, the group actually met for many years, uh, and in the third meeting that I hosted in Mexico City in December of 2002, a new proposal was added that actually proved to be, to be pretty prescient, and that was to uh, extend the mandate of the group from man-made occurrences, mostly through terrorist uh, uh, actions, to also, also naturally occurring biological events. And the, obviously the logic, which we, we, we all understand, is that whatever the origin, the preparedness and response actions are actually the same. And particularly, the group started working on, uh, inf on uh, pandemic influenza, because, again, the awareness of, of the risk. Um, two of the first specific actions of this initiative were um, the organization of several working groups to consolidate relationships about the respective health ministries in, in the countries involved, and then, as I mentioned before, the creation of strategic reserves of vaccines and antibiotics. Um, among other things, we would talk, I heard in the morning the talk about the desktop exercises. Several of those were, were carried out among the eight countries, the G7 plus, plus Mexico. And then the relationship between Mexico and the U.S. in particular was very much strengthened after formalizing daily, daily communications between the CDC here and the equivalent, which in Mexico is called the National Center for Epidemiological Surveillance and, um, and, and Disease Control. Uh, US, the US government provided assistance in strengthening a network of 32 public health laboratories, many of them, of them on the border area. Um, and this, you know, obviously were meant to, to, to reinforce surveillance, not just for bioterrorist attacks, but for any other public health uh, a crisis in, in a broader sense. Um, so even today, as part of that uh, strengthening of or inclusion in, in the NAFTA of a health security dimension, there's a daily briefing between 
the, the epidemiologic surveillance agencies of the United States, the CDC, Canada, and Mexico. Every day there is such a, br a briefing that happens. We don't talk about those things, but it actually happens. Um, now, uh, this proved to be incredibly helpful with the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. Um, as you may remember, that happened in the outbreak was declared in March. So this was still the season for the regular uh, influenza pandemic was still going on everywhere. It took a very refined surveillance mechanism, which Mexico has developed over the years, um, a, to actually detect an abnormal disease distribution pattern of influenza cases in 2009, right in the middle of seasonal influenza. When that was detected, and, and let me add here a small footnote because I think these are important topics. At that point, I had just started as dean of the Harvard School of Public Health, and I was able to mention and realize that in the chain of command at the Mexican Department of Health, the Federal Department of Health, both the undersecretary that oversaw the uh, uh, disease uh, prevention and disease control and, and prevention, the head of the equivalent of the agency, so the equivalent of the assistant secretary of health, the head of the, of, uh, of the equivalent of the CDC, and the person specifically looking into pandemic uh, influenza had all received their advanced public health education in the United States, all of them. All of them had doctoral degrees in public health. In fact, two of them from Harvard, and the third one, I think, from Hopkins. So it just shows the, that, uh, that that proved to be incre an incredible story, because these three people were there. They were hugely competent. They were able to detect very early those anomalous patterns. When that was detected, samples were taken. Those samples were sent to the, uh, the lab at, in Health Canada, which had the equipment for the genomic sequencing of the virus. And that's how very quickly and very early it was discovered that this was a novel strain of influenza virus and that this was actually an outbreak of pandemic influenza, a novel event. And that led to Mexico quickly reporting, following strictly the international health regulations, quickly reporting, as you know, the other initial outbreak happened in Texas. And thanks to that, the world was saved from a much, much worse event. So, it, 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 and, and that was just the result of these daily practices of communication and having a formal framework. And it saved local communities a lot of, uh, uh, of hardship and maybe saved many millions of, of deaths. Um, so, as, as you all know, the, the United States during the past decade, the US government has spent approximately $3 trillion to reinforce its national securities, security. Some of these resources have been used to improve the strategic national stockpile of medicines and medical supplies, uh, the CDC information exchange system, the network of 150 laboratories, etc. Those investments get leveraged if there are simultaneous strengths across the world. And conversely, because every chain is only as strong as its weakest link, when there's not a global component, then whatever investments we do nationally become severely undermined 
by the lack of, 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 an, of an international perspective. Um, so, again, this, this is a, a way of illustrating that this dilemma between global and, and local is, is, is a false dichotomy. Everything is both uh, local and, 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 and global. Now, as the Blue Ribbon Study Panel Report on Biodefense states, and I'm quoting here, nowhere is the fragility of the human-animal disease boundary more pronounced than in developing nations from where the majority of new infectious agents are emerging. And that is the reality of the world we, we live. And because many of those nations often lack the public health infrastructure and capabilities to control the transport or spread of um, health agents or disease agents, multilateral cooperation is absolutely needed in this case. Now let me end by just um, mentioning what I think are some of the challenges we face in actually uh, uh, moving forward in multilateral cooperation. The first one has to do with the inherent weakness of global governance. You know, we don't live in a planet that has a global government. There is no such thing. We have a planet, the world polity is characterized by sovereign nation states, more or less since about the 18th century, there was an, uh, well, I don't know if agreement, the world has become organized by, according to this notion of sovereignty. So in global health, you have what I have called the sovereignty paradox. The health of populations is clearly a responsibility of national governments. Yet, the determinants of the health of those national populations and many of the means to protect the health of those national populations are beyond the control of those national governments that have the responsibility because they are related to events that happen in other sovereign nation and, uh, nations. And, 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 and that is the paradox that we have a world a polity structured around sovereign nation states, but we have realities that transcend the limits of that political organization of human societies on planet Earth. And that's not gonna change. If anything, the number of sovereign nation states has been growing at a pretty fast rate since World War II. Um, how do we solve that paradox is through multilateral organizations. The, the reason we have the United Nations or the World Health Organization is because countries need to then create spaces and mechanisms to deal with those shared threats that transcend the limits of national sovereignty. The problem is that those organizations, and this is the inherent structural weakness of global governance, is that in the absence of global government, which we don't have and we're not gonna have in our lifetimes and probably in our great-grandchildren lifetimes, we need to rely on global governance. But those structures lack the, the policy instruments that national governments have. They have very little enforcement powers. They basically can only impose very limited sanctions. And, uh, and basically, enforcement is very weak. They cannot tax. They cannot use the usual incentives and instruments of policy that national governments have. So when you're dealing with processes that operate at the global level, you have that structural weakness. Now, we've invented the multilateral system to deal with that. 
but we just got to be cognizant that that's a, 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 this big governance challenge. The second uh, big challenge which derives from the first is the problem of, um, uh, of um, uh, making sure that we balance the incentives to cooperate. And what I mean, I was listening to the last panel, the conversation about incentives. Um, there is a price on the current system, a, a, a huge cost, f uh, associated with epidemiological transparency. Uh, <clears throat> if you report on a timely fashion, you're likely to face restrictions of travel, trade, and, uh, and, and others that will affect you economically. I remember I was no longer the Secretary of Health. The pandemic in, in, in 2009 happened a few years after I had left uh, office, but I was following the events very closely. And Mexico, because it actually followed the IHR, the International Health Regulations, paid a huge, huge price in terms of uh, lack of tourism. And, and then there's the associated problem of countries, again, sovereign countries, that use the uh, health emergency to impose other kinds of restrictions that are not warranted and that are even counterproductive. Travel restrictions, we saw that with Ebola. Fortunately, the US government refrained from imposing travel restrictions because it was persuaded that that was counterproductive. But other countries like the Canadian government did not do that. And Canada actually imposed travel bans despite the evidence that that would not work and would actually be counterproductive. And then other countries use the opportunity to import, impose trade sanctions and advance their own trade positions. Um, so, you know, there were a number of very creative countries that during the swine flu decided that this, this was the opportunity to ban imports of meat, right? Because not just pork, by the way, all kinds of meat. Interestingly, some of those were countries that export meat. <laughs> so countries that misbehave and exploit the, the, uh, the emergency. Uh, it's, it's, it is, uh, I was part of the, um, uh, of a, a small review panel that was established by the Executive Committee of the World Health Organization to do an analysis of what happened with the Ebola. Ebola was the worst public relations disaster in the history of the World Health Organization. And there was a lot of criticism of the way the Secretariat, based in Geneva, handled particularly the communication. But frankly, the biggest problem was certainly what happened with the Secretariat, but it was also the, the, the way some of the governments that are the members of the World Health Organization misbehaved by imposing additional travel sanctions or, tra or taking advantage through this kind of, of, of trade uh, barriers that are Im implemented. So um, it's very hard. We have a, an, an international treaty called the International Health Regulations, but the enforcement powers are really uh, extremely weak. Uh, on the bright side, when we actually get it right, you do get examples of what happened with H1N1. And that leads to the question of incentives. We gotta figure a way in which countries that actually report in a timely basis are not sanctioned. It's actually what happens internally. A big problem in handling the questions of avian flu has been that if you are a peasant in China and you actually report and then the consequences is that all your chickens and et cetera are called and that 
totally threatens your livelihood, you are going to have a very strong disincentive to report any uh, a, a problem with the, with with, uh, with with your um, birds. That happens at the country at the country level as well. So we need to figure out a way in which. And this is one of the re many recommendations that have come up of, of, uh, after the review of, of, of these challenges to not create a disincentive for uh, timely uh, uh, reporting and, and for actually being in compliance with the international health regulations. Um, the other thing we need is to create um, mechanisms for shared learning. Uh, and uh, there's, a, uh, uh, there's a almost ebb and flow of public attention close to every uh, one of these incidents, everyone becomes acutely aware, and then as soon as the acute crisis is controlled, public awareness goes away, and, and we ha are slow to build a set of, um, of lessons learned so that we uh, get on a cycle of, of improving our response. Since the question is not if, but when the next outbreak will happen, and I hope, um, you know, the viruses don't keep track of centennials and don't decide to celebrate the 100th anniversary of this, by the way, incorrectly called Spanish flu because it did not originate in Spain, but it is the 100th anniversary of that uh, major catastrophe. The question is not whether it's going to happen, uh, but what, when it's going to happen. And therefore, the stakes are, are huge. We need to engage in a process of shared learning where actually global instruments like surveillance that require strong levels of cooperation then inform local action and then documenting what worked and didn't work in the local response feeds back into the global pool of experience so that other communities can benefit from that. Then we create a virtuous cycle between the local and the global. Let me finish by quoting um, one of my favorite people, Nobel laureate Amartya Sen, who in an uh, international symposium on human security said the following, which I think is uh, very much applicable to, to, to the topic of the, of, of the Blue Ribbon panel. He said, we live in a world that is not only full of dangers and threats, but also one where the nature of the adversities is better understood the scientific advances are more firm, and economic and social assets that can counter these menaces are more extensive. Not only do we have more problems to face, we also have more opportunities to deal with them. Um, I think the work of the uh, uh, Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense is an example of the kinds of opportunities this meeting today is exactly what we require in global health. A, a, a mechanisms that will foster understanding about the nature of common threats, such as large-scale uh, biological, large biological events, and that mobilize scientific evidence and shared commitment to face common threats uh, as the most powerful instruments we have to prepare and respond to the inevitability of those events. Thank you very much, and if... Uh, I don't know if, I, 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 if we have some time or uh, for, for any question, I'm, I'm happy. Um, questions for Dr. Frank? Anyone have a question? Um, why don't I uh, 
why don't our star I'm interested in your point about incentives. Um, incentives might work on the individual farmer, but it won't necessarily work on the country. If particularly if they think that they're going to lose large amounts of money. Um, so what, how do we sanction the countries? We can, they can, we can organize the infrastructure, the local governments and the individuals, but how do we sanction the country? I mean, you've spent, you've lived at the World Health Organization. Yeah, no, I, I did uh, work the, at the at Deutsche Actually, that's when I, when I met Donna, she was secretary here and, um, you know, the, a dramatic example was SARS. And um, a, I mean, the Chinese government very, very explicitly, and this was later on acknowledged, uh, delayed reporting. They were very fearful of the sanctions. And then there is an issue of um, almost reputational risk. Um, and, and, and that proved to be, uh, you know, in the end you had cities like Toronto paying the price for those delays in early reporting. And the impact on the, particularly the Asian economy, but as I say, as far as Toronto, were, 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 were huge. Um, the, the problem we have is, the, you know, we do have the international health regulations. They were strengthened after the SARS uh, uh, event. Um, but there's still very little that the World Health Organization can do to sanction. Uh, it's, it's more the, the pressure, and, and China has greatly improved its reporting, and you know, they've created something called actually the CDC in China. But that was an example of, of, uh, of a very deliberate attempt fearing economic consequences and reputational consequences that had uh, deadly consequences. Um, the the counterexample, you know, again, is, is what happened to Mexico. Uh, now, Mexico is a, you know, upper middle income economy. It's a large economy. It was able to withstand that. Uh, but, you know, the, the uh, co combined with the, also the other effects of 9-11, I mean, it threw the economy into a recession um, in, in, in a m bigger way than the rest of the world. Uh, now, the country is large enough that it was able to withstand that and eventually recover and, and life went on. But for many, many countries, it, that would, especially frail economies, that would be devastating. I do think there is need to create some mechanism to compensate countries that report on a timely basis uh, for some, especially I'm, I'm talking of poor countries, frail economies, like you know the ones that were affected, for example, from, from Ebola, from the consequences. And then we need better enforcement, both for, country, for countries that misbehave, both countries that fail to report, but also countries that you know, either engage in um, uh, actions that may be popular with, with the public and create a false sense of protection, like travel bans. But uh, as we saw with, uh, with Ebola, which were counterproductive to the effort, which the WHO had explicitly said or recommended against, and nonetheless in, in, engaged in that, um, or countries that use it for advancing trade positions. Uh, so, so the misbehavior happens in both the affected countries and the rest of the countries. And in fact, 
that misbehavior reinforces because part, part of the consequences that you fear if you report on a timely basis is other countries reacting to that by forbidding travel or uh, taking advantage in terms of improving their trade position. Um, so the specific suggestion that's been there, and, 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 and there are some elements, uh, the World Bank, after Ebola, has created an insurance mechanism. And the World Bank now administers an insurance mechanisms for poor countries to protect them from the uh, economic consequences of reporting on time. So we've, we've started making some progress in that particular direction. The other form of misbehavior is much harder because we, we, we don't have uh, enforcement mechanisms. But that, that's been a specific element of progress. Yes. Is there, and if not, uh, is there, or if not, should there be some kind of international treaty or agreement on this subject of there is, you know, it's the, it's the international health regulations. In fact, if you go back to the origins of international cooperation, at the end of the 19th century, um, uh, it was all driven by the health effects on trade. And so already in the late 19th century, with the growth of, of international trade, you have the first international um, treaties to control quarantines on ports. And uh, although the idea of quarantines is very old, you have for initial uh, massive um, treaties uh, around quarantines. Uh, those then evolve with the establishment in, in 1902, you have the creation of the Pan American Health Organization. It was totally motivated by the construction of the Panama Canal. And it was meant to, to deal with the health risks associated particularly controlling malaria which was the reason the French gave up and sold it to President Roosevelt, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, because they were losing uh, um, workers to, to malaria. And that created what was originally called the Pan American Sanitary Bureau. And then it goes on, the, the World Health Organization is founded after World War II as part of the UN family. The League of Nations had a health agency, but it was not very effective. Then you have the World Health Organization and it's evolved. It's, it's, it's the reason to create it was mostly to protect against these events as a way of encouraging global trade. And that has led more recently to this treaty, and it has a level of treaty called the International Health Regulations. They were substantially strengthened after 2002 with, with SARS, 2002. But, uh, and, and you know, it, it's, they're very, I, I don't know, we have a, a lawyer and uh, she might, my non-legal lens is that they are actually pretty well structured. They were adopted unanimously, but every country in the world has adhered to them. Um, but the enforcement powers are very limited. Um, so, so that is what I was referring as the, the structural flaw in, in global governance. And uh, it requires a lot of, of, of will, and it does require some compensatory mechanisms for the poor economies to create the necessary incentives. Uh, okay, let's thank Dr. Frank for joining us today.
for um, uh, Joseph Henderson is the Director of Safety, Security, and Asset Management in the Office of the Chief Operating Officer at CDC. Um, and uh, faculty for the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative at the T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Michael Frazier, who just got off an airplane, is the Executive Director of the Association of State and Terri Territorial Health Officers. Uh, we'll start with Joe so that Michael can take All the way around. Yeah. I thought I was in a trap for a minute. So we'll start with Mike. Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, so, Michael, why don't we start with you? Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for coming, by the way. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity to come to Miami in January. <laughs> um, and again, it's an honor to, to be with the panel today and, and distinguished guests. Um, ASTHO is the national association that represents state and territorial health officials, folks like Dr. Phillip, who presented earlier today, uh, in every state and territory responding on a daily basis to threats to the to public health and uh, promoting the health of our nation at the state level. Um, and I think that's important um, to put this in context. We have 59 states and territories, all of whom approach uh, bioterrorism preparedness slightly differently. And within those states, as, as you all well know, there's a lot of variation locally. So a response here in Florida would be very different from a response potentially in the Pacific Northwest or in the New England states or other kinds of contexts like Pennsylvania. Um, the main uh, message I think that our state health officials would want to share in reaction to uh, the panel's report and their priorities is um, to acknowledge that patchwork that we have across the country and that there won't be one approach to preparedness uh, in every place. And that um, certainly when it comes to public health preparedness, we depend as states a great deal on um, federal guidance and leadership when it comes primarily to um, surge capacity, scientific capacity, uh, to really amplify the state's capacity to respond. Um, but states also have particular expertise, and especially in the large states, uh, tremendous capacity to, to respond, capability to respond. It's really the issue of scaling the public health response, especially when um, a potential bio threat uh, becomes quite large, crosses state lines, that we begin to face uh, complications. Um, the, Reaction to um, the recommendations, as far as I understand them, has been quite supportive. Um, and subsequent to the report, we've also had annual reports by Trust for America's Health around uh, Ready or Not. The National um, Health Security Index has come out. So I think there's a lot of harmony between the panel's recommendations and these other national reports, all of which mention the need for um, continued increases to uh, preparedness resources from the federal level to states. Uh, and I think it's important to point out that um, since 2002, where we were at our high mark in terms of preparedness funding from uh, federal agencies to states at 940 million, for example, in the Public Health Emergency Preparedness Program, uh, that number's gone down to 667 million in FY17. Uh, same is true with the hospital preparedness program, two big uh, invest, federal investments at the state level. 
And I think uh, that's concerning when we look at the fact that threats continue to evolve and the capacity uh, of states really is dependent on federal dollars to support state and local response. Um, these, the, the novel pathogens we all talk about um, happen, and certainly Zika was a great case of um, what a state response looks like and then what a regional response looks like. But Zika wasn't isolated to, to Florida or to Texas. In fact, it was a national event, primarily because of the communications involved, the travel involved, and the questions that people have across the nation around, what does this mean for me? And I was just in a place, where do, what do I do now? Those kinds of questions. Um, and I think we've seen, uh, through Zika, a lot of learning. We talked about, um, certainly we can uh, talk a little bit more about funding streams and how those work federally, um, and sometimes inhibit uh, response in terms of timing, but also the administrative preparedness that, um, that we need to consider in terms of drawing down federal funds to respond to some of the uh, reporting requirements that, that could be eased for states, granting some flexibility. You mentioned, Secretary Shalala, the block grant approach, which I think would be favored by most of our state health officials in terms of a mechanism. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we've made great improvements in the, the national reports like Ready or Not and, and the index show that things are improving in most places, but there continue to be some significant gaps. Certainly, um, the ones that are top of mind for state health officials include um, our surveillance capability in real time so that we're uh, using uh, good data quickly to make decisions versus uh, some of the lag that comes from reporting through healthcare delivery and public health sources. Um, the, the real need to link uh, much more, I guess, uh, forcefully, if you will, uh, or urgently, um, information in medical records and electronic health records with um, public health data. And there's lots of efforts to do that. There's been years of work uh, federally supporting uh, information exchange. We're not there yet, and I think it's, uh, again, another place for the uh, study panel to look in terms of what is our real-time capability to detect and respond to bio events using medical record data. Um, we continue to see uh, issues related to scale and spread of uh, preparedness activities, so certainly um, had Ebola become a much larger event, would have been in, in many ways extremely dangerous um, because the, the limited capacity that we have to respond was all used for really a very few number of patients. So, um, and, and again, it's going to depend on the state. We heard from Boston today and their excellent response to the marathon bombing was part because of the resource that they have there. That was in another place, potentially with uh, limited uh, medical institutions. Uh, we might have seen a very different outcome for the folks involved. One thing that uh, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about this morning, but I think is particularly important for the study panel to consider is not just folks who are infected and how we get countermeasures to them, um, but also the communications aspect of all of, all of this. And where's the public information? Um, again, Secretary, you, you mentioned that uh, you like to use uh, white coats for uh, briefings for that trusted, credible voice. Um, and, and I would agree with you, you know, how do, who does the public turn to and how do we get messages out, um, whether it's an emergency or just a particularly bad flu season like we're experiencing right now. And I think that's uh, extremely important role that public health agencies play and uh, also creates a, a lot of challenges because you've got 59 states and territories each saying 
uh, you know, how someone should take precautions or turning to CDC potentially um, for information. Yeah, I used to make the CDC directors put white coats on. They never put white coats on. <laughs> I told them they had to look like docs. We, yes. still, we still have them. Still yeah. <laughs> um, another need that I think um, is, is in, in the report, and it needs to be articulated, and there's a lot of debate around this one, is can we define the foundational capabilities needed to respond effectively to a, a bio event, or uh, more generally, what foundational capabilities are needed across the country to support an effective public health system when it comes to uh, all aspects of public health, but particularly around uh, communicable disease. Is it six epidemiologists and 42 public health advisors and three communications experts? You know, very much like a, a hospital knows how many nursing staff it needs, are we able to get a goal or a target for explaining the core capacity needed and then uh, ask for funding for that amount. I, it's confusing to me um, to say that in, you know, in some state an epidemiologist is uh, master's level prepared, but in another state it has to be PhD level prepared and then expect the same kind of response activities uh, across the nation. And that's something we as public health leaders have to uh, own. And, uh, and suggest as uh, a way to build our public health capacity. Um, and those foundational capabilities don't exist. Uh, I think we all have a sense of what they are. There have been attempts to do that, but there hasn't been consensus in the public health community over what a, a, a well-resourced public health system would look like, and then what would that look like across the country. Um, I, I guess I would, I would add just uh, a couple other points before turning over to, to my colleague. Um, one of the areas where public health also is developing particular expertise is identifying um, how to prepare and uh, respond to events that include vulnerable populations and uh, health disparities. And we talked a little bit about um, this morning about where you live can, can determine if you live. And I think that's an important role that public health plays in terms of thinking about um, populations that may be uh, isolated economically, socially, uh, I know here in Florida, a lot of work is done with uh, medically fragile and elderly evacuations and other expertise that health department brings to response. Um, getting the community engaged and prepared, I think, is a big challenge we all face. Uh, I think that the, uh, the, the need for public awareness um, locally and then more generally at the state level around what uh, they should do and how they should do it in, in a... Uh, bioterrorism event, and again, uh, whether that's mother nature or intentional, uh, is another place to continue to, to build. Um, there was conversation earlier about funding streams. I'm happy to, to pick up on that after, after Joe's remarks and, and have some conversation there. So, thank you. Uh, thanks. I, I, I was going to say good morning, but uh, I didn't realize it takes nine hours to get here from Atlanta <laughs> if we have a half of an inch of snow. So um, I'm glad I'm here. I'm sorry I missed. <laughs> I, thank you. Um, but I am glad to be here. And so thank you, Dr. George, for the invitation. And Secretary Shalala, last time we actually met was in the 90s when I was working in a national immunization program. We were working hard to raise immunization rates of two-year-olds. and. A hugely successful campaign and really appreciate your support with that. 
uh, with Jeff Copeland as our director at CDC. Uh, Representative Greenwood, thank you for your work in, in this field. Um, you know, I had thought about how I was going to prepare remarks. I didn't want to come across too formal. Uh, I just ended a 33-year career in the federal government, and I spent the past 18 years thinking about preparedness and response. Um, I was actually the deputy director of the Bioterrorism Preparedness and Response Program at CDC before 9-11, before the anthrax events. Uh, we did have a, a very small amount of money uh, from the Clinton administration to help us think about uh, what happens if these novel agents, anthrax, smallpox, are reintroduced in the population uh, in some mischievous way. And then 9-11 hit, the anthrax events, and of course everything scaled up. And uh, Mike Fraser mentioned 2002 when we had such a huge amount of funds available to support public health preparedness and response. And uh, at the time, I was the first director of the Office of Terrorism, Preparedness, and Emergency Response at CDC. Um, and so I, I thought what I would do is, um, instead of going over my resume, I kind of wanted to talk about my story and, and, and my concerns and areas where I see we have tremendous strengths and areas where I see huge weaknesses and, and maybe pretty fantastic opportunities. And, and I think this panel is a, a, a platform or a forum where you know, these types of things can be even amplified in a greater way. Uh, and then I'll end my talk about the importance of, of leadership in this space. Um, in 2002, Mike remembers this because we worked very closely together when he was with the National Association of City and County Health Officials, and now he's the executive director of that group. Um, so we've shared this journey for quite a long time in looking at uh, federal capacity, how the feds, the states, and the locals work together. We've seen great successes. We've seen some missed opportunities. I, I think even the recent hurricanes um, of last year showed where we still have some weaknesses. We have some areas that I think we've done quite well. We have a long way to go. In 2002, I had the privilege of working with D.A. Henderson and writing this massive grant program for the states that was going to infuse a, almost a billion dollars into state and local health agencies. And, you know, I had to struggle with the traditionalists in public health who saw this as another supplement, another quick jab in the arm, you know, two or three years where we have all this money uh, that we infuse into our public health system just to watch that money uh, drift away and our infrastructure and our capabilities go back to what they were. It wasn't a strengthening exercise. The position that I took with support from Julie Gerberding at the time was we needed to focus on this and it has to be considered an essential core service of public health, just like surveillance, laboratory capacity, et cetera. We have to think 10 years out, not two years, not five years, which is a typical grant program performance period. And we just celebrated the 15, year, the 15 year anniversary of the Public Health Emergency Preparedness Grant at CDC. When I spoke at that event, I talked about the idea that we put in motion in 2002 with help and support from my colleagues like Mike Frazier and others, uh, we didn't want this to go away. We didn't want it to be seen as a supplemental funding activity that would quickly dry up and we wouldn't have capacity. Uh, we did great work then and we did it because we worked hand in hand with our state and local partners. Uh, I'm proud that CDC as a federal agency takes it very seriously. We always say whatever we do in a state, we're invited in. Whatever we do in a local jurisdiction, we're invited in. We don't plow our way in and disrupt all the local capacity by taking over and then fumbling the football. Uh, and I think that's something that we continue to build on. I would say in our system today, it continues to be a strength. Um, I had the privilege uh, over the past uh, 18 years to travel to Israel four times. I looked at Israel's capacity, whether it's the distribution of medical countermeasures, how they communicate when there's an emergency, how do you contact family members if there's a big event and you can't locate your children. 
I was amazed at the capacity and the culture of preparedness and readiness that they have in Israel. Um, it isn't all transferable to what we can do here in our culture. Our cultures are just that different. Um, but there is an awful lot we can learn. And I think, uh, I wish I'd spent more time in other countries because I think other countries have certain capacities that we don't have that we probably could learn a lot more from them as well. Um, I'll, I'll end with this notion. In 2002, I was at an uh, APHA conference and I was uh, met by Lenny Marcus, uh, Dr. Lenny Marcus, who's the co-director with David Gergen of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. It wasn't even uh, in place at the time. Uh, Lenny asked me would I be interested in talking uh, about a work we could do with the School of Public Health and I said yes I'm very interested and what we need is we need something that focuses on leadership. It can't be one school because we at the time we had 32 accredited schools of public health. We can't just go with one school because then all the other 31 would want to know where's their share of the money. So I asked if we could build a collaborative between the Kennedy School and the School of Public Health. Uh, in other words we had to practice what we were preaching. Uh, we formed a very comprehensive and I think quite uh, sound program based upon our meta leadership model. This summer we're going to graduate our 800th candidate and the whole entire training is focused on improving the capacity for people to lead not only in crisis but to lead when they're preparing for the crisis and to lead when they're recovering when the crisis is no longer a crisis. Uh, we're very proud of that accomplishment. I think anything we do going forward, leadership and the training of leaders and every generation has to undergird our efforts if we're going to be successful in the future. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> so b both of you talked a lot about federal money and, and, and how it's ebbed and flowed and so forth. Uh, could you help me understand um, the, the, where states see their role in funding and preparing for these kinds of events? And um, because I would imagine having been a state legislator it's always easier to have Uncle Sam send the money in, and there's probably not a lot of good politics in, in appropriating money to this kind of thing because nobody sees it. I think others have said today no one sees it as an imminent threat or imminent of imminent value. So you know what's going on all the states. <clears throat> what have you, what, what's going on, and, and is it and how much variance is there between the states? There, there's a tremendous amount of variance in terms of what states put in of their own general funds or other uh, dollars for uh, public health in general related to biodefense as well. Uh, I've seen states where half their budget is state funds and the other half come primarily from federal funds. I've seen states where it's 85, almost 90% of their public health agency is federally funded. I think that's the reality of, of state budgets these days. and. Um, a lot of pushback uh, around the federal investments and well shouldn't states have some skin in the game and I think that the difficulty there is where would they get that um, with existing resources going to so many other priorities in the state and I you know I, I think most health officials would say that we we've got no extra money and if we did the governor wouldn't or the legislature wouldn't put it in public health they'd put it in either healthcare delivery if it's got to stay in health or they do roads and schools and, and other places that are priorities for the state because as you mentioned these aren't necessarily the, the top of mind things unfortunately and I think most members of Congress would say the same thing yeah <laughs> <laughs> so Joe 32 years doing this stuff um, if tomorrow you could mesmerize the president in the Congress into doing exactly what you told them to do what would you do what would you tell them to do mesmerize um, uh, you know, I, I think, I mean, that's a great question, and it's really not going to be an easy answer. I, I think we have to be clear what it means to create institutions that develop leaders, that select for leaders, that are highly competitive. 
Um, I had the pleasure a couple of years ago sitting down with Catherine Archuleta when she was the director of OPM, and I was introducing this idea within the SES ranks, the Senior Executive Service, of creating what I was calling a SEAL Team 6 for SES. The absolute best of the best, and we use the SEAL Team model where you select only the top performers. People wash out. Some people don't make it. But the ones that do, you put them in positions where they have a tremendous amount of responsibility because the SES, they're there from one administration to the next, so there's your continuity. But then you have to start early on. You have to create emerging leader opportunities. You have to make sure young people see the capacity that they could build as leaders to become SES and really bring change. But let me, <clears throat> specifically, how does, how does the federal government make that happen? Those things happen. Well, one, I mean, if it comes from the top down, which I found at CDC, it absolutely must. You know, if you have a president, if you have the leaders of the executive branch, and they're saying this is important, and they know what this is, and we start to build that culture of leadership, they have to be satisfied with the notion that they can begin the process. They'll see very little built in their tenure. But 10, 20 years down the road, they'll see that they have uh, an institution now that's building leaders within our government. We just don't, we don't have it. We have pockets where there's some entities that have done this. And where I've seen it be successful is because it's had that top-down support for many, many years. So when we spent the billion dollars, <clears throat> or whatever it was, in 2002, um, I was I was there, I was appropriating those funds, um, and I know we, <clears throat> it was, we overreacted and we, we didn't really know how to react. We did a lot of things wrong, we did some things right. Are there, were there overreactions or, or misdirected actions that, that began then that still persist and, and need to really be undone? You want to take one? So one of the things, I, I had actually spent, um, Four year, five years in New York State Department of Health. I worked with Tony Novello when she was the Commissioner of Health. I was the senior CDC, senior management official assigned to the state. And I learned a lot about our total investments in the state. And CDC wasn't even fully aware of all the investments we were making because we tend to do things very categorically. Like we might know infectious, the infectious disease folks will know some of their infectious disease, but then if you have health, health promotion, chronic disease prevention programs, the two don't talk to each other. I think one of the opportunities we missed is leveraging all those investments and making sure there's some, um, you know, some flexible language in those grants that allow a state or local health agency to have some capacity to use those funds flexibly to support preparedness and response while they're also focusing on their SCD program, TB, injury programs, et cetera. I, I think we missed a huge opportunity to leverage money. So what happened is we had a, you know, the almost a billion dollar grant program that became the biggest uh, dog in the fight. And, and it, it, it overshadowed everything, even right. HIV. And, and I think it's important to note that those investments in preparedness came at a time when there was decreases to other public health right. programs. So there was a lot of threat to supplantation of existing activity at the state level. I know the state and local health departments that were concerned about maintaining their environmental health capabilities to do restaurant inspections. They would um, look to uh, resources they could use to do more than one thing. And I think we talked about that today when it comes to the facility side, you know, converting a garage or converting a cafeteria. Um, that gives you this extra space. Um, but isn't something that you need to turn on every day. We don't have a similar kind of model in public health. There's no slack or surge in terms of what public health has available. So while there's a tremendous bolus of, of investment federally, I think the, the frame was to not create another categorical program, but instead to underwrite um, core capacity 
And with these cuts to preparedness over time, that's going to erode our core capacity over time as well, not just for biosecurity, but also general public health work. Thank you. That's all I have. Michael, could you talk a little, we haven't talked enough about the territorial health officials and their challenges. Could you say something? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, we have 59 states and territories. And uh, here in Miami, you probably think about the Caribbean territories. We also have uh, six Pacific territories, including Guam. Um, and of, of those, three are freely associated states that have different relationships with the federal government in terms of um, policy related to healthcare, in particular Medicaid, that's re relevant to this conversation. Territories are, are a really interesting uh, sort of amalgam of a, of a, of a state, uh, and in some with those three, of a country, but also of a very local uh, approach to public health. Most of the territories um, are small in terms of population, Puerto Rico obviously being a, an exception there. <clears throat> and um, they primarily are involved in the delivery of healthcare services. So it's not uncommon for um, the territorial governments to run a hospital, and as part of that hospital is their public health function. Um, and so there's an opportunity there for integration, but obviously healthcare delivery and sort of the workforce problems and getting folks to practice in those areas is, is a huge challenge. I think that we have um, overlooked the strategic location of our Pacific territories as sentinels. Um, I know they are very attuned to what happens in China, in um, Guam, and in the Northern Mariana Islands because of the back and forth between the islands and their proximity to Asia. Um, I think with certainly uh, flu and, and other potential threats out of Asia, the territories could often be the first place we see it. if the capacity is there to detect it. Um, I've visited the territories, I've visited some of the lab capacity, it's certainly improving, but for any uh, sort of major or complicated activity, they've gotta go either to Hawaii or to another country in the Pacific area for confirmation or you know, go, get to Atlanta somehow. So um, there's tremendous need there. They're, they're facing a lot of uh, threats specifically around the delivery of care but certainly uh, in terms of surveillance and all the other core public health functions, there's a lot of need in, in all the territories. And I think Zika highlighted that both in the Caribbean but also in the Pacific. Now we have a CDC director that actually comes out of your organization. Yeah, now, yeah, it's fantastic. Which means that uh, she actually understands the role of the states. Um, it'll be interesting to see. My hope is that you've had lots of conversations with her we we have she was actually slated to be our president so and she she was very active in ASTHO and um certainly is well very well versed in um, the differences across the country and i think we'll bring that to her her leadership role at cdc yeah um, many people are confused about cdc's role and i think that texas um, uh, texas and ebola confused people there it was a state responsibility and everybody was thinking of cdc as a line uh, organization that actually could administer something as opposed to just giving advice. What do you think the the challenges are within CDC to to reestablish what its role actually is? Because there seems to be confusion, not at the state level, because the state officials actually understand that, but in the public about what CDC's capacity actually is. It certainly is not line management. Even when it goes into a foreign country, it doesn't take over the management. Um, 
Because I'm speaking, yeah, you right. know, with a pension, right? So, um, so am I. So am I. I think uh, I think it's it's really disciplined. I think we we weren't as disciplined when we were dealing with um, the public, when we were dealing with our state and local colleagues. Um, I remember missing opportunities, even working with Emory University when we had to provide a security escort for that first patient that had to be isolated in that special ward that we you know, developed with Emory at Emory Hospital. Um, and, and, you know, I, I saw us stepping in and being more muscular than we probably should have been when we should have been listening, assessing. I think, you know, Tom Fried, I, I, he did believe there was a sense of urgency. There was so much we didn't know that we were almost asking for forgiveness instead of permission. Um, the discipline has to, has to come back. I think Dr. Fitzgerald, our new director, is a very disciplined public health professional. I'm not saying Tom Frieden wasn't. I think Tom was fabulous. But um, under the circumstances, having seen it firsthand. But Tom was used to running things. Yeah. 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 Um, and discipline's a key. You know, when I said in 2002, when we work with state and local health agencies, even before 9-11, there was always this collaborative discipline. You know, we were respectful. We wouldn't dare, especially in New York State, you don't dare come in here and do that because it's going to lead to, you know, a bad feeling. It's going to lead to a future challenge. So I think discipline is really the key. I think the, the more that we promote CDC activity in the field, and there are a lot of CDC field assignees, um, the better our responses will be because they'll know the local environment. I'm concerned with the... Um, EIS program. They actually have declined in the number of EIS officers they're able to support, and we're back to, I think, 1980s level of EIS yeah. training um, because they can't support, you know, full cadre and expand the program, and I think that's the wrong the wrong direction to go in. But um, I'm always surprised when I visit us. have a big impact on the rest of the world because they're always international. That's correct. And I think that's worth looking at. I mean, I think that's, our, again, it's one of the frontline ways that CDC is active. But if you go visit a state or territory health department, unless that, uh, one of the employees is a member of the Commission Corps wearing a uniform, you would know that they're um, detailed to a state health department. And there are many uh, CDC FTEs in states helping uh, capacity build, get experience, do research. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, I think, a very complementary relationship. Hopefully the, the new leadership can establish that kind of discipline. The, the, because part of the discussion today was everybody knowing their roles, being properly funded, and it being a collaborative process. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I think the issue that, that I've seen in all my experience is when um, CDC established this guidance and states weren't fully engaged in the pre-decisional guidance. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that's just a matter of urgency, something like Ebola. I mean, there's plenty of time to after action that. You know, we need to control that. Certainly around Zika, there were times when guidance changed. Guidance changed between states. States were developing guidance to providers. CDC was developing guidance for providers. And those things need to be harmonized. And that's just a human problem around communication mm -hmm. that hopefully we can do better there. That's one area for improvement. giving you the opportunity to talk about uh, some final thoughts on leadership. Then one of the, uh, you know, one of the things about any kind of disaster or emergency, uh, but particularly in the healthcare and public health communities when we talk about disease-related emergencies and disasters, 
is that it gets, it, it really does, uh, it shows us where our vulnerabilities are uh, and our weaknesses are. And I think that in the, particularly in the public health community, uh, but also I guess healthcare, we, we have some weak leadership issues to, to, to contend with. Um, I think part of it is just socio-cultural. Um, you, you know, doctors have a particular personality, uh, you know, in, in the healthcare uh, delivery environment, but they are used to dealing with individuals, not, you know, big groups of people all at once. And uh, the public health community, you know, we, we, we go to school and we don't have a whole heck of a lot going on in the way of leadership um, coursework even. Uh, but, um, you know, time and again now, we're being put in these positions where we're having to deal with outbreaks and, and such. Um, you know, issues of bioterrorism are certainly going to start here, you know, again, that's what we, what we think. So, if you could just, just give us some thoughts on, on how you think we can improve uh, leadership. Um, you know, we, we talk about funding, you know, we need more funding, okay. And we talk about the need to look 10 years, 20 years down the road, and we say, Oh, it's not if not it's not if but when, um, and there are 12 million things to, to deal with, and it's very hard for people to get their arms around stuff. But one thing we can do right now, without a whole lot of extra money, is um, deal with the leadership issue and increase the number of leaders we have. You talk about dual use. You know, I, I don't know that, that it even matters what scenario you're putting those people into. Leadership is important. We need more leaders. So. Yeah, I, I'll let Joe conclude on this one because I know this is your passion, Joe. It's, I, certainly, I share that. Yeah. Uh, certainly when it comes to state health officials and territorial health officials, we're very concerned that they are able to lead their agencies and that they're well prepared for the difficult jobs they have, both in crisis but also the day-to-day. The day and so we uh, onboard all of our new state health officials through a, a Ask the Leadership Institute that provides that foundational um, instruction in leadership competency, which is usually different from what they were trained in as subject matter experts, whether they were physicians or scientists or um, leading in, in other areas. Um, I think that you're right. I mean, building leadership capability is extremely important and that um, most of the challenges that come out of uh, after actions have to do with people working together, sectors collaborating, uh, common understandings of a problem and really um, sticking to a plan that was developed collaboratively. And that requires leadership. Those aren't necessarily scientific problems. Those aren't necessarily stuff problems. They're people. Mm -hmm. And um, I think work like Harvard's in, in the meta leadership space, um, but even some of the new public health leadership programs in other schools, there's, those are going to make a tremendous difference. And I spent a couple of weeks at Harvard talking to public health students, and one of the things, they kept asking me how they could get to the federal government to make policy, and I kept saying to them, you've got to know something first, <laughs> and if you want to go work in a, in a local health department. Mm -hmm. One of my concerns as secretary was making sure I had enough people who had actually been on the ground, as opposed to starting out their careers um, higher up, uh, in the system at the federal level. The strongest, some of the strongest people that I worked with had actually worked locally at the state level um, and then came uh, to federal service. And that gave them a very different mm -hmm. feel uh, for what the issues were, what the challenges were at the local level. They just asked 
um, very different questions. Right. Um, but to try to take a generation of young people and tell them the action that's really at the local level and local health departments and state health departments and then figure out whether they can get a career track to move to the CDC or to major health agencies at the federal uh, level. I think training leaders is fine if they get in those positions, but I sure would like them to have some real experience. Mm -hmm. I, I think programs like the Public <coughs> Health Associate Program is a yeah. tremendous opportunity. There aren't enough of them. I think there's, there's ways that commissioned officers are exposed. But, I, you know, as recently as last week, I had some uh, conversations with top HHS folks that used to work in states, and they reminded me that no, they said, no one around here asks what the states are going to think when we make this yeah. decision. And, you know, then we wonder why we have implementation or execution problems on the ground. And I think that that's very, that you could fix that through the kinds yeah, of things yeah, you're talking about. Early in my career, I went to HUD. I was the Assistant Secretary for Policy at HUD, and I had two secretaries, both liberal Democrats. One was Pat Harris, who was an African-American, former dean of the Howard Law School, who was a civil rights lawyer. And she saw the world from Washington and really wanted to regulate the heck out of state and local governments. She was followed by Moon Landrieu, who was mayor of New Orleans. His son is now mayor of New Orleans. Moon constantly said to me, is this an appropriate role for the federal government? And they were two liberal Democrats that saw the world from where they sat and what their experience was. And it was mm -hmm. a very important lesson yep. in leadership. Um, I, you know, we, we all have these um, episodes where we subject people to learning, whether it's didactic training, experiential learning, there's hundreds of labels. The Leadership and Management Institute that CDC supported for years. Um, a lot of the schools of public health have leadership offerings. Uh, one of the things that I'm always fighting is, and especially talking to young folks, you're not gonna be a leader because you've accumulated a whole bunch of these episodic moments you're just going to have a body of knowledge. Yeah, yeah. And, and we're going to pay a lot in tuition. Um, I've never been intentionally developed as a leader. I, the only time I can say I even came close was when I spent nine years in the U.S. Air Force. They can't afford not to. You know, when you step into the military, one foot, and you know you were in, one foot was on the pathway to be always better in your technical skill, whether you're driving a tank or you're leading men and women in combat. The other foot was always on improving your leadership capacity making sure that you were thinking about your followers so you didn't put them in harm's way, and at the end of the day, you win. You have to win something. We don't think like that in public health. So leadership was always, it was always the last thing an administration was really interested in, like the last year of a two-term presidency, and it was always the first thing that lost money when the new administration came in. There was no support for building the institution and the institution is complicated. Uh, we developed a model uh, for my program at CDC, and it's around this community of practice for leadership, and it had three key pieces to it. One was you had to have leadership as part of your performance plan and your development plan. So you're meeting with your leaders and your staff all the time to make sure that you're exposing them to experiences that are gonna test their ability to be leaders. And it was competency-based, so we had something to constantly look back on. Are you, are you setting clear direction? Are you developing leaders around you, et cetera? Uh, then you did send them to training. If there was training that you could score in some way to know it was valuable training, not just training that was in a book and they went to the Federal Executive Institute and came back and said, I, I got the certificate, even the MPLI at Harvard. 
And then the third thing is you had to get people before they were put into a leadership position, you had to test if they really had what it takes. And it, and it requires the observation and the feedback through coaching or mentoring or even um, through some type of an action learning project where you're going to have to have them present or, or um, you, know, you kind of put them on the hot seat. You really see, you know, do they have the mental to be leaders? This is just a small example of something that needs to be done. But if we're not teaching our leaders to be adaptable, knowing that the, ch the conditions of our work constantly change, then they're not going to be relevant. And, and disciplines like public health will continue to suffer. Thank our panelists. You're Thank you. Thank you. I guess this slid in the uh, I think we're going to do a couple <laughs> pictures up here. <laughs> As the meeting uh, comes to the close, um, let me uh, turn to uh, Congressman Jim Greenwood uh, to say a few words. Well, first, thank you so much. Uh, it's been great to, to have you here. Thank you for, the, for those of you who spoke and those of you who didn't who are here as well. I think the, the panel and, and uh, the professional staff of the panel has come over the last uh, few years to understand that the paradigm uh, of the, the state, uh, the federal government leading in the state, local, tribal, territorial following is not, is not the right paradigm and that the paradigm actually should be the other way, that the state, local, territorial, and tribal sh uh, 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 should lead and the federal government follow. And, um, and so it's, it's incredibly important for us to understand <clears throat> if, that's going to, if that's the better paradigm and that's the one that we want to advance, to understand what the strengths and weaknesses are at those levels. And uh, so your testimony today has been uh, critical to that. And, uh, and know that, <clears throat> that what you've said here today is recorded, is going to be studied, is going to be analyzed <clears throat> and will be in the next report and will be taken to, to the United States Congress. Thanks very much. Uh, let me thank all of our speakers again uh, who came to Miami to share their experience and knowledge. Let me thank Asha and her team for a terrific job. Um, this panel believes that it is not if but when the next biological event will occur. The problem is we're preparing for something we don't know. In fact, if we were going to do this report again, it would probably have a big question mark on it. And um, we're best in this country at every level preparing for things that we know. 
and can pin down. In this case, we're not quite sure what we're preparing for, but we do know we have to prepare. We have spent three generations of preparing for events like floods, hurricanes, gun attacks, bombs, tornadoes, and have, for, uh, have perfected a lot of those collaborations. This is not the same, but it demands similar infrastructure um, at a different level of complexity because it's a bio event. And um, getting uh, leaders at the highest uh, levels of government, and I start by talking about local government as the highest levels of government, and state governments as the highest levels of government, and then, of course, our national government, to focus on this when we can't quite describe what the next one's going to be or when it's going to come, but we do know it is going to come, and how it's going to, and the kind of resources that we need. We clearly have talent in this country if they're given the resources and a lot of goodwill and a lot of very skilled people that know how to collaborate. Um, at the end of the day, um, making sure that they have first the strategy and then the resources um, is going to be the challenge. And um, this panel is actually breaking new ground in that regard. Um, luckily, we're going to be able, to, hopefully, to survive for another two or three years uh, so we continue uh, to do work uh, uh, in this area. So uh, we've learned a lot. Um, and one of the reasons I love uh, the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense is because I learn new subjects uh, every day. It's been 100 years, as someone has pointed out, since the uh, Spanish flu took millions of lives throughout the world. Um, and it's clear that we're still struggling uh, across the world and in the United States to prevent the spread and potentially the devastating impact of infectious diseases. And um, we're going to issue a special focus report on the subjects that we address today or that you address today in an effort to help uh, tribes and localities and states and territories respond to large uh, biological events. So thank you everybody for participating. Thank you for your input and you'll hear from us. Thank you very much. If, if any of the people here would like to send us written documents, we'd be happy to receive them. I know there's some people in the audience that might want to send us memos as well, but we're happy to see receive any written documents, and Asha will, will give you her address. <laughs> and we do have extra She's copies of this, right? Uh, yes. We have some extra copies yes. if people want copies.